Good day. Good day. Today is Saturday, May 7th. I guess the good news is the market's closed. You can't lose any money. Sorry. Um, where to begin? You guys are giving me a run for my money. And we did spaces on Tuesday and Wednesday, and it wasn't my intention to do one on Thursday. And I was I was so tired. And then Bobby uh, Tom Thornton reaches out to me and says, hey, time for a space. We got to do what the people are calling for you. So we did it. It was absolutely epic. We started at 9 p.m. on Thursday night. I think we went to 1230, something like that. I have to say, objectively, I mean, I know it's my space, but objectively, I think it was the best space ever in the, in the history of Twitter. And I say that because I look at the feedback. And go look at my Twitter feed. I mean, that's murderer's row. Never before, never before has so much talent assembled in one place at the same time. From Michael Belkin to Tom Thornton, Tony Greer, Dr. Alhaji, Bob Justice, Michael Kantrowitz, and many others. I've never been to a conference that, that had that had that type of higher, that type of firepower. And you know, I know everyone in the room got a lot out of it, but let me tell you something: I got a lot out of it. So this is just phenomenal. We are really doing something extraordinary here. It's not just the content that's being delivered and the speakers, but the sense of community that we're building. We're learning together. I learned from you guys, the questions. I've had many of the speakers tell me the questions they get are better in Twitter spaces. And it's more enjoyable than going to some brain dead institution that's just hugging an index. So I really salute all of you and you know, it wouldn't be possible without you. I keep saying we have the best spaces because we have the best speakers, the best content, the best moderation, and the smartest audience. And I really believe that. And what we are doing, it's just, there's no telling where this is going to go. This all started out just as a, as a lark, as we all know, back in December. We're now up over, I think, 23,000 Twitter followers. I have a great group of people working with me, Carol Strone, who many of you know, working on the philanthropic side, helping World Central Kitchen, Bobby J, Andrew, Jack, RJ, Stavros Iatridis. There's going to be a lot more coming from us. You will soon see a research platform whereby we're going to offer up a consolidated research offering at a very modest price, which will feature some of the best research from many of the speakers you're hearing in this space. It will be done on a curated basis. So it's sort of like, you know, an all-star team. And what I hope to provide to everybody is, is similar to what one would receive if they were a, a high-level buy-side manager. You, know, you get hundreds of emails and hundreds of pieces of research every day, every week. And you have to separate the wheat from the chaff. So what I'm endeavoring to do is deliver a product, which will do that for you. I understand from talking to many people that there's too many research products out there. They're coming on a daily basis. One person was telling me they subscribed to this thing for 900 bucks, nothing for 500 bucks, and nothing for 1,000 bucks. Next thing you know, they spent a few thousand dollars on research. And they can't keep up with it. And plus, much of the research is filled with hamburger helper. It's all 
tell you what happened yesterday. And my view is I want to deliver a product which is tight, cogent, articulate, forward-looking, and actionable. You don't need to read a research report. How often does it happen? The guy summarizes, you know, what happened yesterday or last week. It's a waste of time. Less is more. And I think it's going to be a very exciting offering. So we're all learning here. This is kind of like, you know, the Japanese concept of Kaizen, continuous self-improvement. You're going to see a lot of other things coming out. Um, we are going to be coming out with an ETF. I'm willing to say that. We've, we, we've, we are in motion on that. And I expect that offering will be up uh, shortly after Labor Day, if not sooner. Um, we're going ahead filing documents with the SEC. So, um, yeah, so it's all really exciting. And I think we have a chance, actually, to create something extraordinarily unique. People are dying for research. They want the truth. And sometimes I tweet out, you know, can you handle the truth? Famously from, you know, A Few Good Men, that whole Jack Nicholson rant where he goes nuts and uh, what's his name? Uh, Tom Cruise. And there's Paul Pierce, the retired all-star from the Boston Celtics, he called him the truth. I, I don't want to be known as the truth. That's a little bit self-aggrandizing. But I'm on a mission to combat all the bullshit that's out there. I think people have had enough of CNBC and Jim Cramer and Kathy Woods. You know, Kathy Wood, they say you should, you should, uh, you can praise specifically, but only criticize, sorry, praise specifically, but criticize only generally. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. There are too many charlatans and jokers out there. You know, there's this one guy who tweets out under uh, the Twitter handle of a reverse Kramer. You know, this is intended as a joke. And Jim, I don't know if I can call him a friend because he's probably pissed at me now, but he used to be a friend. Like, it's just, it's horrible. I, I think, I think it's people just trying to crave relevance and, and eyeballs and, and they lose their objectivity. And we'll, we'll play later in this, in this space, a replay a clip we had the other night, that of Brian Belsky, of BMO. He used to be a good strategist. But you just listen with the guy's head, what he's saying, you know, just make your head explode. So people know they're being conned um, and they've had enough. And I'm here to try to enable people, empower people to make the right decisions with the right information. I don't pretend to be the be, the be all and end all. Um, I've been beaten up enough. I've made I have a career of 41 years of making mistakes. Mr. Markets taught me. Yeah, I'm opinionated, and, and, and I'm not a shrinking violet, but in terms of intellectual disposition towards the world, I know enough to realize I don't know. And I, I know the older folks can relate to this. The more you go through life, the more you realize you don't know. And I'm going to use this phrase again. It's no, no slight intended towards younger, less experienced investors. I wish I was younger. I have gray hair now. I weigh too much. That's all fine. But it's, it's not, nothing to do with age. It's got to do with wisdom and experience. And I don't know who made up the line, but it was something like, I'm not old enough, to, I'm not young enough to know everything. You heard me right. I'm not young enough to know everything. You know, the first stock I bought as a kid, I was 11 years old, it was 1968. Back in the day, believe it or not, um, all the stock prices were, came in the newspaper. So you open up the business section every day, there were pages and pages of stock prices. And my father was a mathematician at Princeton, and I love numbers, still love numbers. And I'd study these numbers in these pages, and I thought this was kind of interesting. So this is the bull market of 1968. 
and I had a very sophisticated stock selection process. I bought stocks on the basis of their name. You heard that right. Who had the coolest sounding name? <laughs> the first stock I bought went bankrupt. It was advanced systems. I remember like it was yesterday. It was a REIT. And um, it went bust. And I remember my dad taking me one day into the city, New York City, to attend the annual meeting. And I thought this was really cool because you get to go to these meetings and all these people are wearing suits and everything. And then he took me to the old Palm restaurant downtown for a big steak dinner and sawdust on the floor and my eyes were wide. And I was like, God, I want to do that when I get older. So I say this with all the humility. I'm not poking fun at young people. Experience is the best teacher. As the lesson goes, you know, the beating shall be, the lessons shall be presented until learned. Or nowadays, given what the market's doing, the beatings will continue until the lesson is learned. I'll say a couple more things, and I want to open this up. And Shrub, I'd like you to come up and be co-host if you wouldn't mind. I'm going to send you send you a co-host invite. Shrub, if you could please accept that. And if you're unable to, we'll get Mac Ox to do it. Um, in fact, I'm going to invite Mac Ox as well, so we can have three hosts instead of just one or two. Um. The other thing I have to say is what we're doing on the charity side here, and that is it's unprecedented. I hope Carol will speak a little bit later again about what's going on in the philanthropic world. Philanthropy has been unable to really access the social media space uh, in terms of raising money. Again, we started this out as a lark. We didn't know what we were doing. We said, let's give it a whirl. And I've lost track of the numbers. Carol has them. But what I do know is I think we're 12, I think we're somewhere like $118,000 the last time I looked. And I think we're 12,000 away from a $50,000, the unlock of a $50,000 challenge. So that is to say, if we raise 12 more thousand dollars, we will, um, we'll have 180. I think we're at 118 right now. And I want to salute Alexander from Switzerland. I can never pronounce his last name properly. Um, S-T-A-H-E-L. Um, style or you pronounce. I hope Alex comes into the room. If someone knows him and wants to DM him, tell him you should get his butt in here because we need to congratulate him again. But in any event, um, we've had some incredible leadership gifts. Alexander gave ten thousand last Saturday. That was a spectacular room. Um, Jan Van Eck, and I'm calling people out because they, they they did. I'm not going to call anyone out who's anonymous, but Jan Van Eck responded in the moment and contributed ten thousand. There are other people on this stage who've given. 5,000 or more, and then some who've given repeatedly, given repeatedly. And what's really important is not the amount on the check, but rather um, the fact that it's inclusive and we have so many people giving. And I've just been blown away. We have, we have had hundreds and hundreds of uh, people uh, contribute. And um, I'm going to tweet out some things later. Carol as well. Uh, I was just looking at some of the comments um, from some of the contributors, and um, it just—I I, I am truly humbled. I mean, the other night when we were having that room with you know, Murderers Row on Thursday night, and the amount of money we raised in the room—it happened on on Saturday also. I told Carol, I said, you know, I'm actually reduced to tears, and, and really. Um, Hey, my eyes welled up a little bit because we're doing something really good. We're helping people. We're teaching people. 
and we're helping a terrific cause. You know, here's a here's a here's a here's a comment from a fellow. He gave only twenty six dollars and twenty five cents, and actually, some of the most meaningful contributions come from. They've got nothing to do with how big the contribution is, but just some of the comments. Thank you so much for helping so many people who need it and putting on these individual spaces. I can't ever fully quantify or repay what I've learned from this, but I hope this counts as something. Um, you know, let me just move on here. There were, there were, there were a few. Um, you know, thank you, George. As a novice investor, your spaces have been a great education. Thanks, Alexander, for the match. The match inspired a lot of people. Um, we got a lot of contributions last week when Alexander challenged the room. And I am imploring you, those, especially those who haven't given, to please give today. I want I mean, I want to make Alexander pay up. And, you know, I'm saying that in jest, of course. But, uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, this will follow. 180,000 is not, you know, we need, our goal is 200. But this is just the beginning. And so I actually think we are the, uh, we are the answer. We are the solution to a problem. People are looking for the truth. We have the truth. Um, here we go. I spent five, another anonymous donation. I spent five years at school, engineering degree and master's ongoing, working for eight years. And I do not believe I've learned as much about the world as I have on the weekly calls with George over the last few months. Thank you. I go on and on and on and on. I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, I was just blown away. Um, you know, in Judaism, they say you should try to leave the world in a better place than you found it. I'm not particularly religious, but I do hang on to a couple of these things because I think they're universal truths. It's got nothing to do, do with these, to do with these particular religion and giving back. I mean, it's, it's like, look, I've, I've been involved in bigger things. If you just measure them in monetary terms or projects in my life, but I have to tell you, I'm just, I am so humbled. I am so thankful. I am so blessed for all your support and the people, the folks at World Central Kitchen are truly, truly, truly doing God's work. All right. So enough of that. Um, so I'd like to get a, a couple of rants on the market. Um, I'm going to be provocative. Why should I ever be otherwise? I'm actually prepared to say right now, you know, we, you know we've had the right call in this room. And I always said it's a fool's errand to try to predict a crash because it usually doesn't crash. You know, for every time it does crash, there's a million times it doesn't crash. And maybe measured by speed, uh, it won't crash. I think, you know, it's one thing we have an epic, epic making down day. Like I can remember October 19th, 1987, like it was yesterday. And the and the, the the Dow falls 500 points in one day it was like whatever it was 18 percent, but it's something else when the market just strings together a bunch of onesies twosies, and eventually you wind up you, you you wind up in the same place. You can timestamp this, and you say, George, why are you going out on a limb? You can timestamp this because I've had the right call. You know, and, and honestly, I'm not, I don't say it modestly, but, you know, you listen to people in this room. It's Michael Kay or Michael Belkin or Michael Howell. I mean, these are the people who help inform my opinions. So we've been on the right side of this. And you've heard me sing the praises of all the Michaels. <laughs> That's funny. Belkin, Cantrowitz, Howell. There are plenty of others. 
Tony Greer, Tom Thorne. Don't forget Michael. Don't forget Michael Green. No, I don't. I don't include him. He gets no. No, he gets no credit. He's a, no. Michael Green is a good a good friend, but he keeps cautioning us. Oh, the passive bid, the passive bid. How's that working out for you, Mister Green? So no, I'm I'm going to disallow that one. Um, in fact, I would Fair accuse enough. him as a friend. I'm allowed to do that. He has embarrassed us. He's been too bullish. He's winning money. He only wants to be the wise guy that comes in this room and, and wants to get the pushback to our bearish arguments. And if he's in this room, he's walked around and come up on stage, and he can, and he can apologize for his errantly bullish position. He's a good friend, and I'll, I'll saying this here, I'll say it to his face. I think, I think he, would, he would admit as much. But in any event, Michael's, the name Michael seems to be – hey, Cantro, I forget. What does Michael mean in Hebrew? Do you know? What's your name mean in Hebrew? Well, I have a Hebrew name, which is – um, it's Melech, which, which, uh, the, the king, the means, king, means the king, king, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I forget. So there you go. If, if anyone wants to Google it or knows it, please raise your hand or put it in the, in the nest because I should know it, but I don't. So, so King, Can, King, King Kantrowitz, okay, he's up on stage, but all right, so I'm going to go out on a limb and Michael K, because he works for a real company, has to be responsible. And he's got compliance issues. He can't say this. And I, I don't know if he believes this, but I'm going to say this. I'm upgrading my bearishness to crash. And it's not based on momentum. And it says, oh, dude, the market's damn now. George is a bit bullshit. Anyone goes back and looks at my feed the last year, you know what I've been saying. You know, we called the, the long energy short Kathy Woods trade last summer. I've lost track. I don't know if it's up 300% or 400%. Went bearish on Peloton at 120 Called Robin Hood, called Robin Hood at thirty-five. Um, called Peloton at one twenty. I mean, it's, it just goes on and on and on. So I have the cred and the standing. I'm allowed to make this call. I think we're going to crash. And the reason I say that is, I look at the sentiment data, and when I say sentiment. That's another thing. I don't give a shit. These people are so misapplying the use of sentiment data. These sort of nouveau experts. Like I said, don't try this at home. They're forever looking at like AI data, which is completely wrong and misleading. There's a historical backtest on that, and Kay will beg. He, Michael Kay hasn't told me this, but I'm going out on a limb. I believe there's no there's no statistically valued information to be der- derived from the AI sentiment data. But more, now, hey, Joey, yeah, um, I'll, po- I'll post this up in, in a tweet. Um, there's a lot of you know the AI sentiment data. There's bull bear neutral, yep. but then there's also allocation. If you add up the equity stock and equity fund allocation, it's still near all-time highs, about 72%. So, <laughs> you know, put, putting your money where your mouth is is not happening. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and so Michael K is, is channeling his inter-Walter Deemer, which is, it's not when people turn bearish accounts, it's when they're done selling. And Shrub, get your butt up here because we need the flow data. I can find it somewhere, but I love I love when you talk dirty flow data to me. Like, they haven't sold, they've been selling for like two weeks. It's like nothing. They put in over a trillion last year. And we had, you know, a week of like 20 billion out and 13 billion out. So they're all in. So again, so watch what they do, not what they say. So positioning is still massively bullish. And oh, by the way, people say, well, you know, the hedge funds are de risk, yada, yada, yada. That's also horseshit. People, all these prime brokers have this data. They, they look at hedge fund positioning relative to the last five years. And they z-score it, and they'll tell you, you know, you're either a 10th percentile, 90th percentile, blah, blah, blah. So what happens, The um, I think the hedge fund net long, and Michael K. will probably know this as well, 
I think it went from like 75% net long to like 45% net long. And so it's, it's, it's relatively not so long in the context of the last five years. But again, that's the, that's the, that's the wrong sample. You're, that, that, that encompasses a period where, you know, Jerome Powell and his predecessors were serving up drinks. The easy money kept flowing. And I think a more relevant comparison is let's go back 10 years. All right, I'm not going to be a jerk and say let's compare it to how bad it could get at the bottom of the 2009 low. But if you just go back a decade and, you, and, 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 you, and then you ask yourself, is 45% net long the new normal? Is that normal? I don't think so. So positioning is all wrong. Also, there's some great charts out. Um, I was looking at it from uh, Wolf Research, where uh, they had they showed the commitment of traders data for NASDAQ and S&P futures. And you'd expect it to be really negative at the bottom. They're freaking that long. They're actually buying. And then they add on top. So, so that's data. It's not opinion. It's data. How are people positioned? That's data, okay? Everyone's got an opinion. The Senator Moynihan famously once said, you're entitled to your own opinion, not entitled to your own facts. The facts are everyone's people, people are massively invested still. And now we're going to turn over to Michael Kay for a minute. So, now, so I'm going to, it's T-ball time, Michael, if you can talk. Um, positioning's all wrong. The economy, I'm going to try and channel my, my, my inner Michael Kay. Positioning's all wrong. You've had rates go through the roof. I personally think it could keep, up, keep, keep going up. All you've seen so far is evaluation. I'm gonna let's see if I can do this, Michael. I've heard you spiel enough. Maybe I'm not as good looking as you or as young as you, but so maybe I can't get away with it. But let me try. So all you've seen so far is decline in, in, in stocks has been a function of declining PEs, and, and, and which is a function of the rising interest rates. You've yet to discount any earnings slowdown, and that's going to come. So positioning is all wrong. Um, uh, 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 the flows—they've hardly sold anything. Rates have gone up a lot. Stocks have not fully reflected that. And I also happen to believe that rates are going to continue to go higher. We can talk about that a little bit later in the talk. And the Fed is not going to, and the Fed is not going to bring the punch ball back. So economy is going to slow. I think we're going to recession. So again, you have a path. I, you know, they're, they're, you, you're, they're either not going to do enough, in which case you know, the bond market is going to vote with its feet, as it did this week. And you're going to see yields continue to rise. And so all of a sudden, you know, the, the Tina thing, there is no alternative. No, we're starting to get an alternative. So I keep saying, you know, Tina is dead. Goldilocks is dead. FOMO is dead. Or or they really get the bit between their teeth and they get real and they really jack up rates and the whole thing crashes. I suspect that, I mean, I don't know how it's going to play out. I mean, it is going to crash. I just don't know when. But I look at the velocity. It's not just the levels, but the velocity of some of these movements the system is not designed to handle this. You see the Japanese yen going down, you know, 15% in three weeks. Like, that's not normal. CDS spreads are now not up to, but approaching, or they're as high as they've been since the 2018 highs. I mean, stress is starting to manifest itself. And credit starting to get a little bit worse. And so, I don't know. I, I just think the bottom could fall out. I don't know if it happens on Monday. If it doesn't, the market's up on Monday. or We get turnaround Tuesday. I don't want any wise guys coming and say, well, you were bearish on Saturday. The hell with that. I mean, you can't call the market day to day. I mean, I had some wise guys taking shots at me on Wednesday on Twitter because the market was up. Michael Belkin was roundly criticized because he gave his bearish rant again on Tuesday. Nobody's called it better than Michael Belkin. Again, we go with the Michaels again. But, you know, hey, how'd that work out? You know, Thursday we had an epic crash, and then Friday it follows through the downside. So, 
people who want picks, people who want daily market calls, get out of this room right now. This is not for you. But if you want to be in the room that has the highest investment IQ on Twitter, people like Michael Kay, I'm going to exclude present company, and Shrub, if he comes back up here, this is the place for you. We've been right. In my own opinion, we're going to continue to be right. we got the playbook. So, Michael, let me stop that rant. If, if you're not busy with your research department right now, I, your daughters, could you uh, share a few words of wisdom, Michael Kay? Sure. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I posted, I just tweeted that chart, uh, George, so uh, I, I tagged you and uh, so you can you could see. Uh, I, I always, you know, strategists are often referred to as talking heads, so I always like to show the reason for why I say something, uh, and I always have a reason or something to show for it, because uh, talk is cheap. Uh, and so, yeah, you said if, you, if, uh, if you guys look at my tweet, you can see that equity positioning is still 70, 70% of, of asset allocation when you're looking at cash, bonds, and equities. So, you know, sentiment tends to be schizophrenic. Positioning is really what draw, you know, which, what is the truth at the end of the day. Um, so, George, you know, I think, I think what, you know, the, the, one of the great things that this room has done and what you've done for people is, you know, besides, you know, having great long ideas over the last, you know, since I've known you, you know, I think the, the most value you've added to people is helping them get out of the way of the bus. Because, you know, you, it, it, I tweeted this yesterday, someone posted a chart on Netflix, and it reminded me of something, a study I did years ago, you know, looking at bear, uh, bull markets over time, whether it was for individual stocks or indices. And when you look at bull markets, you know, they take a long time to build up. And, and uh, I made the parallel to respect, right? It takes a long time to build up respect. Uh, but you can lose it very quickly by saying something stupid, doing something stupid, or investing in something stupid. And, and that's what investors have relearned again. You know, look at Netflix. It took, I don't know, four, 15 months to get to, get to its highs and uh, about a tenth of that to, to get back to its lows and, and, and then some. Um, and so I still think, you know, we've, uh, that, that's been invaluable to people. And I, I continue to learn every day, you know, make mistakes and kind of understand them and dig through them and understand, okay, don't do that again, don't do that again. And it's so, it's so much more valuable to understand what not to do while everyone's telling you what to do. So uh, I just want to give you kudos for that because that's uh, often an overlooked uh, value added that uh, this room has certainly provided. Um, my, you know, my view hasn't changed. Uh, again, I, I think, you know, we're, we're going to face two bear markets, uh, one on top of each other. The current bear market is about interest rates. The next bear market is going to be about the economy and earnings and economic data that's going to miss and miss and miss. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of stuff I'd, I'd love to tweet right now, but, uh, you know, I've I got to be, always be careful of making sure I tweet anything after it's been published. I don't want to be uh, get a call from my DOR. But um, I, I've got, you know, we're, we're, what we're working on for Monday is, again, trying to quantify and illustrate this timeline that we have in our heads about how this slowdown and bear market's going to unravel over the next year and a half. And one, one of the things I'm most bearish on is anything that's high beta, whether it's a high beta index or high beta stocks in general. Uh, and, you know, I've shown that with Bitcoin because that's what Bitcoin is trading with. You know, a lot of people have tried to plot it with the NASDAQ, which, you know, is also fitting because it's trading with equities in general. 
but anything that's high beta. And high beta stocks have really just started cracking this year. And when I look at leading indicators of the business cycle, of the earnings cycle, which is what high beta cyclical stocks trade with, I got this chart. Uh, I'll tweet it on Monday. It, it's had a 86% correlation as a leading indicator for 12 months forecast. And it's telling me very, very black and white, smacking you across the face, that high beta stocks have another 12 to 15 months of, of underperforming, and this is only the second inning. And so, again, I just, you know, people that are looking for bottoms here in the market because of valuation or sentiment, you have to ask yourself, why is the market going down? And mostly it's been about rates. So, yeah, listen, if anything positive happens on inflation, that'll help for a little bit. Maybe it'll stabilize the market at best. But coming around the corner is this, is, I, guess, I think, one of the nastiest slowdowns that we've seen since 08, if not potentially worse than that. Um, in other areas, you know, I'm not trying to be overly doom and gloom, but, you know, at least in 08 you had bond yields going down. Hey, Michael. Michael. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Sorry. Yeah, much better. So, Mike, Mike, we lost you a little bit. One thing I was, you started to say we're going to go for one horrendous slowdown. The question I was going to ask you, I don't think we heard the last 20 seconds of what you said, but we've gone from like record easy to record tightening in like no time flash. Is that partly what informs your view about the upcoming slowdown? A thousand percent. Um, and I've, I've got a, I've something I've tweeted showing just the changes in oil, long rate, short rates, gasoline, the dollar, which to me are the governors are the leading indicators of the cycle. And, you know, this is a kind of a point again. Yes. You know, the last last week, somebody was telling me, hey, look, the yield curve steepening, that's bullish. No, not at all. When the yield curve steepens in a bearish fashion, which is the 10 year yields going up, that just pushes up mortgage rates and the cost of borrowing and is super bearish. As, a, as an anticipatory indicator. Yes, the, usually when the economy is improving and 10-year yields are going up and the yield curve steepening because of that, it's, it, that's just a confirmationary sign. It's not a leading indicator. It's just a reflection of the economy getting better. What's going on now, as, as you, we all know, is it, rates are going up because of inflation and that's steepening the yield curve and that is super bearish. The only time the yield right. curve steepens and it's bullish is when the Fed's cutting rates and then you've got, again, a long lead time until that actually shows up as being a positive. So, um, again, just it's been, I think, invaluable that all the things that you guys have pointed out in this room that you hear on CNBC and Fox and Bloomberg, where these market pundits say, oh, this is bullish, this is bearish, the valuation's cheap now, just not having a good idea of why this is even taking place in the beginning. Okay, Michael, I got something for you. One of our uh, one of the folks in the room DM me. You need to know this. You need to know this. Don't let it go to your head. So the name Michael is of Hebrew origin and means who is like God or gift from God. It is found in the Old Testament, notably in the book of Daniel. So there you go, Michael. You are the gift from God. <laughs> yeah, my, my mother tells my wife that every day. And, uh... <laughs> Doesn't go over so well. um yeah and so again you know this i i i learned so much from being in these rooms uh let me just read a couple of i i because i i I was um here we go from another from another contributor michael is one of four major angels that are according to see you're an angel now 
that according to Jewish tradition is standing around the heavenly throne where God sits, and besides serving God, is in charge of watching the four corners of the room. Michael is an arch- archangel from Greek, is the angel of high rank. The meaning of Michael in Hebrew is who is like God. So there you go. Um, so um, it was just pointed out to me by one of the contributors. Um, um, I'll call him out. Michael Malone um, says on Thursday was a record retail inflow. I'm sure that's right. I didn't see it. I was just I was I was sleeping part of Thursday. I was so tired. But that's the type of crazy stuff that's going on. I mean, money coming in. Kathy Wood's taking in more money. The commuter traders data being positive. I mean, it's just it's mind boggling. These these. These are not the things that you see at the bottom. So, again, you, you, you call a crash. People say, oh, yeah, the market didn't go down. It only went down 5%. He said it was going to. I'm not going to put a number on it. I just, you know, I keep saying the same for months. The market represents return-free risk. Well, what does that mean? It's going to be, no. I, I, and I think we're getting to the point now where you may start to see nonlinear um, movements where things start to gap, where it's like bid one and people have to get out and it could get ugly. And I could see a scenario could, and, and there's a fundamental basis for us, Michael, as you just described, you know, it's not just looking, taking out your Ouija board and some crayons and a ruler and learning how to spell Fibonacci, but you look at where the market was before. Okay. I, I don't know if I've asked you this question before, Michael. Okay. So I want to administer the truth serum here. Thought experiment. Think about where the market was pre-pandemic. I think we're in the high twos on the S&P, if memory serves me correct. I'll pull up the charts as I'm talking. And then say to yourself, where would the market be without all this? And it's a, it's a, it's a counterfactual. I understand that. But we, 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 we juiced the system. We overcooked it with too much monetary fiscal stimulus, fiscal stimulus. We arguably brought forward demand from the future because of excessive uh, stimulation. And so now, in my view, not only do things go back to trend, I think they go below trend. And so, and as you know, and you'll explain, and Michael, it might be useful as well from a theoretical perspective to explain how valuations tend to expand and contract with growth rates. And so we got into a position where, where earnings growth accelerated, valuations expanded. So you had peak valuation on, 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 peak, on, on peak earnings, peak earnings growth. And it's like an accordion. Now we're going to go back the other way. In fact, I think you could even see, see earnings slip below trend, especially when you think of the industries where, like, let's take some of the consumer discretionary names, consumer durables, where, you know, Peloton. Like, anyone has, do you know anyone who has money who hasn't bought a Peloton who might buy a Peloton? So I think you have a situation where you could see demand below trend because we stole from the future. And with that valuation going below trend, what is ever ever justified um, by by uh, by, by uh, uh, um, you know a stack dividend discount model? Because you have the element as well of um, leverage in the system. And so think about this for a second. Imagine you have a house, and you know house is worth a million dollars, whatever. And then you know, big stimulus checks handed out, interest rates go down a lot. Everyone goes running out and buying a house. And, you know, Stan Drucker would, would, would say it's never it's, it's Barton Biggs came who it was. No such thing as having too much of a good thing. So you don't just buy a house for yourself. You buy another house. You buy a condo. You buy some rental properties because you're like, hey, look at this. I jacked up the rent and the mortgage doesn't cost me anything. Um, you know, this is good. So you got leverage in the system. And then when it goes the other way, 
you're going to have some of those levered guys who aren't living in the house, they're just the owner occupied thing. You, you and, and they're going to be four sellers. So don't tell me, well, you know, the house is a million and it went to a million five and maybe it shouldn't have been a million five. Maybe the right price along with historical price appreciation should be a million two, yada, yada, yada. I mean, if you have four sellers, this idea of fair value, people say, well, you know, XYZ company, look at the cash flow on, you know, look at look at Facebook or look at whatever, look how cheap it is. Well, there's a couple problems with that. One, the E is probably wrong. So the multiples understated, the multiples much higher. Plus, if you have a distressed seller, who's going to say that fair value is where the price stops? All right, I'm going to interrupt myself. The S&P was around 3300 before the crash. Um, so if you were just to detrend that and try to figure out, and, and Michael, you'll give me the answer to all this. I know the question. I don't know the answer. You're at the show answer. You have all the answers. And you look at how much earnings are above trend and detrend that, and then try to think about what the appropriate valuation might be, looking at credit spreads. You know, you know the mumbo-jumbo stuff. And you put that all in the blender. Like, where do you think the market, you know, what it's counterfactual, but how would you think about where the market can see where the market conceivably could go? Michael? Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I keep hearing people say, like, oh, you know, we're going to get back to 2019 levels like that's some magical support line. Got to rem- We have to remember in 2019, the market skyrocketed because of one thing. Multiple expansion on the back of lower rates. So 2019's, you know, if you look at the multiple in 2019, it's skyrocketed after Powell pivoted. And so that was really what got things starting to, that was the beginning of the froth uh, where things got really silly. You know, it was really in 2019. And then as the pandemic came, it just obviously put that on steroids with all the stimulus. So, you know, I think you got to go even further back, but you know, at the end of the day, we, we get the question a lot, you know, well, how bad can things get? And, you know, obviously that's a function of two things. What's the earnings estimate and what's your multiple? You want to slap on that. And so I think there's three main drivers of the multiple. Uh, the slowest one and kind of one that helps you determine or understand why one index is more expensive or less expensive than another index is its composition. Uh, and I tweeted something uh, in the middle of the week showing the weight of the energy sector, if you invert it, it has done a pretty damn good job from one single variable explaining the market, you know, the direction of the market and the level of the market's valuation back to the 60s. You know, it's, it's not something that's to be used as a tool to understand fair value, but it, it clearly demonstrates that composition matters. You know, when energy prices or when real oil prices are rising um, or when oil prices are rising, Generally, that's a backdrop where PEs are under pressure. And you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that the, the last two highs in the market's PE back in 2000 and then in the right after the, the beginning of the pandemic was at the lowest oil levels in history. You know, eight bucks in 98, uh, in 99, late 98, and then negative whatever, 37 bucks uh, at the depth of pandemic, uh, where energy sector weight in both of those episodes was the lowest uh, that we've seen. So composition plays a big role. So, you know, the, 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 the S and P and the NASDAQ are going to be more expensive than the rest of the world because there's just a lot more tech and defense and growth. And there's a lot less cyclicality financials, industrials, energy materials today only add up to about 26, 27% of the S and P 20 years ago, those four sectors added up to about 40 8% of the S&P. So that's something just important to understand why indices 
behave differently. A lot of it just due to their composition. So that's, that's the first thing, but that moves like a glacier. Um, but with energy outperforming this year, it's no surprise. It means that at least makes perfect sense that the multiple is going to continue to grind lower. So the more bullish you are on energy, the lower the multiple should go, kind of a simple rule of thumb for the overall equity market, excluding energy. Um, the second thing is obviously rates, which also obviously can move time to, uh, can move up or down. But rates are inconsistent. When rates are rising because of growth, that's typically a backdrop where PEs are actually rising. Think about the last 15 years when, when we every recovery saw higher rates, but it also saw uh, tighter credit spreads. And that's the third component. It's credit spreads. And this is one that matters the most year to year. Um, but also it makes it interesting this year because this year it's been interest rates that's been the big driver. But going again to what, I, what I've been talking about, the next leg of the story is going to come in credit spreads. So the level at which the PE will bottom will be the day that credit spreads peak. I don't know where that's going to be. And, and that's why, you know, playing these games like, oh, 14 is cheap or 16 is cheap in the S&P, that, that's meaningless. Markets don't bottom because they get cheap. They bottom because the thing that made them cheap stops getting worse. Michael, that's, that's absolutely, that's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And could you just elaborate that on just a touch? Because you, you said it or you said it once, said it twice in these rooms recently. By the way, I have to interrupt myself. I just want you to look. The, ty- the, the title of the room has been changed. Um, so you have top billing now. Um, so, <laughs> so, so anyway. At least you didn't um, put God. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would have signed off. Jesse Livermore in conversation with God. Actually, you know what? Why did you change your name like those pro- like uh, uh what's the world be free whatever you should change your name to like you know god canterwitz or something like that oh, that'd be that'd be hilarious so i need to see my wife see. <laughs> <laughs> but no but seriously could you just could you just tease that out a little bit um you you, you hit the nail on the head you, you think you said well, it's the thing which is making the market go down once that thing stops then the market will bottom okay so yep. it's, it's, it's credit spreads. but could you just talk also through another lens you were talking about how Go back to the to, to the economic cycle, like you know. In, in, in I know you said in other rooms, and my God, it might be 12, 15 months before we're, we're there. Like we're just starting the economic downturn, right? So, so between the fact you're looking for credit spreads to, you know, you, you want the all clear from credit spreads and bond yields, and then like you said, it's not going to bottom just because it's cheap. I mean, could you just speak a little bit about why, how you think about the the, the location or the bottom of the of, of, of the economic cycle? is being the thing which finally also makes you um, uh, make you become more optimistic. And maybe that just ties in with, with the call and the credit spreads, but just, just saying it a different way. Uh, yeah, it's it's because at the end of the day, you know, the bottom in, in the economic cycle, and I'm not talking about recessions in GDP. I don't care about GDP. I care about leading indicators of GDP. So, And that's why we focus on PMIs, because when you look at any country PMI, it does a phenomenal job, the best of any macro data, at explaining changes in earnings revisions for that respective index. So if you want to understand, you know, and that's the thing, that's the scary thing about Europe, like Europe, uh, you know, is going to, we think, go into a pretty deep recession. Their earnings estimates are still more positive than negative today. And probably the reason is, is because the economic data, though it's all going to get real ugly down the road, it's not there yet. And so it's just another reason why markets don't really look too far ahead. Right. Can I interrupt for one second, Michael? Yeah. if any of my crew is on the line here, I think Andrew's there. I don't know if uh, um, RJ or uh, Jack are there, but 
I think I made a boo-boo. I don't think this room is being recorded. We can always retrieve the recording from uh, Twitter, but that'll take a few days' delay. So, Andrew or, or RJ or Jack, if you wouldn't mind recording from here, unless you're already doing so, because the first 20 minutes of this room will have been lost. It's actually the first 45 minutes, but we'll get it back. Don't worry. Or if anybody else wants to record it, that'd be that'd be much appreciated. I, I, I thought I hit the recording button, but I obviously didn't. Um, so... So, Michael, argue against yourself for a second. I mean, I don't, I don't make it. I don't mean to make the talk since the God show, but as long as we got you here, um, we rebanded the room. It's kind of your room. Could you argue against yourself? Like, like let's say this is a bear party and, and, and we're, we're in an echo chamber, or let's say some you have to go into another room. You, you, you're, you're at you know at the Oxford uh, Cambridge debate, and you're tasked with the um, taking the bull side. How would you argue against yourself? Sure. Yeah. And, and that's this is actually kind of the idea what we were trying to put out, uh, what, what we're publishing on Monday for our clients. Uh, so I can kind of talk to a little bit of it. It's, um, as I said, you know, identifying the biggest problem in the market is, is always paramount. Uh, and this is why sometimes the market actually bottoms after the economy bottoms. Yeah, you heard me right. The stock market often bottoms after the economy bottoms. Uh, it happened in 09. The global economy actually bottomed in December of 08, but the biggest problem was actually not the global economy at that time. It was the concern around financials and how regulators were going to treat their their um, their fundamentals, and and that wasn't clarified until March, which is when the market finally bottomed. Uh, same thing happened in 2016. Oil prices became the focus of Wall Street as they were going down in late 15. And again, the global economy, emerging markets bottomed in, in December of 15. The U.S. started turning up in January of 16 and Europe as well. But the market didn't bottom until the day oil bottomed. Uh, and, and so it's always the weak link that must be resolved before the market can bottom. And sometimes it's not the economy. Um, and so, you know, same thing happened in 02, 03. You know, in the, the economy, you look at things kind of bottomed in 02, uh, mid late 02. And, you know, we kind of had another double, double dip in March 03, which was the ultimate bottom. So I bring that up today because today, as I said earlier, the bit, what's the biggest problem in the market today? It's inflation and interest rates. It's not a recession or fear around earnings or fear around, um, well, yeah, fear around economic data. People are worried about it. They're talking about a recession, but that's not what is driving the market. And there's a couple of different ways we can kind of think about that. And actually when I think Michael was talking, Belkin, um, I think it was Belkin uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and George, you mentioned about the yen, you know, and talking and say, usually the yen is typically a counter cyclical or strong currency when, um, when markets are panicking. And, and obviously the yen has been melting down doing the quite doing the opposite. And that again, I think goes to the point that this is not, we're not seeing a full risk off b- backdrop. We're seeing a backdrop that's being driven by higher rates, which, which is not making the typical, like the yen, act strong, but in fact act weak. I believe the yen will eventually strengthen when this becomes about an economic problem, more so than it's just about a rates problem. Um, equity allocation, again, is that, that chart I just tweeted is 72%. Bond allocations are very, very low. So that, you know, people are obviously bearish on bonds that's showing up in both sentiment and positioning surveys. And again, just furthers the point that this is more about interest rates rising than the economy slowing so far. 
Um, and then let's say, I'm trying to think of other examples just to, to tease out this point here. And then, you know, obviously large cap growth stocks getting crushed is, is, is largely a function of rates where small cap value that's gotten hit this year, but nowhere as nearly as much as it would have if this was an economic story and then credit spreads. And that is, that's the ultimate sign right there smacking you across the face that we're nowhere, we're nowhere near ending this story or, or pricing in a growth slowdown because it's clearly not being represented in credit. And I think that's one of the reasons why, because earnings are not terrible right now. They're, they're okay. Right. Yeah. So my, Michael, let me ask you a couple of questions to spring to mind. You've heard me say it uh, multiple times, drawing my experience in the Japanese market, going back to the eighties, and not that I expect you have the data on Japan, but you probably have the data or at least could imagine what the data would look like on the U.S. And that is to say, in Japan, in the bull market in the 80s, we had the so-called triple merit market. The market was being driven by falling oil prices, falling interest rates, and a falling dollar. The reason the falling dollar was a positive for the Japanese market is because it kept capital flows bottled up inside Japan. And now I look at the U.S. and we kind of have the opposite. You have rising oil prices, rising interest rates, and you have a rising dollar, which is bad for earnings. So if I just said to you, all else held equal, um, you have that combination, which to me intuitively is kryptonite for the markets. But if I said to you, all all only variables I gave you were, you know, forget about the fact that everyone's massively invested and profit margins are high and stocks are overvalued. Forget about all that stuff. If I just said rates up, dollar up, oil up. How does that speak to you in terms of market direction? Oh, my God. I mean, you know, you, George, you saw that chart I published, which is something we call the cost conditions index. And it's at negative 10. <laughs> and, and that's a standard. So it's essentially like 10 standard deviations. It's a standard. It's not exactly Z-scored, but uh, let me see if I can find it here. I just I just retweeted it. Um, and so... If you look at that, this show, we have the most, we've gone from record easing to record tightening. And I posted this and some people said, oh, well, look, you know, it's not going to go any lower. So it's bullish. No, you're missing, you're not understanding it. It's, it leads by almost two years when you, when you try to line up anything up. And that's, this is what I use to lead the performance of high to low beta, which is telling me that, and it's, and it's been phenomenal as a leading indicator. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, over the, over the, Last two decades, you know, I, I worked for a guy I learned a lot from um, back at ISI, and and we used to have kind of like a, a checklist of things that you know if if like higher oil, higher rates, and all of that, and, and this is the worst I've ever seen it, ever. And and that chart illustrates that beautifully. Exactly, and 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 I'm the same way, and and I don't mean to be a fear monger, but. You know, Paul Tudor Jones, he said the other day, it's the worst setup I've ever seen in his life. I agree with that. So, and, and if you look at consumers, you know, the consumer is healthy and they're going to save us. Or there's two things that are com- going that are being, being completely debunked right now. The service sector is, is slowing as fast as the manufacturing sector. If you look at the ISM services, that is down to 53. So this idea that services are going to offset the slowdown in durables and manufacturing and industrial production not happening because the breadth and depth of this tightening nothing nothing's going to offset that it's hitting everything it's hitting everywhere and this is i think i lost you in 08 why another reason this is worse than 08 is because at least in 08 you had a relief valve from lower interest rates 
and eventually they will go down, I, I believe, <laughs> but it's going to take such a deeper slowdown. This is, and you know, I agree. I think the Fed is going to be extremely aggressive or has to be extremely aggressive when you have a supply problem, when you have a supply problem, you need to crush demand far more than normal to get the same response of prices to get prices back down. Just think about that, right? If, if, if supply demand is in check, you hit, you know, you raise rates, you hurt demand a little bit, boom, it shows up. But when you have a supply issue, you have to overwhelm demand much more worse than you would if you didn't have that supply shock like we have today, which is why the Fed needs to do a lot more right. than whatever normal is. And uh, Bobby J is not here right now. He should be in here in a few minutes. But I was talking to him earlier this morning, and he was sounding the alarm on the consumer. Oh, yeah. So I mean, yeah, can you speak to what's happening to real, com- real income? Yeah, it's, um, this is why I go on Twitter because you know, I can't look at everything. And I, I used to read a lot of blogs. Uh, I don't read the Wall Street Journal. I don't listen to CNBC because you know, I think it's just there's more noise than news and any of that stuff. And over the years, I've before Twitter was a thing, I used to follow a ton of blogs um as you know ways to just have smart people to listen to to distill out the information and that's you know twitter's now replaced that and i saw somebody pl- uh, tweeted um you know the savings rate has collapsed for the u.s consumer and if you look at credit card revolving credit card debt that is spiking and it's not happening because people feel good and want to go buy another tv or car or whatever it's doing because they're forced to do it. Uh, and so, and, and, and we know that because you look at consumer confidence, it's in the dumps. And, and that's, you know, the whole, that just blows out the whole the consumer's healthy story uh, because that's quickly fading to zero. <laughs> All right, Michael, this is a real tour de force. I really, really appreciate it. Please hang around if you can. I'm sure we have a lot of questions. But I'd like to give it a rest for a second, and let's go to our good friend, Shrub. He's posted up on the Nest the weekly flow data. Shrub, uh, what's news and what's, what are you seeing going on in the world? Just air and observations. What's going on in Europe? What do you see from the Russians? What do you think about flow? What, what's top of mind for you, Shrub? Always love, love so, to So, hey, George. So, basically, this week I've been really out of touch of the markets because I'm sitting on cash, and uh, I barely push myself to watch the Fed. Uh, on Wednesday, um, I was out all of Friday at, um, having drinks with friends and a big lunch. And I'm not saying that to make everyone jealous. I'm just telling everyone this because they should know that when the market becomes a casino, they should sit on cash and save themselves and their, and their capital from stress. So that, that's the first thing. So I'm, I've got like 35-40% cash pile. Uh, I'm very comfortable with that. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is, the reason why Paul Tudor Jones said this is the worst market ever in some ways, uh, and it's just building up from Michael's um, uh, conversation. I mean, Michael, uh, seriously, Michael, you're one of the best strategists out there by far. Um, just just telling you now that I can. <laughs> um, so one of, the, one of the things that makes this the worst market is in 2008, and you know, we, we were there, obviously. Uh, I did pretty well in 08. There was one saving grace for a lot of people, and that was the, the bond market, the investment-grade bond market. The high-yield market blew up, right? 
So we made money on CDSs and all that stuff. But actually, if you were a long only or a 60-40 manager, your 60%, which is your U.S. treasuries, actually made a lot of money. People forget that. They started the year at 4% and they ended the year at 2%. My colleague made a fortune because, you know, the two-year went to zero. And at some point, I think it was like touched negative or something, the, if I remember correctly. So that was his trade. And, you know, that was a massive protection. That's why risk parity. That's why that guy, the Burning Man Ray Dalio, he came out of 08 looking like a hero and started raising like a supermarket hedge fund, went to like whatever, how many billions, pushing his risk parity. So because the bonds started at 4%, they actually provided protection into a deflationary crush. Now, fast forward today. Today we started with the most overvalued credit market ever in history. And you can debate about the tech market and all that stuff and say, oh, this is not 2004, the NASDAQ, because, you know, Apple makes money, whatever bullshit you want to talk about. Fine, put the NASDAQ out of this. The credit market, which is the biggest asset market in the world, has been the most overpriced market ever. It's been the most overpriced ever. And the simple proof is we had like more than $10 trillion of negative yielding debt however can describe this monstrosity of an instrument. I mean, what bigger bubble can you think of in your lifetime with negative yielding debt? You pay someone to buy their bonds. I mean, how stupid is that? That's going to go up there with NFTs and crypto in a few years. So you come into 2022, we the most overvalued market in the uh, credit market in the world. And obviously, the NASDAQ has all the excesses and, you know, the SPACs and the nonsense and the Cathy's and all that crap. And the 60-40 portfolio thinks that the 60% that protected them in the last couple of downturns, well, including March 2020, by the way, same thing, it protected them. So they think their 60% allocation is going to protect them, and instead, it destroys them. So we're in this very ugly situation where the hedge for the long onlys destroyed them as much as their long exposure. So sometimes because most of us are equity guys, we forget the pain that's sitting in the, in the credit market. And add that on top the other dimension that, um, that Michael touched, with, touched on. The credit spreads haven't had time to adjust yet. So the credit spreads are as tight as they were like, I don't know, I mean, they're like normal credit spreads because the investment grade took such a hit that they were basically just going down hand in hand, but there wasn't any outperformance of uh, investment grade versus junk. So that pain, I'm, I agree with Michael, that's going to come when the economy actually takes a hit in the next uh, 12 months. So fast forward to where we are again on the flow side. On the flow side, um, I've posted the latest data. Amazingly, giant 3.4 billion outflows in equities this week. So we had a trillion of inflows, 30 billion of outflows, and now we had 3.4 billion of outflows so far this week. But again, we had 2 billion of inflows for US large caps, which is the same thing that happened last week. So people are actually still positioning in large caps. 
And if there was one proof, I don't like to look at intraday action, but if you look at what the Fed, how the Fed, uh, how the market traded the Fed on Wednesday and Thursday, you know, you had that nonsense uh, spike after the Fed because they didn't, they weren't going to hike for seventy-five bips. So you had that coming. That's just nonsense. But anyway, that that spike, I actually thought it was going to last a few days. It lasted like two hours. So it got sold off. And why did it sell off? It's because people are still long. So when are so to the ultimate question, when is the bottom? I think the bottom is when they stop selling. It's like it's that simple. <laughs> yeah, shrubbed, shrubbed, hundred percent. Again, again, Walter Deemer, please call your office. It's that quote. It <laughs> yeah. ain't when people are bearish and support when they stop stop selling. They have, they've just begun to sell. Just begun to sell. So, um, so if I can touch on that point, George. So, I don't know if you saw this, but Kathy had inflows. So. I think the pain in tech, I'm, I'm actually beginning to think that the, the, that the bear market in tech is going to last much more than 12 months. Because shrub, shrub, stop, shrub, stop, stop. You, you and I got to get a room together because, I mean, I think, I think you were out of the room for a little while. When I said get a room together, you're still going to bug me. Yeah, no. I, I said exactly the <laughs> oh, same did you? thing. Sorry, you I was having a little dinner with family, so I missed that 20 yeah, minutes. No, I, no, I said, I, dude, if I didn't know any better, <laughs> you, no, if, if I didn't know any better, you, you, you're one of these Twitter grifters. It just takes what I say as recycling. I know you too well. So you said right? the same thing like 10 minutes ago. I said exactly <laughs> the same fucking thing. <laughs> I mean, if you were anybody but Shrub, I, I, I would say, is there a question? Is there a point? I mean, no. 100%. 100%. Michael, Michael, um, before, before uh, Shrub, hold it for a second. Michael, I, I, Shrub was responding to something you said, and I want to ask you about this. The point about the changing composition of the, of the index and people say, well, you know, all the tech stuff deserves a higher multiple than energy materials, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's all true. Maybe normally, you, you know, higher growth stocks get higher PEs and higher valuations than, um, than, than more slowly growing things. But I want to turn that on his head, Michael. This is a question for you because you're the guy with the numbers. In a world where, you know, to put in Carl Sagan speak, in a world where rates are going up, it's actually the high growth names that get killed more because they're long duration entities and you just put it into a, you know, Gordon dividend discount model, they will get more fucked by rising rates than a shorter duration entity. So could you speak to the, imp yeah, so so we understand why the change in composition of the index is the bulls always, they should give you a higher multiple. That's true, all things be equal, but they're not. We're in an environment rising rates, number one, and then speak to differentially, you know, PE is just, a, is just a shorthand for dividend discount model and explain how rising rates, I think a lot of individuals really don't understand this, not all PEs are created equal and how if the market's fucked from rising rates, high growth stocks are triple fucked. Could you please explain that? Uh, yes. So... PEs can go up and down for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you know, we often think of just, you know, we often just think about the growth outlook for earnings, but you know, the, the, there are a lot more, it's not just the growth in earnings, it's the volatility in earnings. It's the health of the balance sheet. So there's, there's a lot of different things that really go into valuing a company beyond, you know, kind of some of them are even softer things that are, are purely mathematical, but again, these other, other areas, other things, the rest of the financial statements besides just the growth in the income. And so this year we haven't really seen credit spreads widen, you know, again, I, I focus on BAA spreads because that's kind of more of the broader representation of the economy and, and equities, you know, high yield can sometimes give you some, uh, often gives you more volatility 
just because they tend to have more concentrated and tends to be the junk of the junk. Um, and not, not that you shouldn't watch it, but so this year, while you're seeing rates go up, you know, mathematically it, 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 uh, right. It reduces the future value of, of that income stream of these companies. And that's been the big change this year to date. It's, it's been the shock in rates more so than the slowdown in the economy. Um, so I, you know, that's, that's why growth companies or expensive companies, uh, have been, uh, triple screwed, as you say. Um, I, I would actually like to, to kind of put a, an idea there where I would say I, one thing I, I would disagree with a little bit with what Shrub said about tech going forward and, or growth more largely, more, more broadly. Um, you know, a lot of people are making comparisons to 2000, um, because of tech and the expensive nature of, of tech and everything. And, um, indeed that was the last time we probably saw all policy metrics go up like they are today, oil, gas, short rates, long rates, all simultaneously in the dollar as well. So uh, we talk about, um, that's where the relationship between today and 2000 breaks down. Um, meaning that as we go forward and start to see the economic and earnings consequence of the story, what is as, and as credit spreads start to rise that now is going to negatively impact the valuation of companies that are more cyclical. In 2000, in the late 90s, large cap tech stocks were not only expensive, they were also crazy high beta. None of them really made any money. The fundamentals were junk, extremely cyclical. Uh, and so tech stocks in 2000 fit the bill or checks, check the box for not only expensive growth, but also high beta cyclical junk. And that's why tech just got crushed until the end of the bear market in, in 03. What I think is different today, or I, I know is different, whether it plays out differently, we'll see. Uh, but the fundamentals of a lot of you know, good quality tech stocks are not what they were back then. There's, there's tons of cash, tons of visibility, recurring earnings, yada, yada, yada. And so I today, if and being bearish as I am, and thinking what could be the upside risk in the market. And George, we talked about this, and I'm not saying this because I'm bullish or believe it, but the biggest issue in the market today is inflation and rates. Wednesday CPI report. Uh, so I don't know if people know this, but every single economist is expecting either a flat or lower CPI print. The the survey average for again for what it's worth is 8.1 percent on headline CPI. So everyone expects it to essentially to go down. All right. So that's just one thing everyone should just be aware of. You know, even if we get a downtick, it won't be a big surprise. Um, and so, but again, if, if the inflation problem, which is the problem today, at the smallest margin doesn't get worse, stocks that are going to do better, I think, will be some of these growth names that have gotten punished because of higher yields and higher inflation. Again, I think the upside is limited, but the, the biggest problem that means it's not getting worse. And maybe it's just for one day or for, for multiple days. So the conclusion I'm trying to get to here is that I would rather be short at this point, small caps, small cap value stocks, than shorting the queues. Because as we go ahead, we're either going to continue to have an inflation problem that's going to be compounded by a growth recession scare. And that's going to broaden out what's getting crushed. And as earnings get hit, it's going to, again, hit, it's going to hit junky cyclical companies more than it's going to hit large cap tech companies. And if inflation does, for whatever reason, give the market a stay of execution for a few more months, for, for a few months, uh, 
I think Q's will do better than small caps. So to me, I think there's a lot more downside risk as the the economic and earnings story starts to kick in here in small caps than there is in Q's because, and, and compared it to 2000, it's not the same fundamental backdrop. And again, I'm right. not talking about Teladoc. Yes. Yeah, so hold, hold, hold on. Shrub, hold it for one second. Shrub, hold, mute yourself for a second, Shrub. Thanks for that, Michael. Uh, I just want to make a comment, and then we're going to do Shrub, and then we're going to do Adam. Um, there are three uh, – it's good to see you, my friend Adam. Just just stay there. Shrub's going to go first. And then I see there are three people who are also up here on stage as speakers. I don't know you, um, uh, but in order to keep the – George, you oh, know me. Sorry, who is this? Oh. Oh, <laughs> What's okay, up, man? Okay, if I know you, then I'll let you go next, okay? <laughs> but, the, but the other two guys, Vander and Peace – I don't know you. I sent you a DM. Please tell me your question because we've got a really good rhythm going in this room and I don't want to go off the reservation with an extraneous question. Sometimes even questions that are thought to be well-intended, if they just come out in the, in, in the wrong context, like we had one the other day where we were having a hot and bothered battle about energy and someone in the middle of it, perfectly good fellow, well-intended, he goes, well, what do you think about dollar cost averaging? I'm like, like really? Like it just t- took the air out of the room. So I need to know your question. If I don't know you, I need to know your question, otherwise I'm not going to let you speak. Um, so, all right, so so we're going to go to we're going to do Shrub, and then Adam, and then the guy with me, Omakasia. Okay, so Shrub, Shrub. Uh, yeah, please. no, I just want to answer something to Michael because he made a very great point. So, you know, the last six months I've been tweeting out long energy, long commodities, short tech. Um, I actually covered my Nasdaq short this week. And part of the reason is exactly what you said. Look, if you have Google at 20 times, what am I playing for? For Google to go to 15 times? I'm not really interested. So, you know, I played the downside to that level. I'm kind of not interested to play it uh, for the derating, especially, you know, I I think it does go back to the pre-COVID levels, but, you know, I'm not interested in that. So to add to my philosophy and to George's uh, lessons on this point, my hedge is my cash. I'm not. I'm not yeah. on the so, downside yeah, of the so, 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 Shrub, I agree with that. And again, you know, it's I always talk about the ability to have two opposing ideas in your head at one time and stay sane. So I agree with that. So that's all true. But then when I put on the other side of the ledger, uh, you know, Michael Belkin has correctly focused on Fang as the target of his affection or derision recently, and it has a lot to do with the fact there are a lot of people hiding out in that shit. Okay, and at the end they come for the generals. So. To me, so I agree with what you said about valuation shrub, but to me, what I'm worried about, and, and frankly, it's not a bet I want to make. It's like it's like a race to the bottom. What's going to go down more, Fang or Fang or IWM? Because those things are overvalued. I'm sorry, not overvalued. They're overowned. Everyone's hiding in that shit. All right, Michael Belkin, who's been the most right, you know, strategist on the planet. Frankly, he's saying that's what's going to get totally destroyed. Um, and so, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but then on the other side, I put my comments on the other side of the ledger. What do you want to say, shrub? Yeah, I just I agree 100% that I, I would definitely not belong. And I think they should rename the fact, you know what? They should rename them rename them to ATM because it's going to be the funds. <laughs> it's going to be the ATM for people with redemptions. They're going to be like, "Oh my god, I can't sell my Teladoc down 90%, so I got to sell my Google down 30%." Yeah, and, 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 it's and an by, ATM. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> by the way, one other comment I want to make, another reason why I'm convinced the bottom is not in just the one of many, particularly for the Kathy Woodstocks. So there's this fellow. I will refrain from any any uh, 
derogatory terms to describe him, but I'll just tell you what he's done, and then I'll let people say if they want to call him an asshole or stupid or whatever. There's this fellow, and I know many of you, my friends, you saw the Twitter uh, feed the other day. This guy comes out and says, he's a technician, and he's another one of these geniuses who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. You know, they got the crayons and the ruler, and they can spell Fibonacci, and they know to say report, you know, support and resistance like a parrot. So this guy comes out, and he actually, I heard him speak at the, um, at the CMT uh, conference uh, uh, nine days ago. Actually walked out when he was on part of a panel. I mean, it was just blah, blah, blah. It was like, it was like you know, recycling uh, Captain Obvious first order thinking. Anyway, he comes out and he says, you know, I heard some guy named George Noble, you know, donkey on Kathy Wood. He's making fun of her because he had this Venn diagram up, you know, ARK investors. They don't understand technology. They don't understand financial markets. They don't understand valuation. And, you know, I heard this, some, some guy, this is that quote, I heard some guy named George Noble, right? So he's donkey on me. And then he tries to be clever. He goes, and because of that, I'm going long at ARK. It was like, I don't know, 49, 50 bucks the other day. So look, I'm not Stan Druckermiller. I'm not George Soros. But anybody who knows anything about markets, I've been around for four decades. He used to run the number one fund. Like, Jesus fucking Christ. It's one of these dumb fuck millennials. Like, who's George Noble? Like, I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm not so vain that I'm offended, but any of that. So I didn't want to I didn't want to degenerate into a food fight. So I tried to, you know, gen gentleman like fashion. It was kind of funny actually. I said, you know, some guy named George Noble, you know, who used to run the number one fund in the country in '85 and ran the number one fund country for, for six years. And then I, I tweeted out uh, the advertisement from Fidelity in the late '80s. You know, some guy named George Noble. It was a some guy, some guy, some guy, just just flaunting my credentials. And then at the end, I put some guy dot 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 in his name. And he didn't answer me. But show you what a, what, a, what, a, what a bad actor this character is, I believe. I, he, look, he can still redeem himself. I hope he comes in this room. But I have bent over backwards to try to take the high road. So he sends me a direct message. He's saying, hey, you know, no hard feelings, yada, yada. What's the name of the charity? You know, send me a link. I'm like, okay. You know, I, I, the insults can go like what off my back. I got no problem with that. So I sent him the link three days ago. He still hasn't given made a contribution. Then there was another uh, tweet. I can't remember what he did. He sent another tweet. He was like doubling down on Arc. I mean, Arc. Arc. I think it was forty nine fifty. He said it like forty six and changes out. I think, it, I think it closed below that the other day. But the point is, the reason I tell you the story is for a couple of reasons. One, he is symptomatic of the sentiment that is going on. I mean, someone mentioned in just a few minutes that maybe it was you shrugged that Kathy had inflows, you know, 300 million, whatever. I mean, more than that over the course of the last few weeks. These are things you don't see at the bottom. And so he, he's, it's indicative of the sentiment. It's also indicative of an investor class. I think this guy's he's not over 40 or 45. They have no sense of financial history. The amount of financial illiteracy out there is staggering. You know, one's entitled to their own opinions and not entitled to their own facts. And anyone who looks like a Michael Belkin's work, his liquidity work, and, you know, like Y2K that pumped all the money into the system, and then the world didn't blow up, and then they took the money out, and all the money ran out, and the valuations collapsed down 80%, blah, 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 blah. It's like, how can you have a fucking opinion about the market now when you haven't studied history? And so, you know, look, I could be right, I could be wrong. That's not the point. The point is, and I've, I've, I've said this once, I've said it a million times, I said earlier in this session today, I'm not young enough to know everything. And Shrub, you've gotten run over enough times. I've gotten run over enough times. The market teaches us. 
And people who just blithely assume they fucking know everything because the company's earnings are going up, forgetting about the fact that multiples expand, contract, expand, contract, for a lot of reasons that we don't know, we can't anticipate, we can't understand, but just having the ability to say, you know what, I don't know. I don't know. Focus on the what, not the why, because you're never going to know the why. You know, oftentimes the why isn't revealed till afterwards. Like right now, it would seem that, as Michael K has been talking about, the why is inflation's out of control, the Fed's raising rates, draining liquidity, bond rates are going up, credit spreads are rising, the economy's slowing, okay? That would seem to be the why. Well, we shall see if that's true or not. I don't know. But to just say, well, you know what? I'm not going to pay any attention to macro because I don't understand it. I can't predict it. Good luck with that strategy. Shrub, you got a pushback on that? Or Michael? I think people haven't spent uh, time to educate themselves, and that's why these spaces are very valuable. Uh, and I think the benefit of you know Twitter and uh, you know your spaces and other people who contribute is that the product has no agenda and that's quite important so you know our agenda is you know make money protect protect ourselves whereas you know a lot of professionals and uh, young guys um, are blindsided by Wall Street research and uh, also research that has another agenda and that's quite important um, and you know what I, what I'm actually very very puzzled is you know, I've been tweeting out about a lot of things for the last six months. Um, I I haven't, I, th I think I had like two fund managers reach out to me, um, you know, two growth guys reach out to me and just ask my opinion about oil and metals and mining. You know, the, the others I've tried, I mean, no one was engaging. Um, so you have something that's affecting the whole market and no one really wants to, wants to educate themselves, which, which is really just like, you know, it's intellectual snobbery. That's what I'm going to call it, I think, intellectual snobbery. Because, you know, you and I are generalists. I mean, I've lost money in pretty much every sector and every asset class in the world. But I've picked up something from every sector and every asset class in the world, and I can put it together. Whereas a lot of these guys, like you have Kathy. I mean, Kathy coming out and saying that oil is going to go 20 or 15, that's intellectual snobbery. Kathy, have you sat down to do any work? Or do you just pull it out of your hat? So a lot of these guys, they're having the same thing. Like uh, another guy, like a friend of mine, you know, tweeted the same thing, that oil is going to be in a deflation at $60 in 12 months. And he's a growth guy. Like, dude, come on, show me your work. How did you get to this conclusion? Because what I'm trying to do now, I'm actually trying to see why Teladoc is down 70%. So I'm actually trying to justify whether I should own your stock. So you should try and justify why I'm long oil when it's at 110. But they don't do this work because they're lazy Maybe they're fat in the sense, you know, in the monetary sense, you know, they're fat in the monetary sense. Or they basically are just doing it for, you know, the management fees and they don't give a shit. Whereas, you know, I mean, some of us are doing it because we love what we do. Um, and that's a big driver. You know, that's the kind of people I want to hang out with. I want to hang out with the guys that love what they're doing and have an intellectual curiosity, not the guys that are just doing this for a management fee and the guys that are trying to build a business around their management fee. Say, so, Shrub, we've never met. We've become pen pals like... Do I have to come to Greece this summer to find you? Or are you going to come to New York? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I'm going to be in Monaco uh, for the next while. I'm going to be in Cyprus, but we should definitely meet up. <laughs> All right. If you if you give me the excuse, I can get my girlfriend to come. I'm, I'm sure she'll come dragging and, and screaming. But we, we we definitely have to. You know, what we should do. We could do it. You can do a Twitter space together live. That'd be a, that'd be a hoot. Um, all right. Let's let's move on. So we got some really smart cookies here. We're going to do Adam, and then we're going to do. 
uh, Omakasia, and then we're going to do Bob Klein. Uh, Adam, welcome. What's up, man? Okay, guys. Uh, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay. Um, so I'm coming to you from Florida. I've got COVID. Everyone in my family sitting here in COVID. So, uh, you know, uh, if, you, if, I, if you need me to speak up, I'll speak up. But uh, just uh, you guys are very passionate. I love that. <clears throat> you know, I, uh, I'm not a value guy. I'm not a growth guy. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have an, I don't have a position on the macro one way or the other. I'm just trying to learn. Um, but my question is, is kind of for Michael. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm trying to compare me personally. I'm trying to compare this macro situation to macro situations in the past. I was born in 84. I wasn't even alive in the seventies and the eighties. So everything that I've read, you know, everything I know about it, I've, I've read from a textbook or heard on the news or, or what have you. But, um, you know, I'm, you know, when Paul Tudor Jones goes on television and says, you know, you can't own anything except for crypto because of inflation and rates, you know, I'm trying to kind of me put together the economic conditions around inflation and rates today versus then. And so, you know, when, when I, at least again, from a book, from what I read and what I see in the news, you know, in the seventies, you know, you had lots of cars being sold, you had an energy crisis, you know, supply and demand. And, uh, you know, you had, you had, you know, this wage thing and inflation was for a long time. It wasn't like you just one bad inflation rate out, you know, inflation very bad for a long time. And then when you compare that till today, you know, you have shortage of energy as a function of Ukraine, you have supply chain, which was COVID and now China and COVID. Um, and then you also over the fact that we just put a ton of money into the thing to, to kind of keep, you know, keep COVID, you know, for keep everybody having money in their bank accounts, you know, to keep the economy going during COVID. And so, you know, for me, I, I look at the data, you know, I, here in Florida, you know, minimum wage has basically doubled over 22 years. So on an on an inflation adjusted basis, it, it really isn't that high. Um, you know, and then I look at all the different release valves, Ukraine, China, COVID. I mean, is is it possible that this one inflation readout was just, you know, a catch up? I mean, is it is it fair to assume that, you know, inflation is going to be eight, nine, 10 percent forever? And, you know, obviously, you know, you have this bodies to bits where you have software coming in and, you know, reducing uh, labor inflation because, pe you know, bodies can get, you know, we have some investments in that space where you can replace labor uh, with, with software that you didn't have in the 70s. I mean, it seems like there's a bunch of release valves. I mean, how do you <clears throat> how do you think about, you know, you know, one or two or three inflation readouts? You know, and I, I again, I don't have a view on the economy per se. I'm, I'm really just trying to you don't understand this relationship between inflation and rates. I mean, don't you feel like we have more release valves today than we did in the 70s? I mean, is it just a foregone conclusion we're going to have 10% inflation for the next, you know, five years? I mean, how do you kind of compare those two you know, environments? Because that's that's the environment to me that everybody's kind of trying to analog to. Michael K. Yeah. Quick um, you, man. Sure. Uh, you know, I don't love the whole analog thing. Uh, everyone's like, oh, is this the 60s, or the 20s, or the 60s? No, it's it's 2022. It's, it's, that's what, that's what year it is. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I like the mosaic approach. I think you can pull bits from every cycle and I think one should, uh, at the same time, I would also say, and I say this to clients all the time, yeah, you know, every cycle's a little different. Some are a lot different. Every cycle has got exogenous, uh, influences and, and idiosyncrasies, but there are more commonalities across cycles than there are idiosyncrasies. So doesn't mean you just throw out the playbook uh, because of those exogenous factors or just take one episode and say, well, this is how I want to trade this because it's exactly like that. So, you know, macro, macro uh, 
the world is not the same as it is today. The index is not the same. There's a lot of things that are different. Um, and, and here's the scary thing. What got us out of that period of the 70s was not only cracking inflation, but also creating, you know, the next 35 year global debt bubble, which doesn't seem likely to follow this uh, event. And that was the biggest release valve uh, after the 70s. So and I think you got to look, you know, again, take a mosaic approach, take a little bit from take a little bit from a lot. Um, when you go back to the 70s, when inflation peaked and, and you also that that simultaneously happened with a bottom in the economy. Uh, and so when you go back in the 70s, you look at the stock market, inflation peaks, the market bottoms big time. But it was also the exact bottom in the economy and all those examples as well. So I wouldn't look at inflation peaking today, starting the next new bull market, uh, or at least temporarily. Uh, again, I think it's good news if, if it gets better, not worse, but it's not going to bail us out here. So I don't, I don't know if I answered your question. I, I wasn't quite sure exactly. Yeah, sorry. I mean, maybe I wasn't clear. Like, I don't really, I guess what I'm trying to say here is Paul, you know, you, Paul Tudor Jones basically said he yeah. can't own anything, right? He said he can't own anything except for crypto. And you can't, you know, like, look, I don't have a view. Like, I'm an owner of assets. I own the largest consolidator of strip clubs. None of my businesses are cyclical. At least they try make them as least cyclical as possible. What I'm trying to solve for is, are we going to have a repricing of all assets such that everything's down 50%? Like, I'm totally fine owning strip clubs through a recession, um, you know, fire safety and sprinklers and restaurant software. Like, they all individually have a lens such that they can grow secularly or, or behave through a recession. What I'm trying to solve for is, you know, are all assets going to go down by 50% because, you know, we're, we're going to live in a world where, you know, you know, the average stock trades at six times earnings. And, you know, in order for that to happen, you know, you're going to have to have rates at, you know, 15% or something like that. So I'm, what I'm trying to solve for is, you know, how, how, what is your level of conviction or like, I'm just trying to figure out like, what is the probability of that? Because I'm, I am trying to compare the two situations. I, I, you know, all, obviously all the, the, the conditions are not the same. I'm here. Like it feels very consensus that like we're definitely going to have inflation of 10% for seven years and rates being 15%. So I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, how can we kind of think about that? Yeah, I think we've got way too much debt. Yeah. I don't, this is, this kind of gets into a large, large, I don't, I don't know if consensus is that rate inflation is going to stay at 10% for the next 10 years. No one's got a clue, you know, where inflation is going to be in a year from now um, to, to George's point. So, uh, and, and if anything, w what investors tend to do is just extrapolate the near term over the next five, 10 years, which makes no sense whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I, I still, you know, I believe this is going to be a real ugly slowdown. It's going to bring a lot of prices down as the global economy slow. Eventually, central banks will pivot. You know, I still think you'll see uh, rate cuts at some point next year. Because growth is going to be so bad, you know, the, the more rates go up and oil goes up today, the worse the downturn, the lower the bottom is going to be. And the more the deeper the bottom is going to be, the more likely everything kind of flips back and rates can go down a lot. Uh, not, I don't think it's going to happen this year. I think it's more likely to happen next year uh, or maybe it's earlier, you know, right. Um, who, who was talking about that? Um, Michael Belkin, right. Talking about a huge reversal uh in, in into bonds uh, i i agree i think it's going to happen a little later though but is this going to is this going to break you know the, the world's a lot more flexible today you know you also had massive inventory cycles you didn't have just-in-time inventory globalization 
you know, so there, there are a lot of structural changes today that I think will prevent a long period of stagflation. Because I think it, either because debt's too high and it's just going to crash the economy if rates keep going up. And, you know, we're starting to see that play through the different sectors of the economy, starting with housing. Uh, so you know, I wouldn't bet this being persistent beyond this cycle. Yeah, we'll I mean, see what happens next cycle. But the, the the two things that that stick out to me, and then I'll get off, is the two fundamental differences. Again, I was born in 1984. I didn't live through this, but you know, I from what I've read and from people I've talked to, the two fundamental differences that we see between then and now is 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 energy and labor and you know energy to us you know there's a lot of it the u.s has shown their willingness to drill the saudis you know all the rest i mean look this this energy thing i think at some point you know biden's going to open up the pipeline they're going to they're going to drill more and you know it's going to be turned to a job thing and so I, I don't worry about energy that much you know longer term and then also just evs cars you know people we're going to evs lamborghini selling evs i think you're going to have a structural thing on the automotive side. I mean, I don't know if it's one year, two year, but like 10 years, I think we're all going to be electric. And I think that's going to be a huge tailwind on energy. And then on the labor side, right? Like, you know, I think the unemployment numbers are kind of fake because you have all these guys in the gig economy. And so I think this bodies to bits, right? I mean, we, we look at a lot of these software companies. I mean, you know, we own a restaurant software you know, will allow you to pull out at least one, you know, restaurant worker and do the exact same thing. And so, you know, I think that to me seems a governor on, on, on wages, right. You know, this kind of trend to less people using software. And so, you know, I, I you know, when I look at the seventies and eighties, again, from a book, it feels like you have less structural tailwinds on the, on the, you know, kind of commodity side and on the labor side. It doesn't mean that can't be bad for some period of time. It just, the market tends to look forward. And so when you DCF, you know, kind of the, the ability to, you know, augment energy prices and, and labor, it, it feels like it, it, you know, there's, there's release valves. You know, the, yeah. yeah. So, and, and, so, so if, if I could, let me say, so respectfully, I think one place where I have a very high conviction opposite view from yourself is the energy picture. Uh, you said, and I quote, it's also to do with Russia. No, it doesn't. Oil prices were going up handsomely well before Russia. We were over $100 before Russia. Um, excess, excess production capacity uh, is, is, is collapsing. It's below 3 million barrels. I believe the narrative before the end of the year, and Adam, I really urge you to come into some of the energy rooms. You, you might find it quite interesting. Well, the world's going to be out of excess production capacity before the end of the year. That's going to be the story. And the problem is there are enormous <clears throat> leads and legs between production, you know, if you are, I want to start drill a hole or something like that, but between the time it takes to get permissioning and the well comes out of the ground, um, it's years. And so I think we are marching full speed into a full-blown energy crisis. That's my opinion. Uh, it's also shared by a lot of people that frequent these problems. So I would say the fulcrum point, a lot of your argument, I mean, energy is perhaps the most important um uh, and, and therefore, depending on how you answer that question, one's going to reach a very different conclusion. So I would just say, and, and before I stop, I want Shrub to maybe speak on that as well, because I think he has a similar view. Uh, also, your point on electric cars uh, really misses the point. If you look at the numbers, um, you know, if you actually spend some time, if you've done the work, as Shrub was saying, the number of internal combustion engine vehicles is going to go up, is going to go up. For probably the next 12 years, because even if you were to magically wait, because there's roughly, I think I was 80 or 90 million 
uh, cars a year, uh, sold, sold each year. It's order of magnitude, administered actually not precision. The global fleet's, I think, a billion, one, a billion, two, something like that. I can't remember. And so even if you were to say, okay, well, you know, give give electric vehicles 20% market share, 30% market share, 40% market share. The fact is, if you can use a calculator, is the number of internal combustion engine cars on the road is going to continue to increase. And so this idea that energy demand, and then forget about developer costs, not even developer economies. Develop, energy demand developer economies have been flat in Europe and the U.S. for like a zillion years now. The issue is the per capita consumption of energy in places like China, India, all the emerging markets. It's a fraction of what we have right now. That's where all the incremental growth is coming from, and demand is going to be up and to the right. So you put all that together, you know, who knows what the oil price is going to do? That's a fool's errand. Look, we get a recession, depression. Of course, the oil price can go down. I mean, it went freaking negative in the second quarter of 20. But if you look at, and again, you know, have you done the work? If you look at changes in inventories and correlate that with changes in prices and inverse correlation, that's a fact, not an opinion, all right? And you've seen an all-time record decline in oil inventories the last two years, over 750 million barrels. And so we are heading full-blown into an energy crisis. I don't know, Shrub, do you want to add anything to that, Shrub? Yeah, I, I think um, here is where the Russian thing acts a bit like COVID acted for some of the work-from-home stocks, pay, uh, maybe. So we were underinvested by about a trillion dollars before, before COVID. Um, so there was a $1 trillion underinvestment in the oil and gas industry. So the industry produces uh, 100 million barrels a day. Demand is it for 100, roughly. Let's put it this way. You're right. There's like 90 million cars a year. Uh, so demand is structurally going up. But there's also other uses of oil um, that uh, they're not going down. Plastics, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, if you take Russia, is that's 2 million barrels a day that could be out of the market by the end of May. So take a 2% hit on supply. And then the demand side... Um, you're starting, you're entering driving season in the U.S. So, you know, just very short term, um, you're going to have a squeeze. So I think, I think we're going to see 120 oil uh, <laughs> within a month. But even more so structurally, here's, here's the key thing to talk about structurally. Two things. The Russia thing could be a blip, right? But this is supply. And I, I've been t- speaking to experts all day yesterday on this thing. People that actually have invested in those fields. Um, some of these fields are very, very difficult, and they need the expertise of the Halliburtons and the Schumbergers, and they're out of the country. They're very remote, technologically difficult, and also the demand for them uh, is out of the picture because that demand was heading to Europe. And uh, with the European sanctions, those barrels can't make their way to China uh, or India because of their geographic positioning. So... Uh, a lot of these wells have to be shut in. And once you shut in those wells, it takes months, if not years, to restart. And that, that I've confirmed with, uh, uh, with experts. So we're not talking about a 2 million barrel you can just turn on and off. We're talking about 2 million barrels that could be could be out of the market for, for a bit longer. Um, and, when you, and then you know, one of the experts who was there, in the, uh, this guy I was speaking to yesterday, uh, he was there in the 90s. He predicts five million barrels at five million barrels a day, uh, which is exactly how much was lost during the Soviet Union collapse. So there's a precedent in the in the in the Soviet Union collapse. They were producing 10 million barrels. And then on the collapse, they went down to five for all these reasons put together. And they couldn't get back to five for a very back to 10 for a very long time. So if you have a two million two million hit in production, 
Think about it this way. China is in lockdown. Russia is down 1 million so far, not even. And we could be heading to Russia, China out of lockdown, U.S. driving season, and Russian production down 2 million barrels. And this guy's telling me also five. So if you put all that together, you have like a structural, uh, structurally higher uh, oil prices, not for like two months. It could be like longer. Um, even with a recession, which is which is actually very worrying because it's going to make the recession deeper. <laughs> but I have one question left on energy. Have you guys done the work on the you know the average age of the vehicle is like ten, eleven, twelve years. So as you take out an old vehicle and put in a new vehicle, like how does that you know the fuel efficiency itself doesn't that have less drag on oil? I know you're making more cars, but no, you're Adam, making more. Co- no, Adam, Adam, I can answer it, and I would urge you with respect. Um, if you're in a learning mode, um, there are some just beneath you, two people down. There's Sohaib. He's part of the Canadian oil mafia. There are um, it's a bunch of guys who are devoted to Canadian energy equities. And they're all in these rooms. And a lot of the questions are, I mean, I'm glad you're asking your queries and you're asking the question. But trust me on this one. The questions you're asking are like so elementary. I mean, if you just spent any time in these rooms, I could I could tell you, go to look at Shabam. He's at White Tundra. I mean, these are these are elementary questions you're asking. I'm glad you're curious, but like, this is not even a debate. This is just not even a debate. And so, and, and you know, Sohave and all the guys in Kennedy Oil Mafia, they talk a lot about energy ignorance. Okay, I'm sorry to say this, but you really need to educate yourself. Look, it's not even a question. It's not even a question. If you want to read and spend the time, if you want to do the work, I'm happy to show you where to look. If on the other hand, you know, you just do not don't want to do the work, then there's there's just no point debating this because these are truths we hold to be self-evident. So I don't know. I, I really don't even want to answer that question because it's a waste of time in the room, quite frankly. Thanks for your question. Um, let's move on. Um, we're going to go to Omakasia, followed by Bob Klein, followed by Bobby Justice, followed by John Roke. Omakasia, good to hear uh, you. <clears throat> hey, George, how's it going? It's good to hear your voice. Good uh, man. What's uh, up? What's up? So yeah, so I, I have kind of a, a question, partially a question and partially a statement, which is that, you know, so I'm I'm one of those millennials, right? And for me, looking at overall like wider market conditions, I I feel I, I look at it and I go, I don't I have no frame of reference for what I understand historically, right? So I'm looking at everything, I go like, well. I'm looking at this and we could go a lot, a lot lower, but my only frame of reference for most of my adult life is like subprime mortgage lending crisis and everything just go up the whole time I've been an adult. Like everything I've purchased, every investment I've made has basically just gone up continuously since I've been an adult. So like how functionally in these conditions we're experiencing, like how, how bloody can it really get given that we're just like at these ridiculous, uh, everything's trading at ridiculous multiples. Like how, how, how much of a halt can the economy functionally grind to? Like, are, are we looking at like, are we looking at like all of a sudden we're, you know, we're reset to, early 90s levels or like early 70s levels in the market because like i think my generation is is woefully unprepared for the types of contraction that can actually 
occur on like a larger global scale. So that's kind of my question. I mean, like, let, me, <laughs> let me take a shot of that, and then I'm going to defer to Michael and Shrub and actually John Roke or Bobby J. Any any of the speakers on stage want to answer that? Because look, anything's possible. But what people forget, and I think your question, I don't have I don't have the answer. But I'm going to give you a framework for the for answering the question. Everyone's going to answer it their own way. One of the things that I miscalculated on, one of the many mistakes I've made is I never quite appreciated just how much asset prices will become a target of central bank's affection in trying to drive the economy forward, given that fiscal policy was relatively restrained. And they all thought, well, you know, the wealth effect, yada, yada, you push up asset prices, trickle down, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And as long as disinflation or deflation was on the cards, they could get away with that. And so more than ever, I mean, it's always true to an extent, but more than ever, stock prices cease to be a barometer of real value and more just a function of how much fucking money they're pushing in the system. And so, and then what happened, they did it for so long, the problem that then ensues is you start to think this is normal and you get anchored on that. And we've been through this sort of Frankenstein type of a stock market, which is just, you know, Number go up, bro. And now I know who it is. Idea, you dude, look at your DM. I didn't know who it was at first. Now I know who it is. Now you know who it is, right? I, yeah, I know who this you're is. Like, this guy, you're like, you're like this guy. Who is this guy, dude? So good, to, so good to talk to you. Yeah, so good. good, so it's good, good, bro. I'm here. I saw that you had bro, a room. I was like, bro, bro, don't you, off this, like, don't you dare get off this fucking stage. You're my new. Best I won't. Friend. I won't. I promise. Okay. I'll stay here. I got a few hours. So, so. You know, it was bugging me. Like, you know, for everybody else in the room, you know when you, you like you hear someone's voice or you see someone and it's like, who is that person? And it just bugs the shit out of you. So I honestly didn't know who he was. But then I listened to him, I listened to him, I listened to him, and then it finally came to me with that crazy laugh of his. At any rate, uh, by the way, I'm not going to give you up. You're in the Federal Witness Protection Program. Exactly, right. So the question becomes, the question becomes, how bad could it get? Well, I'm going to take you back to 1974. And I'm not suggesting it's going to go there, but just to show like, we're at we're at one end of the playing field, just to show you what it looks like down in the other end zone. You know, Peter Lynch always talks about how Taco Bell was like one of the best stocks he ever bought. It was like a 40, went up 40 times, 100 times, whatever it was. He talks about buying Taco Bell in one times earnings. One times earnings. So all these people who say, oh, you know, something's cheap because it's on a 20 PE down from a 25 PE. Forget about the fact they're over-earning. Forget about the fact earnings are going to collapse. Michael Cantwitz, please call your office or have a recession. Like, try a little valuation compression on for size and see what happens. And remind the Richard Russell quote, which which John Roke is going to talk about. And in fact, Bob Klein and Bob Justice, if you don't mind, I'm going to grab Roke to get him up here because I want to keep the rhythm of this thing going. You know, Roke, always, Roke quoted, invoked his inner, inner, inner uh, uh, Richard Russell the other day. And the line was something to affect, you know, in the in a bull market, the hardest thing to do is to stay fully invested. In the bear market, the hardest thing to do is to stay out. Because you're all anchored on where the price used to be, where the PE used to be, where the earnings were before you went into recession. And that's the trick. That's the trick that keeps you in the pool and sucks you in. And then you're down, and you say, oh, I can't sell it down here. It's down too much. Okay, well, that brings me to the definition of oversold which comes from Frank Teixeira, formerly of uh, Wellington or Vanguard. What's the definition of oversold? Oh, the stock went down too much. I forgot to sell it. Or overbought. Oh, it went up too much. I can't buy it now. All right? Like, Mr. Market doesn't know and doesn't care what your cost basis is, okay? If I'm going to buy Shopify, or if I'm looking at Shopify, or, you know, the, the idea that Shopify is at 380, or the hell it is right now, 
you know, the idea that, oh, well, I could buy it here because it's, it's down from 1200. Oh, you know, that's great. It's gone down 70%. Oh, I should buy it here. You know, Nigerian brothers, please call your office. You know, that's that, that those are guys that they know the price of everything, the value of nothing or, or some bag holder, you know, who bought it at 1200. It's now 380. Oh, I can't sell it. I got a loss wrong. As Peter Lynch would always say, Mr. Market doesn't know and doesn't care about your cost basis. So to your question, so to your question, my good friend, um, you know, am I saying, you know, Shopify is going to one times earnings? No, I'm not. But am I saying that everyone in the market's got participant bias because of what's happened the last few years? And the more inflation hangs around, the more interest rates have to go up. And by the way, I've been consistently taking the over on rates, the dollar and oil the last few months, and I'm still there. I think rates are going to go up a lot more than people imagine. I'm happy to talk about it later. As rates go up, and to Cantro's point, you got to think about the thing that's causing prices to go down. It's rates. And forget about rates going up. The stock market hasn't even fully absorbed how much rates have gone up. So, you know, my friend, I, I, I think you kind of remind me of my grandfather. He used to tell me, don't ask a question you already know the answer to. All right. But so I think people got to be prepared, eyes wide open uh, for what could possibly happen. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it, yeah, it does. And, and I think, I mean, you you posted something a while ago. You, you posted like a someone's guide to investing and one of one of the great ones that that has that stuck with me is never add to a losing position yeah <laughs> that's dennis garman hey shrub did you have another you want to yeah you know that it brings back memories because you were saying that about the one times p and it just brought back sweet memories on all the trades that i had high conviction that i lost money on <laughs> so so for example i lost money buying something that was trading cash ended up trading like 80 cents to the cash and i think now it's probably trading at 60 cents to the cash um so people or you know the biotech space i was looking at a chart um so the xbi index um 20 of the constituents are trading below their cash balance right now yeah Doesn't but bro, matter. Bro, it, it, bro, it was bro, yeah they're burning bro, it they're bro. burning it <laughs> hey, hey bro bro you don't understand it's below cash hey bro it's a good story exactly bro, the chart's bottom hey bro <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, imagine you're like 30 years old, which I was, you know, you buy it and then they burn it. Or, you know, just one stock that I actually, I lost money on this stock last year. It was a Chinese stock that was making money, had $25 in cash and it was trading at 18 and now you can buy it for 14. You know, I, I got out because of China, but when, you know, when geopolitics changed, but, you know, when people say it can't go lower, it's like, <laughs> exactly, bro, I've lost money buying things that, uh, 80 cents to their cash balance and 60 cents to their cash balance. Bro, all right. Okay, <laughs> okay so, 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 so let, let, I want to talk to God, bro. Hey, God, bro, a.k.a. Cantro. You got any opinions on this, Cantro? Uh, was it the question about how bad this can get? Yeah. Um, well, that, uh, you know, the, the problem with forecasting in a downturn is that every downturn, you know, I, I think I know John Roke's shown this chart, you know, Yields will go up until something breaks, and you can never really model the impact of when something breaks because there's no history of that. So, kind of, it's not in your empirical data. But you know, I know he was uh, he put out some numbers. You know, so well, a simple exercise to think about it. Right now, the earnings estimate for the S and P 500 for 2023 is 251 dollars. And this again, so that's the expected number of full year earnings in 2023. At the end of the year, whatever that number is, 
slap on a multiple, that's your year end target. So if we use, let's just pretend that number stays in there, which it's going to go a lot lower and it hasn't gotten lower yet, but it will. But let's just say if we put 251 and we slap on an 18 where the multiple is in the market right now, roughly, at best, your upside is 4,500. All right. But that's assuming that there's no slowdown in any data for the rest of this year <laughs> and that no one's going to revise earnings lower. So if you instead, let's say earnings are going to be earnings are going to be expected to actually be flat. So that number comes down by about 10 percent. Uh, and so if we take 225 times 18, you're about 4000, 4050. But if those earnings numbers go from 251 expected earnings over the next nine months or six, seven months, go down by 10 percent, there's no way in hell the multiple isn't going lower as well. So it wouldn't be fair to put an 18 on that. So let's put a 16 on that. So 16 times 225, 3,600. I think that was a num that was a number pretty close to what John Roke was talking about from his uh, frame, from his perspective, the way he does things. So I would say as a base case for a soft landing or maybe something, you know, not a recession, that's your, that's, that's something I think that's a fair value low, whatever you want to call it. But anything breaks, who knows what the downside is because, again, you can't model it. Yeah, Michael, Michael, just stay there for one second. So um, so we're not going to invoke the, the other Michael who hasn't entered this conversation, um, Michael Howe. And he's been big on the liquidity thing. And, you know, he's, you, you all follow him. He's one of the smart guys that comes around here. And he was making the call that, you know, I think just with the garden variety recession, he was thinking the market's like 15 to 20% downside from here. Yep. And then if something breaks, it could be like down 30% or something like that. So again, we're, it's min max problem. No one's making a single point prediction, but when you look at the, let's just talk about the valuation of the market. Now, when you start getting into all that, you know, equity risk premium bullshit, considering that the risk free rates gone up and blah, 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 blah. Your credit rates start widening out and growth is decelerating. I mean, hallucinate for a little bit about where the market multiple could, could go to, please. Well, that, it's again, you know, I, I don't, you know, I think the way we address valuation is very different from most of the street. I, I don't, I don't believe in the whole concept of fair value. Again, it's a lot of garbage in, garbage out. You do regressions on interest rates and credit spreads with the S&Ps multiple over time. And the reason that doesn't work um, and no, no models work, whether it's rule of 20 or the Fed, uh, the, um, Right, the the bond yield and the, the the Fed model, the Fed rule, whatever, they're all junk because, at the end of the day, the market again, the constituents change over time, macro sensitivities change over time. So the way something acted 30 years ago to higher oil is not necessarily going to have the same multiplier today, uh, and same thing for rates and credit spreads. So I, I think it's a waste of time to try to you know it, it, mathematically right, right, give right, you right, some Mike, idea. Mike, but Mike, 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 I get it, I get it. So let me do it another well, way. No, no, hold on. Hold on, yeah. hold on. Let me do it another way. Let me do it another way. Yeah. As you know, I've been on the interest rate bandwagon, all right? And I can yeah. get the reasons why I think rates are going a lot higher. And then and, and the long and short of it is private sector balance sheets so far are in pretty decent shape. You look at to debt service ratios, that sort of thing. It all looks pretty good. Corporate balance sheets all pretty good. Now, obviously, you know, there are signs of stress starting to emerge. And Bobby Jay is going to talk in a couple of minutes on that. We are going to have a housing problem at some point, as uh, was was mentioned earlier by by yourself or Shrub. Yeah, the credit card numbers are exploding, but that's because people are having to pay more just for the expensive things. 
you know, real consumption is actually falling, yada, yada, yada. But let's sequence this thing. Like, that's not now. That may be six months from now. And so if you just say, what's the driver of the market right now? It's higher rates. And the debt problem, for the most part, is not on the private sector balance sheet. It's on the public sector balance sheet. The public sector deficit's the private sector surplus. And therefore, you know, if the private sector was as leveraged now as it was in the past cycle, perhaps we would, something would have broken already. And that's John Roke's chart. And John, you're going to be up here in a second. I've never seen a macro chart get as many likes and retweets as Roke's. I think, Roke, you broke the internet with that, okay? Uh, and then we'll, maybe someone can throw it up throw it up in the nest, showing the, the, the lower lows and lower highs on yields over decades. Well, now, and I asked John this a question at the CMT conference the other day. I said, look, if I look at that chart, it looks to me like we've broken out on yields. And whether we have or we haven't, he suggested I get a new pair of glasses. Maybe we're not quite there yet. But I suspect that maybe John will have changed his tune since – we and I were together last week. It was 290. I think that the 10-year went at 310. The point of all that is, is, you know, if rates, to, to your point, what's the macro driver? Let's just have a thought experiment. Let's just say that the inflation numbers don't really come down very much. Or let's just say, and I was talking to the great Larry Gentile yesterday, he's the guy, he was in print like a month or two ago, saying inflation is going to cycle up to 14, 15% over the summer. And he's not a crazy I said, Larry, do you really mean that? You're just trying to get some headlines. He goes, well, a little bit of both. But just for the record, to remind everybody, the CPI number of five, of, of, which shows a 5%, which shows as a 30% weighting in owner's equivalent rent, showed only a 5% increase for the last 12 months in owner's equivalent rent. When in reality, that number is 25%. So talk about the lie in the statistics. The real inflation number we know is much higher. It's probably 13 14%. So you have a couple things going on here in the short run. Okay, you have the base effects. Maybe energy will start to roll over a little bit. However, if Shrub is right, and I think he is, you're going to see higher oil prices in the months to come. Uh, food prices, I think, are going up. That's a slam dunk. There's no question. Then you have all the know-nothings who watch CNBC and think the CPI problem is all about the, the Russia invasion and its used car prices. Well, guess what? If you look at the car guru's data, not the Mannheim, used car prices are going up again. All right? So... There, so the idea that, that inflation is done and dusted, at least even in the CPI numbers, I'm not even sure I believe that. Because the crowd that's telling us that is the same crowd that was saying it was transitory. But, anyway, but I digress. The point is, the point is, if rates to your, to, I had to codify this, okay, could give context to your question. So, Michael, let's just say for $50 in double jeopardy, all right, you know, the 10 years at 350 a month from now, which is nothing compared to what's been happening so far. Entirely plausible, Okay. What say you to, uh, you know, all things vehicles? That's the driver on the valuation. You know, all things vehicles, we, we, we take a 10-year from 310 to 350 or the direction of rates of that driver still up. What does that do to your valuation model, Michael? Uh, well, it means the risks have accelerated, so it, it accelerates it down. Again, you know, we, I don't think we even need to use math to figure this out or even if you try to use math pretending that's going to give you any kind of confidence. Uh the higher rates go, right? It's not linear. So the higher rates go at this point, it's not just the 10 year going up, right? Now it's going to start to carry. Are we going to get 75 basis points? Are we going to get 100 bips in one tightening? Plus, as we go forward, the economy and earnings, again, what we've been talking about, is just going to get weaker and weaker. So, you know, you the worst case scenario is in six months from now, if rates haven't come down, and I'm assuming in six months from now, Global PMIs all over the world are probably at or below 50, which means that the outlook for earnings has collapsed. 
then you're, you know, how do you compound higher rates and recession fears simultaneously? And, and again, there's no, there's no empirical how, how, you know, you have to go back to the 70s. The only time that really happened where you had rates rising this deep into a slowdown. So you couldn't really calculate it with any confidence, but we all know the answer is a lot lower. How low? Who, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't be long anything. Again, Michael, I think the one thing we all can agree on, we can't quantify that. We're just trying to develop a framework, help everybody in the room yep. think about it. Stocks represent return-free risk, period. It's like virtually no upside, even you using your napkin math, and unquantifiable downside. So, like, why would you own a – not you because you're in print. I'm not putting words in your mouth. You've got compliance issues. But, like, where I sit, I can say whatever I want. Like, why the hell would you own that? It, to me, it's it's not a, it's a rhetorical – it's a literal question for the room, a rhetorical question for you, Michael. I'm not asking you to answer that. To me, it just makes no sense, absolutely no sense. John Roke, um, you've been you've been on the sidelines. You're the man. Sorry, Michael. Go ahead. You want to say something, Michael? Go ahead, Michael. Oh no, sorry. I just dropped my phone. I'll, I'll mute myself. Sorry. John Roke, are you there, my friend? Uh, hi, George. Hey, John. Always good to see you. Uh, it's been uh, it's been ages since we spoke. Yeah, like two days. Yeah. So, John, um, you were so freaking right. You've had this thing nailed. You've been, you know our theme together last week was the regime change of the CMT conference. You. Put your neck out there a few months ago, said, you know, three. Three was the number. Five, twos, five, tens. You were making the prediction based on what rates were doing in European countries that, you know, rates had already had gone above their 2018 highs, yada, yada, yada. So, John, can you give us a mark to market? And I want to know if you're raising your estimates. That's not on your target level for the S&P, but raising your estimates on bond yields. Like that, now that we've gone to the promised land, You've overachieved in the short run. I don't think even you thought yields would go, come here this fast. What's your thinking about bond markets and, and just and equities more general? Talk about whatever you want. But let's start. Let's start with bonds, John. Okay. Well, first off, I want to say it was a great pleasure to hear uh, Cantro um, talk and, and give his opinions. I was lucky to be on the a buy side for seven years, so I got to see his work regularly. Now I'm back on the sell side, and I don't. But um, not only is his work top notch, but one of the class guys in the business. So Mike, I, I'm, I hope I'm going to say something now and then I hope I can ask you two questions uh, in a minute or so. Okay. So George, thanks very much for that. So uh, George said earlier, just maybe a few minutes ago that uh, he and I had participated in a, uh, the CMT conference. And George mentioned that uh, I guess if you drew the trend line on the 10 year treasury yield, that the yield move so far has taken us above that trend line. And I said to him, you know, I guess depending on who's drawing it or if you're using a crayon or a fine point pencil, you could get there. Uh, just just because we're going to keep this true, um, the 2018 high was three spot two six and the 10 year went out yesterday at three spot one two six. So we're pretty darn close, right? We're, we're, we're 10 basis points uh, away. But I will tell you that um, I, I am uh, in George's camp now that we've gotten to my target levels of 3% that I think our rates gonna go, are going to go higher than most believe. And here's why I think so. And if this is specious, I'm sure you'll tell me. I, I've said um, while there's been a big debate as to whether the U.S. 10-year yield is above its long-term downtrend, there's no denying that the Aussie 10-year yield is above its long-term downtrend line. Now, I know this might be a little bit ridiculous for me to pull up the uh, the Aussie 10-year yield here, but there is no doubt, and Mike Kantrowitz will certainly, I believe, back me up on this, that global rates move 
in a, a homogeneous or, or, or synchronized fashion. When they're going up, they're all going up. And the 10-year yield in Australia is well above its downward sloping trend line. In fact, it's been above it um, since January. The target on the 10-year uh, yield in Australia, my target is just over 4%. Right now, it's 3.5%, 3.47. And I think it is not crazy. I know um, uh, some will laugh, but I'll say it anyway. It's not crazy if the 10-year yield in Australia got to 6.6%, which is roughly where it was in June of 2008. So if that's the case, and I don't think it's extraordinary to say that, then I think the 10-year yield in the U.S., is likely to go to 4%. Um, it's not, it should not be a surprise to all of us that if you look stop, at the chart. Stop, breaking. John, you need to repeat that. That You need to repeat that. Could you say that again, please? So it should not surprise us if the 10-year Treasury yield gets to 4%. And if anyone can look, anyone can certainly look at this chart. It's You have it as well as I do. This is not a fancy chart. It's just the 10-year with its 50, 100, and 200-day moving averages. And you could see now that the 10-year has accelerated away from those moving averages. I will remind everybody, when this happened uh, over these past several months for the two-year yield, the two-year yield never looked back. It started to accelerate above those moving averages and pull away from them in early 2022 when it was about 75 bips. And now it's 2.75 bips or thereabouts. Um, so it was overbought and got more overbought. So it would not surprise me if our rate accelerated from here. And and George, can I ask Mike Kantrowitz two questions? John, you can, you can speak as long as you want. Oh, no, no, that's not going to happen. Thanks Go very much. It. Okay, so Cantro, I have two questions for you, please. My first question is, do you find in your conversations with clients that bond market investors have, uh, you know, certainly recognized and are not unwilling to say what they've experienced or are experiencing is something akin to bond Mageddon. But do you find that equity investors are reluctant to use the phraseology bear market? And if you do, perhaps you could tell me why. Um, and number two, Mike, I'll just throw this in. Um, on your work, do you notice of late that the transports, which had held up and held in very well, are starting to weaken? I'll take take my mic off. George, thanks. Cantro, thanks. I'm going to listen to your answers. Thank you, everybody. All right. Uh, hey, John. Uh, and I, I would say equally, if not more, equally kind words about John. He's one of, you know, there's a, there's a lot of shitty people in this business. And John is, is one of the nicest, classiest guys in the business um and has taught me a lot um over the years so uh, I'm, I'm super psyched that uh he's part of this as well and i get to i get to talk to him because i don't get to talk to him anymore because now he's on the sell side so um or i don't get to talk to him as much so um super psyched to hear uh hear your voice john um i did just tweet uh because i'm sitting here in front of my i'm doing a little work too in front of my bloomberg i tweeted a chart to, to uh support what, what you were saying uh just I, I happened to have a chart of global bond yields that i remembered in my g charts in bloomberg uh and i just tweeted it um just to kind of support what john was just saying looking at global bond yields yeah they're all moving down together and they're all moving up and i guess canada's got the highest on there i think these are mostly developed um bond yields so just uh just to back up what john was saying um, okay, so two questions. Uh, yeah, I, I, 
equity investors, I'd say everyone again agrees with the slowdown fear, but what I keep hearing, the biggest pushback is it's already priced in, which I can hear you laughing, George, even though your mic is mute, mic, mic is mute, muted. Um, and when you look at positioning, <laughs> when you look at positioning, uh, and uh, George and I were talking about this earlier, if you look at AA allocation positioning for, for what it's worth, you still have 72% allocation to equities, which is just off all-time highs, whereas bond allocations have gone very, very low, down to about 12%. Uh, the lowest in at least a decade. So it kind of, again, supports what you were just saying, that uh, bond bond investors are recognizing what's going on uh, a lot faster than equity investors. Uh, and, and that's, that's I, I think we're going to see a shift, uh, whether or not bond investors still call this bond again, uh, we'll, we'll see how long yields rise. But I think uh, increasingly, recession risks are going to rise and that's going to make equity investor and equities are going to struggle. And that's going to continue. That's going to make equity investors uh, cry uncle. Um, so that's, uh, that was your second question. Your first question. Um, I've already talked too much and I forgot what well, John, can you remind me what the first question was? Sure. Mike, I, I wanted to know, please, if you noticed uh, anything in your work with respect to transport transports, we can. Yes. Yes. Thank yes. You. Okay. Um, let me, let me, um, since I have my Bloomberg, might as well play with some tools. You know, can you give me a minute and I'll, uh, let me just look at a couple of charts and maybe. I of can course. Go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, so, I'll come back so to, to John, would you please stay on stage while Cantor comes back to an answer? In a minute, meanwhile, let's go to Bob Klein and then we're going to follow Bob Klein with, um, Yukas, Yukastley. Okay. So, Hey Bob, what's up? Good to see you, man. What's going on? Hey George, I, I have an observation and a question. Um, you know, one of the things that makes your room so valuable, uh, is it, Really, this room is a battle for the heart and soul of investing. Um, as you guys know, I mean, every bubble stimulated by easy money from central banks and, uh, you know, from the 1929 uh, bubble, the 1969, 1973, 87, 2000, 2008. And this one, of course, is a doozy. It's a humdinger. Uh, in the past three years, uh, the most liquid form of money, cash checking deposits, has gone from three trillion to over seven trillion. So it's no wonder that you get investment craziness. And and so during every Fed-induced boom, the crazies in terms of money managers start making money, and the more rational, sound guys and gals don't do as well, and they lose credibility. So I love your litany at your. <laughs> Your, your, your litany of uh, past clowns, Tom Marisco, Janice, Garrett von Wagner, Ryan Jacob, Alberto Villar, Henry Blodgett. And, and, and today, of course, we got Kathy Wood, Jim Cramer, Tony Dwyer, Brian Belsky, Dan Ives, Chamas Palatapatia, Elon Musk, and John Nigerian. And uh, please remind me which clowns I'm leaving out. But these guys drown out the, the rational voices and they're making barrels of money. And as you say so well, to them, price is truth. And they they're very, you know, they're on the airways. They're very compelling. And 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 so reckless investing becomes the norm. And people think that's that's what you know, they look at Elon Musk and they think, yeah, this guy is that's that's the way to be. And and that's why I say this is a battle for the heart and soul of 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 the financial markets. And, and, and for rational investing. And it's always a seesaw. And I think we're at a turning point uh, and the, the seesaw is tilting your way. Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's guys like Stan Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones, but 
they only speak out occasionally and they're definitely sound voices of reason. But you know, what's special about you is you cut your teeth in the stock picking house, the great stock picking house of fidelity. But, but what's rare about you is you also grasp the macro issues and you can articulate them. Uh, the issues like central bank, excessive central bank liquidity and, and, and what that does, how it distorts markets, how it, uh, how it really fouls up rational investing while it goes on. And then when it stops, things, things go back to where they should and, and, and the excesses ultimately get wrung, wrung out. But um, so, so I, you know, I commend you for it. And, I, and, and you're like, a, you're not, you're not I, I think it's too much to say you're, you're bordering on becoming a national treasure, but certainly in the financial markets, you're, you're uh, emerging as, as a uh, uh, treasure and, and, and kind of helping lead the way back to sanity because it's been uh, just a, a you know, unhinged world. And as I said before, and, I, and I'll say it again, the kind of investors that you know, follow Kathy Wood, they, they seem like they're, they're on drugs. Nothing can stop them. They just buy, 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 buy. No, no, no sense of reason, Teladoc blows up all her stocks blow up and and they just just like automatons uh, come in and buy more so there, there's some problem with big problem with that and uh, uh and, and and certainly you you're a, a good antidote and i you know love the fact that you're doing these rooms and it, it's it's just a marvelous marvelous community you've created uh and and so i'm very grateful so now i have a question uh, well let me let you comment on that and then i have a question I was going to say, Bob, thank you so much for your kind words. It really means a lot to me coming from a professional like you, and none of this would be possible without folks like Cantro and Shrub and John Roke and Bobby Jay and Dr. Alhaji. I mean, just look at some of the folks that are in the room here right now. Countless people who, professionals like myself, who, you know, we want to do the right thing. One of the things I'm really troubled by, and you, you, you touched on this in your comments, I think most of us are brought up you do something because it's the right thing to do. The litmus test when you make a decision whether you should do it or not. And I don't care if you're Jewish or a good Catholic boy like Roki. You do it because it's the right thing to do. Not can I get away with it. And guys like Shamath, I can't even pronounce his last name. Guys like Shamath, Kathy Wood, they're doing it because they can get away with it. It's like, you know, we had the, probably, I think you were in there a few, few weeks ago when. You know, we had the Nuremberg trials for Kathy Wood. And put aside the theatrics. Like, you know, the problem with Kathy is she's religious. She probably actually believes what she's doing. That's the sad thing. But you take a scoundrel like Chamath or even Kramer. But the problem with Kramer is he probably believes what he's saying. Um, Zev was in the room before. I don't know if he's still here. But these interests, it's all about the fucking money. Like, how about, doing, how about doing the right? How about doing the right thing? Hey, George. Yeah, go ahead. Have you have you seen the Chamath Hodelish video? No. What did, he, what did he do? What did he do? So there, I'll see if I can get you a link. Basically, there's a video. Uh, I forget which podcast or blog it is, but it's Chamath and some of the guys talking about Solana. And oh, the, and dude. That one of the guys goes, "Hey, hey, Chamath, you're holding Solana, right?" And he just goes, "Oh, you know, 
Hodel-ish. One was like, yeah. <laughs> I, one of them was like, I made so much on Solana. He's, Chamath is like, yeah, yeah, you were trying to call me last week to get me to OTC it from you. And he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, but you got to give me that 30% discount. He's like, oh, come on. He's like, I only buy at a discount. Hodel-ish. I mean, he's just, he's just, bl- dude, blatantly, blatantly just like gloating about just dumping on plebes as exit liquidity. Just like blatantly, publicly being like, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm just dumping so, this. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm buying so, so, whole. I mean, whenever you talk like that, it makes me hysterical because, like, my mind is not capable of thinking up a shit like that. It's like you can't make up stuff like that. Like, my mind is not that fertile. But, you know, whether it's crypto, which is a complete pile of shit, but let's leave it, push that to the side. You know, look at the street. Look at the SPAC orgy. Like, seriously? Or these IPOs where they only bring 10% of the company public. There's a lockup in, in, in cause only 10% of comes public. You know, Fidelity gets a tiny allocation as does Wellington, as does, you know, T Row price or whatever. And that ensures, you know, a massive supply demand imbalance. So the thing goes limit up. And I, oh, look, oh, and then you got, you know, the idiots in CNBC breathlessly talking about, you know, first day performance of Robinhood or Coinbase or whatever the hell it is. And then they just dump shit on people's heads six months later with lockups. It's like, I don't care that that's legal. Jim Chanos, please call your office. The concept of legal fraud. If it's not illegal, it should be illegal. Or payment for order flow. Why do you think that's Citadel, why do you think Citadel pays Robinhood all that fucking money for their order flow? They are literally stealing from people. And if Ken Griffin has the fucking nerve to come in this room, which he won't. I'll call him out. I'll say it to his face. So Bob Klein, going back to your comment, you know, I, I posted out, I tweeted every once in a while that Ed Beal thing from Network, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Enough. It's just enough. And people, they're wise to the joke. They've had enough of the bullshit. They're being fed a pile of crap by the street. The quality street research has never been worse. CNBC is complete Cartoon Network clown show. I used to consider Jim Kramer a friend, but he's so disgraced himself. I mean, you couldn't lose money that fast unless you tried. I mean, you should not. You should run, not walk away from Jim Kramer. Jim, please come in this room. Zeb, if you're still there, get his fucking ass in here. These people are compromised. It's all about the fucking money. Does anybody have any sense of decency? You want to know something? Mr. Market is going to fix this. Mr. Market's in the process of fixing this. And I think one of my rants in the room the other night, I was so punch drunk tired. And by the way, if I sound crazy right now, don't worry. I'm wide awake. I'm fully caffeinated. So I'm in complete control of every F-bomb that's coming out. Mr. Market will take care of this. And the idea of, you know, oh, we're going to cause the market to go down. No, no. It'd be like, imagine if Jerome Powell was in charge. He was a central banker of, of the Netherlands in the 17th century. And it's like, oh, we have to be careful. We don't, you know, and Ken Griffin's calls up as well. You know, I own a lot of these tulip bulbs. Like, you know, yeah, bro, you know, where you got a private equity firm, bro. I, I, I borrowed a lot of money to buy all these tulip bulbs. Like, you know, if you raise rates too much, it's going to crash the price of tulip bulbs. Well, 
why were tulip bulbs at, you know, $100,000 a piece or whatever the hell they were? The problem isn't they're going to make a mistake. The problem is they already made a mistake. Inflation went from 1% to 8%, and they did nothing. Nothing. Now I'm going to go into overdrive. And someone asked the question the other night in the room, and I was tired. And I thought about what I said afterwards. I listened to the replay. And I said, you know something? I'm actually better when I'm tired because I don't have quite the same energy. It's like, you know, remember back in the day? So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a saying, vino ad veritas. In wine, there is truth. So back in the day, in the tribunals in Roman times, they would all drink before they would have a trial because truth tends to come out. And I realized I was tired. George unhinged started to come out. Someone asked the question, what's the solution to all this? At first it said, there is none. They're screwed. It's like you jacked up the price of tulip bulbs to un ungodly heights. We can't be on a tulip bulb standard. The name of the game is not to make sure the price of tulip bulbs is, you know, $10,000 a copy. Sorry, it's just not the, you screwed it up. Let's, let's have a, let's just do it over, break everything and start over again. The answer to this problem, the way out is rip the fucking Band-Aid off. They've kept rates way down too long for too, too, too much for too long. That in turn encourages malinvestment. We haven't even dunked on Tiger Global. Look at my Twitter feed from this morning. I, I went, I'm basically echoing the rant I went on. Gross misallocation of capital, malinvestment, freaking, you know, food delivery apps and dating apps and SPACs and God knows what. So nobody's interest other than to line the pockets of the shysters promoting this stuff. Destroy all this stuff. You have to destroy all this stuff. The market will destroy all this stuff. Because as long as this stuff is allowed to, as long as it, it, bro, number up and to the right, money still flows in, capital gets misallocated. Instead, why don't we put some inner money into things that we actually need as opposed to these, you know, social media vanity experiments? You know, how about putting a little bit more money into energy? or extractive industries or infrastructure things that generate cash flow and profits instead this is sort of like you know this is far worse than global crossing and all this crap in 2000 because at least you know all right you built some fiber optic pipelines it took a long while for it to be used but you know there was some utility that eventually came out of all that crap this stuff it's all vaporware it's all vaporware it's all a get rich quick scheme it, it, the amount of debt that we, we haven't even dumped on private equity yet, okay? You look at the private equity returns, they're shit. They barely exceed the market indices. If you adjust for illiquidity and leverage and beta, they way underperform the market. That's all a sham. And so there was an interesting room yesterday, Michael Gaia had talking about this capitalism fail and cap concentration going up. And I know I'm going to get a new one ripped by everybody in this room, probably starting with Cantro, because probably half of what I'm saying is true. But it's, it's in the whole correct. You know, the, the cousin or the enabler of, of, of this concentration, it's the hyper-financialization of the market, the, the leveraging up to buy more assets. Friends at GAFCAL have done great work on this. You set, the, you, set the, you set the interest rate too low, and it actually discourages investment because what happens is you just bring on financial speculation and leveraging up, and people don't invest in productive assets. And that's what's happened. And so rather than people like, oh, my God, rates are going to go up. The market's going to go down. This is terrible. No, it's exactly the opposite. 
put rates at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a proper market level and capital will be allocated appropriately. The problem is capitalism has been distorted. So we need to get on with the process of, cap, of, 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 of creative destruction. Out of this will come a foundation for a much stronger economy, something which is not so levered, something which the question that was asked by Mr. Anonymous uh, a little while ago, Mr. Omakasia, it's not, you know, number go up, bro. Just keep printing more money, bro. No. The reason this shit's been going on is because we've been in the great moderation, the great disinflation. They can keep printing more money. The velocity money kept going down. Blah, 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 blah. Game over. Game over. That shit is done. Not just done, oh, we have a couple of bank cards. No, this is done, done. I think you're going to see major, major private equity firms going out of business. Major, major Tiger Global-like companies going out of business. I'm not saying Tiger Global itself. But the redemptions you're going to see, and going back to the, and I'm going to stop now, but, you know, Roke, John, maybe providing more context to, I love when the fundamentals and the narrative comes together with charts. You know, we've kept these rates. You're Mr. Brogdonanian base, okay? You know, looking at the yields, I want you to come back on this, John. Like, particularly your view on the German tenure, and also warming up with the bullpen, Mr. JGB, who he's, he's not ready yet because they keep they keep trying to do yield curve control, but you know they're doing that. They, they can either fix the end or fix the rates. They can't do both, so they're trying to fix fix the rates. Hello, yen one thirty, you know one fifty two hundred next stop. So this whole thing we've suppressed interest rates for way too long, and and they could get away with it as long as inflation wasn't a problem. Now it's a problem, so it's game over. And the problem is they let this thing go on for far too long. We're now approaching the Minsky moment. And what's really also important with this is not just the adjustment in the rates. It's the speed with which it's adjusting. The system is not designed for this rapid dislocations in markets. And you could say, well, the banks are okay. The credits, it's fine. Yeah, okay, fine. I mean, it's going to Bobby J disappear because I didn't let him up here quickly enough. I hope he comes back. So when the housing bus comes next year, we get a recession. Michael Cantrips, please call your office because it really comes to get squeezed. Okay, fine. The banks left some credit quality problems. That's kind of what I think the bank prices or bank stock prices are already starting to discount. Kind of interesting because, and Roki, I'm throwing a million questions at you because I'm going to throw it back to you. Again, I want you to come back more on rates. I also want you to talk about the financials. Like, in, in Michael K., like you would always, you know, it's, correlations change, they go in and out. I find it really interesting that rates are skyrocketing. And the idiots on CNBC parroting stockbroker on economics would have you believe all else equal, bank stocks should be performing well. Well, hello, it's not happening. Like, what happened on the way to the bank? No pun intended. So, John, I don't know if there's a question there. I guess there are two questions. One, come back further on rates and talk to me about financials. And any, and any other part of that that resonated with you that you wanted to attack, but I had to get that off my chest. Well, I, I think... Um, your commentary about how rates were suppressed for a long time. And I think it was Stan Druckenmiller's line who's, who said, you know, he said many years ago, there's no price discovery mechanism because the Fed was so active to um, suppress or restrain rates. And now that's not happening anymore. So it could be that there was just like a, uh, a beach ball held below the water. It's, it's going to go much higher than we thought uh, initially. And with, you know, the Aussie rates moving much higher and the German 10-year rate moving much higher. I actually thought that the easiest call this year was for the two-year yield to get it to positive territory. I, I didn't think that was extraordinary or heroic at all. 
and the German 10 now is one spot, one three, and to see it at 2%, uh, I, again, I don't think this is such a heroic or extra, extraordinary call. I think it's amazing that the uh, European economy likely has, has more um, things to work through than we do, and their rates are rising at a rate faster than ours relative to the 10 because they're much higher relative to where our 10 is. So the, the German 10 right now is really kind of at its highest level since the summer of 2014, and our 10 is not even below where it was uh, above where it was in 2018. So on a relative basis, their rates are higher than ours are, although absolute, of course, they're lower. So I think rates are likely to be higher, um, and it doesn't seem to me to be so crazy to look for a four percent figure on the 10-year. And then you know I I, I know Mike Kantrowitz can can do uh, can, can add to this, so I'm going to throw the softball right down the middle of the plate. I mean, you have big cap tech that acts poorly and you have big cap financials that act poorly. I mean, you know, you, you couldn't have two bigger groups acting worse here. So that's another reason to believe the market's in a lot of trouble. And I think it's not likely to be out of trouble, at least short term, until um, we have some give up from the people who are reluctant to embrace the term bear market. So I'll hey, throw it back to you, George, and throw it back to you, Mike K. Thanks. Yeah, look, before we go to K, to K, one question for you, John. Uh, specifically, um, what do the bank charts look like to you, and in particular, the hate, which is, for those of you who don't know, this is John harking back to, uh, was it? Um, World the SX-70. Yeah, yeah, SX-70, which for those of you who don't know, Shrub knows. Hate, H-A-T-E. What was it? World Football League, John? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, that was, that was the old XFL Rod Smart had on the back of his jersey, he hate me. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, so, so Rob- I, I, you know, <laughs> I thought that, um, I thought that, you know, when the SX-70 was rallying, that we should have uh, changed the symbol from SX-70 to hate, because when it was going up from, you know, 50 to almost 120, everybody hated it. Right. But the SX-70 is really in bad shape. And, uh, you know, those who hated it before are right to hate it again. It's down from almost 120. It's here at 80. But the, 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 the COVID lows were roughly in the 50 area. And it would not surprise me if this thing got back down and retested or got back down to those COVID lows in the 50 area. So um, we had a rally. It went from 50 to 120 or thereabouts. And the rally failed. And now it looks like it's going to go back down there. And John, so think, as, yeah, John, as long as you got your financial hat on, could you? There's information content and price. I mean, we know price is not truth, but price is price helps tell you a story. How how do the um, the asset managers, um, the T row prices, and, and as well as the um, the private equity, Blackstone, BlackRock, all that crap? What do those charts look like to you? So those guys are are really in some uh, some trouble here. Oh, yeah, the, yeah the, the asset management group is gone. The, the S&P Asset Management Group is down from almost 400 to about 270. Um, and, and on a monthly basis, it's still not oversold. But I think the one, you know, that I think that there are a few stocks in here, at least two, that are emblematic of the whole space. Number one is BlackRock. The stock's gone from, you know, 975 down to almost 600. And I think uh, and it's not oversold on a monthly basis. It's not even close to being oversold on a monthly basis. In fact, on a monthly basis, it hasn't really been oversold since 2009. And then I think the next one that we should be really cautious with is Blackstone, which I know it peaked in late 2021, you know, at about 150. And here it is at 100. But it, this is still considered overbought uh, on a monthly basis. 
In fact, it's way above its prior, its prior overbought levels, which occurred in early 2020 or 2015 or 2014. So to see this come down, and I know this will be laughable, but to its post-COVID breakout, about 60 bucks is not extraordinary. It's 101 here. I think really there's risk to 60. John, you know what's amazing, and we will let uh, Cantro talk. Um, I was looking at BlackRock uh, the other day. I think I put a small chart at just a starter position to keep an eye on it. And I was looking at the chart. I saw exactly what you said. And then I read some of the street research. research, And I listened to, um, oh, yeah, the CEO of, um, of, um, of COO, Jonathan Gray, smart guy for Blackstone. He was on uh, a conference call recently. I'm talking about how great their businesses there are and the capital allocation, all this sort of stuff. And then people say, but George, you don't understand the yield, right? I'm looking at this thing. It's yielding like 5%. So like, like for people who don't do the work, they say, oh, yeah, this looks great. But think about what Blackstone is. The left-hand side of the balance sheet is a pile of debt and some equity. And the right-hand side of the balance sheet is all these, you know, assets. And, and so – you know, as liquidity drains out of the pool and asset values decline, you know, it's a levered play on falling, um, on falling assets. So, I don't know. To me, it just looks like, John, you you and I both grew up in the baseball field. Like, that's a hanging curveball. I mean, that's yeah. just like, you know. Can I, um, can, can I mention one other thing, please? Please. So, if anybody has a Bloomberg at their disposal, they should, I think, take a look at, uh, in France, ROTH space FP. So ROTH space FP is Rothschild and company. Um, and of course, we know that they're wealth management, advisory, M&A, et cetera, asset management. Um, please take a look at the chart. Uh, I know it has a greater than 7% yield. So that's really, that's, that's holding it in. But the stock is down now 16 or so percent from its peak in this year. But it's had three prior bear market declines going back to 2007. The first one was 66%. That was, it went down from 07 into 2011. The second one was 2015 into 2016 when it went down 36%. And then it went down from late 2018 into what was the COVID low, 61%. So it was declining well before COVID hit. And it seems to me that this is in a spot where it should be sold or reduced. It doesn't trade a lot of volume, et cetera. But if this is only down 16%, we've seen other stocks especially like Blackstone uh, or, or some others that we've just talked about down more, I have to figure that this thing is likely going to be coming under more pressure. George, thanks. Cantro, thanks as always. Yeah, thank you for sending no, me that text. Yeah, John, thank you for that stay there because since I, since I ran over you, I'm not even sure. I mean, Cantro had his hand up before you spoke. Then you threw questions at him. So you may have to restate the question to Cantro. So, hey, Michael, what's up, man? Well, I just wanted to get back to John. I, I got my Bloomberg in front of me. I created a chart. I tweeted it. Uh, about transports. Uh, and so one of my favorite ways today to to just think about how long and why things are starting to roll down is, uh, and I've tweeted this with a bunch of different charts. So uh, it's a, uh, a simple leading indicator composite. So PMIs, housing confidence, small business confidence, and consumer confidence. Uh, and so I just literally add those up together. So John, I, I, uh, you replied to it, so I know you saw it, uh, but I just threw over there uh, the tra- uh, S&P 1500 transportation index. Uh, and it looks as good as the high beta index or the small cap index, you know, anything super cyclical like transports are going to move a lot with any cyclical data. And so those five 
macro series that I just mentioned, PMIs, confidence measures, I think they're all going to be heading down for the next 12 months, 15 months. So that composite's going to be heading down. So, you know, I think we're, we're, we're seeing the combination of both higher rates causing market fears to rise, but also the beginning of this uh, economic data slowdown, uh, which has got a long way to go. Uh, and so I would, you know, the same way I feel about high beta stocks, small cap stocks, uh, low quality stocks or growthy stocks with no profits that are high beta as well, which we earlier talked about. Uh, all of it's going to, I think, get hit a lot worse, regardless of what happens to bond yields. Uh, so that was I just wanted to give you a graphical invitation. Interpretation, John. Michael, can I ask you a totally unrelated question? This occurred to me. I mean. You, you're speaking. You, you, you're speaking truth, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, to me, it's just I love the way you're able to articulate uh, what you see in such a clear and cogent way, and it just really resonates with me. And you know, the opportunity set is never linear. Sometimes you have high conviction. Sometimes you know. Sometimes the high, the hanging curveball, to put it in rogue speak, and or or, or it's just a, a slow a change that comes down the middle of the plate, and it's just like the ball's as big as a grapefruit, and you want to kill it. And there are other times where, you know, it's Pedro Martinez, he's painting the corners and Jesus, it's hard to get a good pitch to hit. And you're on your the back, you're on the, the, the back of your heels and it's like, oh, hey, what am I going to do here? It was all a cute way of saying conviction level varies from really high to not so high. So more than whatever your view is, what you're negative on the market, positive on the market, I guess I would ask you two questions. A, the confidence level you have associated with in your view you know, is this, is this, is it a nine or is it a one? And then secondly, you know, you probably read the street, you know, you're aware of what the rest of the street's saying. You probably at times say to myself, how much am I out of consensus or in consensus? And, you know, sometimes you know, I can imagine it's, gee, it's kind of lonely out here. Like if I say this and I'm wrong, I'm going to look like a jackass. And you'd be like, what am I doing wrong? And you know, you're taking a big lead off first base to, to use the baseball analogy. And you're like, no, no, I'm okay with this. I actually believe in this call. No problem. Or there are times when it's like, mm, I'm not so sure. Maybe I shouldn't stick my neck out so far. So two questions. A, what's your confidence level around, you know, because you're, again, it's bullish bearish, but it's not, it's not the question. The question is your confidence level probably going from one to nine over time on your view, depending where you are. And two, the extent to which you're out of gear with the rest of the street or the rest of the street's out of the gear with you. Could you, could you speak to those two points, please? Sure. Yeah. Our confidence, you know, I, our, we have very much a process and a framework and I don't stick my finger up the air and look at valuations or look at sentiment and that have that changed my mind. We, we have a very rigid process, which we continue, you know, every day I try to improve upon it. Um, and something, you know, we've been, I've been working on for 20 years. Um, you know, my team has been together for 14 years. Uh, and so I you know that's rare on wall street, but, um, you have a phenomenal team and, um, we've been working a long time at, at, at this. And, you know, again, we make plenty of mistakes. Every cycle is a little different, but, um, I did tweet the chart, uh, not of high beta, but, uh, of something with credit spreads. So we've talked, we talked a lot about credit spreads today. And if you go down to, I think it's the third tweet, uh, showing, a leading indicator of credit spread. So it starts like this. And, and I don't like to look at models. I don't like to make multivariate regressions because then you end up with a lot of overconfidence uh, using math to make you know models look better. I like to use common sense and look at, I'd rather use 50 charts and look at 50 charts as opposed to one model with 50 inputs. 
Uh, and so it's when the breadth of the information lines up, when our conviction goes through the roof. And as I said earlier, I can't think of a time where everything was so loudly, individually and collectively, screaming the same exact outlook. Uh, and and so I'd say, yeah, I asked this question to Michael Belkin. Yeah, he said he had a nine on conviction. I was like, well, what's the one? And you know, his answer was, well, you can never be a hundred percent. So to that, I would say a nine as well. Um, and again, and, and again, we're we're using tools that have worked not for five years or ten years, and have only worked in this you know deflationary backdrop where you know we had in, during the two thousand tens decade. Uh, but things, you know, I look for things that have worked for 60 and 80 years, because again, every cycle has more similarities than differences. So uh, super, super high conviction where I think we're most out of conviction, out of uh, sentiment from the street, which, you know, the only thing I hear from the street is either when I see someone uh, read an article or see someone talk on CNBC uh, or more often hear it from clients, you know, oh, this guy's saying that and that guy's saying that. And it's not that often. So to be honest, I, I, I don't have a great grasp of what what every other strategy is doing and um, there's a couple i follow who i think are intelligent intelligent um like baseball you know there's there's a few all-stars and everyone else is average or below right so high conviction uh and i think where we're at consensus is is just pointing is one understanding the dynamic of what's happened this year that it's been everything we've seen is about rates for the most part and the economics the economic you know, let's just pretend rates weren't going up. Like, if you look at the market in 2011 or in 2015, the first six months of the, that year, markets were flat. They were dead flat, up a little bit. And those that was the year we started to see things slow. The market hung in there flat. And then when the data got weak in the back half of 2011 and the back half of 2015, stocks collapsed. And so what's different today is that markets are down because we have this massive rate spike, which we didn't have in, in those other examples. Um and I think, again, people are interpreting that as, well, we're already pricing a recession. And I think that's just so far from the truth or the data. Forget about the truth. And, you know, just the data is just not reflecting that. Um, and so that's where I'd say we're most out of consensus, just how long this is going to last. And that, again, I think going forward, I'd rather be shorting something high beta, small cap, low quality than large cap tech stocks. My comments earlier about tech fundamentals being healthy compared to 2000 with the exception i would not say that's true for the uh the portfolio manager with those long duration growth stocks we talk about so often that those actually fit the bill perfectly high beta no profits super expensive that's what tech stocks were in 2000 it's not what all tech stocks are today but certainly uh arc stocks do reflect that thanks by the way yeah news flash i seen janet thank you for that michael Janet Yellen admits that Biden's exit. Well, I shouldn't even say that. I don't want to get into politics. Um, so I'm going to take a slight break here, just reset the room. Um, this has been another fantastic space. Given that it's raining outside, at least it is here in the New York area. Look, I'm, I'm good. I'm all good. My girlfriend's out, so we can keep doing this. She thinks I'm having an affair with uh, Twitter. She's right. Um, and I know other, other folks have the same problem here. It's like, how does your wife, how does your girlfriend let you get away with this? This breaks up relationships. Uh, I do want to, though, take time out for a second. And if Carol Strohn would come up, I'd like to talk about the kitchen again if she's there. Um, if she doesn't, I have to do all the heavy lifting. But as you know, we are raising money for World Central Kitchen. They are feeding uh, refugees 
Um, they're doing God's work. Um, and hold on. We have, we have, and Carol's going to speak to the numbers, but we started this sort of as an experiment. I think it's just been about a month because Carol, I went, I was going through this morning. Gnostic will get to you. I was going through this morning, just looking through some of the past. Carol, I'm trying to get you up here, but the thing is a little bit jiggy. Carol, if you can't, if it's, I've invited you up a few times. Um, the app is acting kind of strange. Could I ask you to please leave the room and come back because I've, I've, I've recognized you. Try it again. Hey, George, it's because you don't have a co-host right now. So. What? No, I, I don't need it. I don't. I don't. That's okay. She should be able to come up yesterday. Carol, could you please leave the room and come back? It's not letting me. It's not letting me bring you up. Um, so, at any rate, um, we started this out um, as, a, as a as a sort of an experiment, trying to do something that has not been done before. Um, we are uh, raised in the course of a month one hundred and nineteen thousand dollars. We're about to cross one hundred and twenty. Um, our goal was one eighty. The exciting thing is that um, we um, have a, a scenario. Here she is. We have. We have. Carol's going to speak to this. We have a speak. We have a matching a, a matching pledge for fifty thousand dollars. We're twelve thousand dollars away from from being there. So if we can raise twelve thousand more dollars, and I'd like to see if we can do that in this room, we will have Alexander from Switzerland reach into his pocket and cough at fifty thousand. He magnanimously made made a fifty thousand dollar pledge. Um, last week, um, we have um, raised, I believe, thirty-eight thousand of the fifty. So it's having its desired effect. Uh, I'd just like to call out the names of some people who've given since this room started: uh, Anas Ahaji, Bob Coleman, Michael Finkelstein, Kenneth Roberts, Gerard Curran. Um, these are all folks who've given since this room started, and I don't really care how much the gift is. Everyone gives according to their means. Um, there was one gift here, you know, for $18 and 90 cents, uh, noble having or showing fine personal qualities or high moral principles and ideals. All right. I have to tell you that gift means as much to me because I'm sure for that person, it was meaningful as does a 500 or a thousand dollar gift or $5,000 gift. So everyone gives according to their means. And I think, um, inclusion and participation are, are crucial. So if you haven't given, or even if you have give please, please, please consider giving. The link is in my Twitter feed. I'll post it again. Carol, would you like to uh, update the room on our progress and what we're going on and what we're thinking? Thank you, Carol. Yeah. Hi, George. How are you? Um, but before I do that, I'm going to digress a little bit. I just want to say something, especially to the young people in the room. And I'm guessing that a lot of these donations, five, ten, twenty-five dollars are coming from younger people who haven't yet built their nest egg in life. And there are some things that um, George and Shrub and Bob have been talking about that I think are really helpful to think about for the younger average investor. I'm just an average investor in this room trying to do what I can to help. But the two messages, do the work and do it while you're young. Don't wait till you've got your nest egg and are in your 50s like your parents may be and they may not have done the learning and we're facing times, very uncertain times. So do it while you're young. Do the learning. And also what Shrub said, be a generalist. I mean, you know, the problem is that a lot of financial advisors will know one thing really well. Generally, it's stocks, but they're not going to talk to you about energy, gold, bonds, all the things we're talking about in this room. And Javier Goyer tweeted out something the other day, you know, run, don't walk. If you're not 
doing the learning on in every asset class with whoever's helping you with your investing, find someone else and come into these rooms and learn about everything from A to Z, because what's going on in this space is helping me at a later stage in life that I wish I'd, you know, I'd done at your age. So I'm going to pivot now to, to World Central Kitchen. Um, so we're $12,000 away, maybe $11,000 away from our goal of unlocking the $50,000 $50, pledge from Alexander. I'm just going to update you on a Zoom call I was on yesterday with uh, a couple guys who are on the ground in Ukraine. One of them is, both of them are doing humanita humanitarian effort. They're both Ukrainian. The rest of the people on the call were, were donors, people trying to figure out how to make a difference, how to make sure their money that is used wisely. And that's where I come in with all of you is to make sure that your dollars are being used wisely and are getting to the people who need them. And, you know, one of the things, three things came out in this call, which is just to underscore the risk that these humanitarian aid workers are facing. Um, you know, we hear about stories in the press about World Central Kitchen when some of their workers got injured when they were bombed. We're not hearing about a lot of the local Ukrainian smaller humanitarian volunteers, aid workers, four of whom I think got killed this past week. So uh, just appreciate the risk and the danger that everybody on the ground is going through. The other thing that came out loud and clear was how important it is to go local which is one of the great strengths of World Central Kitchen because they're really leveraging every single asset on the ground, every single Ukrainian volunteer they can, every single truck, every single farmer, everybody they can on the ground. It's really an incredible volunteer effort going on. And the last thing is it's really important, especially for those of us here in the U.S., donate the dollars, not the stuff. I know a lot of people at the beginning of a humanitarian crisis will go into their closets, dig out the sweaters, the clothes, the this, the that. What they don't realize is how expensive it is to get it from here to there. And then the, the log jam that it causes when the, the goods land in Poland. So leave it to the people in, the, uh, in and around Ukraine to get the stuff. And, and we, as, we who are outside of the, that immediate area get the dollars to them. So those are my three takeaways for the day. Thank you, Carol. Um, Carol is, uh, you know, Carol and I have only known each other for a few months. <clears throat> and we have a team, Carol, Bob Justice, Andrew, RJ, Jack. <clears throat> None of us are doing this for any personal um, remuneration. Our reward comes in the form of giving back. And I can't tell you how good it makes me feel to know that I'm doing doing good. And I think Carol's the same way. <clears throat> so we, we invite you, we ask you to help us, to help the people of the Ukraine. And, you know, I can't think of a, another uh, space, <clears throat> excuse me, or another program, another resource where you get as much value as you do from this room. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting choked up. I swallowed something the wrong way. I get choked up about the message too. Uh, if you have gotten value from this room, please, please, please give generously. Um, this is the first world problem we have here. We're trying to preserve or increase our net worth. There are a ton of people out there, millions of people out there in a world of hurt. And World Central Kitchen is helping them. So thank you, Carol. I salute you. Thank you very much. All right, let's move on. Um, we're going to go to, let's see, let's do Gnostic. And then 
uh, Evander. Nostic, my friend, good to see you. What's up? Oh, good to see you. Uh, George, whenever I come into your room, I always feel better. I mean, your rant, much to my surprise, I fully understood and appreciated, and thank you for your rant. Could you, in one or two sentences, sum up the difference between what you mean by money, interest, and the right thing? There's a lot of people in here, I think, that didn't understand or don't have the depth that some of the people here do. And a simple summary of, you know, because the, the idea of capitalism and all the rest of the stuff, we're all in it for money and make money and do all the rest of the stuff. And you're saying, no, money isn't the, money isn't the, shouldn't be the focus of it, doing the right thing. But in, in just a few short clips, if you could be so kind as to try and edit it down, exactly what do you mean by that? Nastic, thanks for that. Um, I'm going to answer the question first, and then I'm going to ask you to critique my answer and you give your own answer, because I think you probably presume, I know you have ideas about that. Um, there are certain activities which, um, not all, not, not, not all activities are equal. It's a question of personal preference in the first instance. If someone said to you, Hey, I'll pay you, you know, a hundred dollars an hour to go, I don't know, $20 an hour, whatever the matter is. I'll pay you money to go work in a Starbucks as a barista. Or I'll pay you money to go dig a ditch. Or I'll pay you money to go uh, campaign for a, a politician whose uh, policies are diametrically opposed to. Or I'll pay you money to, you know, go work in a slaughterhouse and kill animals. I suspect most of us would, <laughs> all of us would have different reactions to that. Um, some of those activities would not be in align with your own moral code or personal preference. But I also think there's sort of a universal truth that we all inside of us are aware of that resonates with us. And so let me give an example, a current example. I was in a room, not a Twitter space, but a different room. I actually was in a Zoom call uh, a couple weeks ago. And the biographer of Mark Rich, for those of you that don't know him, Mark Rich was a commodities trader. Most notably, or not most notably, at one point was Solomon Brothers going back to the 70s. <clears throat> and then he left. And he went to um, Switzerland, set up shack in Zug, Switzerland. And if you go back to the time of the... Of the uh, Iranian oil embargo, where the United States and some other countries don't hold me to the exact details. It was a big, I can't, I believe it was, I think it was universal, certainly the United States. There was an embargo placed upon Iranian oil. And the idea was to, you know, put sanctions on them and because and whatnot. And it was widely seen the Iranians were bad actors. And yes, yeah, it's a good thing to do. We're not going to invade them, but we're going to put economic sanctions on them. So what happened? Um, you know, Iranian oil sold at a big discount. I'm, going, I'm actually, I could answer your question much more simply, Nasik, but I want to make it really graphic, which is why I'm going down this rabbit hole. So Iranian oil was being offered at a big discount. If you were an American, you weren't allowed to trade in this stuff. So what does he do? And this, and, 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 again, I, I had a conversation with his biographer who spent many hours, days with Rich writing the book. 
and I wanted to get a sense of what Marcus was like as the, as a person. And he said he, he he died an unhappy man. He was terrible at personal relationships. And I was like, well, he's the kind of guy you'd want to hang out with and watch a game or drink a, drink a bottle of wine. He said, no, no, the guy was always talking about business 24-7. And so then when it came to the topic of the Iranian oil sanctions, I was like, well, what did he, what did he, what was Rich's attitude towards that? I mean, Rich is dead now, so you can't ask him. He's like, well, Rich's attitude was, well, as long as it's not illegal, it's okay. <clears throat> and by the way, by the way, it wasn't just, um, the issue of Iranian oil, he was also carrying water and doing trading with South Africa, where back in the day they had this horrible apartheid regime, and he was enabling the South African apartheid regime. So he was enabling the South African apartheid regime, he was enabling the, 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 the Iranian assholes, they probably should, they'll edit this, they'll put a different word in it, um, and he, he's like, well, it's not illegal here. Yeah, because in Switzerland it wasn't, there was no law against it. So the question, so the thing is like, okay, I don't care how much he made. And by the way, he was um, a fugitive. He became a fugitive from the law. He was, uh, I think, brought up and convicted, whatever, on racketeering charges or whatnot. He was not allowed to set foot in this country. And we know presidents typically pardon a lot of no-goodniks in the closing days of their uh, administration. Bill Clinton actually pardoned him. I, I don't want to get into politics because they all do it, left, right, Democrat, Republican. But because um, Rich's, I believe, wife, Ketcher was Rich himself or the wife, they gave a zillion dollars to the Clinton campaign. He got pardoned in the closing days of the Clinton administration. So the question I asked everyone in this room, would you have enabled the South African apartheid regime? Would you have enabled the Iranians? I don't think so. But Mark Rich, because it wasn't illegal, quote unquote, in Switzerland, would have been illegal in the United States. He do it and did it. And he, you know, like, feigned, like, well, as long as it's legal, that's his out. He gets air coverage. It's, it's legal. Okay, fine. No problem. Like some, because we know sometimes, sometimes the laws just don't keep up with what's right and wrong, especially in the area, emerging area of technology, where, you know, with the advent of social media, a lot of the laws around the promoting of stocks and non-disclosures and this and that, the laws are loosely defined or they haven't kept up with the change in technology. So, for instance, Elon Musk blatantly, blatantly violated securities laws. He was hand slapped by the SEC. But he, but he then went he then went and did it again. And he kept saying, I don't respect the SEC. Like, who is he? So I like to try to live my life by doing what I think is the right thing. There's a universal truth of right and wrong. Not what can I get away with. So Chamath pulls his bullshit stuff, pump and dumps all this crap, gets the stock up, and then dumps it on the public. Good for you, Chamath. I hope you feel good about yourself. Agnostic, I'm going to stop because I want you to speak on this a little bit. I see this happening all over the place. All the SPAC promoters, the Chamath, Kathy Wood, Kathy's a different kettle of fish because I I don't know if she's just so down the religious rabbit hole she actually believes she's doing God work or not, but in any other planet, any other universe, any real investment company you'd be working for, you'd have handcuffs put on you. It's total regulatory failure. She has violated all types of advisor act laws, but nothing. So people say, hey, well, bro, she's not in jail. So what are you complaining about? Oh, you're just jealous. Oh, you're a misogynist because she's a woman. Bullshit. What she is doing is wrong. 
and she's leading the sheep to slaughter. Even if the thing's crashing, they're still putting money in. I hope she feels good about herself. I couldn't sleep if I were her because I have a moral compass. Gnostic, back to you. Oh, good, good summary again, George. Uh, I'm dealing with bits and pieces of that because in my business, I do a short, mid, long-term analysis of what's happening. And you can't help but have moral opinions about where you think things are going, but it still drives your investment decisions. <clears throat> and having made those decisions, they turned out to be quite profitable, which I'm quite happy and proud of. But at the same time, I see the damage that those things have done to people around me, and I feel bad. Uh, my urge to help, my want to help, things like WC Kitchen, the, the whole Ukrainian situation here drives me insane because we saw it coming, we invested accordingly, um, and now putting money back into helping, you know, I've helped, I've helped a few people literally make it from Ukraine over to uh, Portugal where I'm supporting them. Uh, to sit down and do things because it's just like th there's just something wrong with being right and making money on it but watching a disaster happen all around it and the helpless people you know in it you know you couldn't stop Ukraine from happening I mean you couldn't get in the way of it I've, I've got no ability to do that uh, but seeing where it goes informs my investment decisions on what to do and how to sit down and do it so that having been said when you sit down and look at the whole overall economy and what's happening, again, you sit down, you look at what's happening, where things are going. I follow a few people that I think are, I, I follow a whole bunch and I follow a whole bunch of you, by the way, that are on here and, and massively appreciate what you're saying. Uh, it's like finally going back to school and, and learning stuff all over again. So thanks to all of you here. Um, but you sit down and you, you figure out where things are going, you follow it, you watch what's happening, you invest accordingly, and then you watch all the people around you suffering for it. And, and I'm torn almost daily by the success I've had in doing that, but watching people who didn't know, couldn't understand, didn't want to learn, didn't want to do all the rest of the stuff. You know, I hear somebody like Carol, and, and I think, I'm, I'm not sure about other people in, in here, but I'm in the same position, so to speak, as Carol, and I'm sure all of us have been through this, where we didn't learn, we didn't know, we wish we knew what we knew. We wish we knew now what we knew, what we didn't know back then, and I'm phrasing that all wrong, and I'm sorry. Um, but it, it's like we've all had this lesson where we've been dragged to the bottom and had to claw our way back up again. And, and somewhere in there, you develop a moral and ethical position on it, and you watch this stuff happen, and you just go, no. In the markets, the markets per se, you watch the decisions the Fed makes, you watch the decisions the president makes, you watch Congress, you watch uh, the Senate, the House, you watch the arguments in it. You, you see the short-term reward, but long-term damage that's coming because of it. And there's nothing you can do about it. And, and how do you overcome the moral guilt of that? And then you watch people who, who bail in and make it even worse. Um, and you just kind of go, this is not, this is not where I want to be. Uh, and, and in the markets that in, in some of the small cap markets that I deal in, you know, we've got people who do exactly what you're talking about in the small cap markets. And I've seen it in the large cap markets, but now the, the markets turn, they stall. I've got them phoning me up <clears throat> and saying, we have this great deal. We have this wonderful opportunity. And you sit down and go, but you shafted me last time. Why would I write you a check this time? And they just start going, oh, you're abandoning us. 
You go, no, I'm not abandoning you. What I'm saying is you shafted me last time. This is the consequence of you shafting me. No. And they turn to other people and, and you watch other people come in and go, I just did this. You should go and do this, Bob. And it's like, no, um, I'm not. And you just shake your head and go, what people think they can get away with it. And in a rising market, people like Kathy, people like all the rest of them, you know, the, the rising water is carrying everybody up. And sooner or later, somebody's going to drain that and it's going to go down and it's going to hurt. And to, to bring it down to a quick summary, if we don't have some sort of capital destruction in this whole system, we're completely getting carried away with it because all the money, all the, the effort, all the foreign capital that's coming in to buy the U.S. dollar right now, which is, which is supporting the, the securities and supporting the, the dollar up, is just causing so much damage all along the whole entire process that if, if capital destruction of some sort doesn't come in to restabilize the whole process, it's going to get even worse next time. And that's what I see coming. I, I can't stop it, but it, I just regret the fact that people don't seem to be able to see if like there's an up and there's a down and they're both parts of the market. Up when you make money and you're happy, down we may all be miserable and, and hurting, but that down creates the next one that we can sit and work with. 100% Nasik, 100%. A couple of thoughts um, I just wanted to chime in to pile on. I'll give you an example. One of my best personal friends is, um, was, he's a retired CEO of one of the world's 50 biggest corporations. That's a name you all know. When he was offered a year or two ago, in the midst of the SPAC mania, a chance to, he was, he, was, he was approached by promoters wanting to know if they could use his name, get him to sign up as part of his SPAC. And, well, he would have made a lot of money from it. The price at which they were going to flog the SPAC was way out of proportion to any sense of intrinsic value. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. He's like, George, you wouldn't believe the deals I can get. He's just like, I'm not doing this. This is wrong. In similar fashion, let's take a couple names. I'll name names. Stocks that you know. Coinbase. Robinhood. Coinbase became public last year. Uh, keep in mind, the brokers weren't doing it. This is pure avarice on the part of the company itself. They uh, come public. And, you know, it's only natural that, you know, you try to come public when things are good and the top of the cycle. Okay, fine. They come public. I believe the indicated reference price is around 250 and I remember the day it came public. It was one of those things that always happens in the hot deal. You know, some knuckleheads breathlessly reporting from the floor of the exchange. Oh, you know, the indicated price is only, it's, it's 300 it's 310 it's 350 You know, Bob Pisani, they still can't open it, you know. All the drama around that, the crowds crowding around the post, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't remember exactly, but I think Coinbase traded for like 400 or 450. I can't remember what was the first day or the second day, but it was absurd. And you just do the numbers and you look at it. It's like, this is insane. I mean, it just didn't make any sense whatsoever. But the problem was they created enough hype. And uh, they'll say, well, you know, it was all in the disclosure. We didn't violate any securities laws. Everything required was in the prospectus. Okay, that's true. And it's also true that, you know, it's a, it's a free country. I mean, for every seller, there's a buyer. Every buyer, there's a seller. 
no one's forcing um, no one's forcing someone to pay four hundred or four fifty four fifty for uh, for core base. But that doesn't make it right. If your ability to and by the way, I think Coinbase management, if I'm not mistaken, they were selling shares like the first day out of the box. Like feed the ducks, they're quacking. Okay. Nostic, I kind of suspect that you probably would have been uncomfortable even suggesting an initial reference price of two fifty. You certainly wouldn't have gone out of your way pumping up the tulip bulbs, extolling the virtues of the company and how great the outlook looks, because you know it's only going to inflame the interests of relatively uneducated retail speculators. They're not, they're not bothering to read the prospectus. They don't have any sense of what valuation should be. So that, you're taking advantage of this whole democratization thing where, you know, everyone's an investor, everybody can do it themselves. I'm not saying we have to have a closed shop, but fine, so go public. But like, why are you why are you pumping up the tulip bulbs? It's a rhetorical question, not, not literal. And that's what these guys do. And they can say with a straight face, we didn't do anything wrong. We didn't do anything illegal. Or you take Robin Hood, which basically has no they should go out of business. They really should. They have no reason to exist. I mean, think about the whole business model. They don't, you know, it's free trading. Is putting it on an app so you gamify the stock market, like, is that a good idea? It makes it too easy. It's sort of like, you know, when you have uh, bottles of drugs, pharmaceuticals, you, you put labels on this. It's not so easy to open for children to get, get into it. So you make it too easy. Someone just pushes a button. The average account balance at Robinhood was 4200 Well, at least it used to be 4200 bucks. I suspect it's less now. I can't imagine what the average return uh, account returns been around by the last couple of years. I'm sure they're all blowing up. As a matter of fact, I know they're blowing up because the most recent quarter, the number of active users declined yet again. It was down another 10%. I think it went from like 17.3 to 15.9 users or something like that, a million users. So the fact that this was all legal is not the point. And you could say, well, we should change the rules, we should change the laws. Yeah, but they'll change the rules and change the laws. And then the bad actors will, will get, be one step ahead of it. They'll figure out another way to get, get around it. Ken Griffin, please call your office. So Robinhood, the trading is all free. Everyone says, oh, yeah, this is great. And what do they make their money on? Payment for order flow. It's basically legalized front running. It's illegal in a lot of other European countries. It should be illegal here. I don't know if Gary Gensel and company are going to actually do the right well, thing. Was, was it? Was George, wasn't Bernie Madoff like one of the, the pioneers? Yeah, of yeah, yeah, can we just, let's just keep that, hold that aside. I don't want to ruin my thread here. So, Robin Hood's doing shit where, you know, they're getting payment for order flow. The high watermark for Robin Hood was the second quarter last year, third quarter last year, escapes me now. They made all their money because crypto profits went to the moon. Most of their crypto profits came from trading Dogecoin. Like, what could possibly go wrong? So it's a complete freaking disaster. The company, I think the, the, the last round they did financing on, I can't remember, was it a buck, two bucks, three bucks, whatever, some ridiculous number. They come public in the, high, in the mid-30s. The stock goes to the 80s. Insiders are hitting the bid. Like, that was all legal. But like I say, you can change the laws and the regulations, but they'll find a way to get around you. So it really gets down to 
is the moral code, the moral fiber of the management of Robinhood, of the management of Coinbase. These are bad people. These are bad people. Gnostic, I don't think you would do that. I know I wouldn't do that. I don't think Cantor would do that. John Roke wouldn't do that. Bob Klein wouldn't do that. I'd like to think pretty much everybody in this room wouldn't do that. But this is what goes on. And you could say, yeah, well, Wall Street's always been, you know, a den of thieves and it's not for Boy Scouts and yada, yada, yada. But what I would say is, as the table stakes have gotten bigger, the greed factor has gotten ever larger. The, in other words, it's attracted more and more bad actors. And this has to stop, and it will stop, because as, you're say, as you said, Gnostic, and was echoing what I had said earlier, we need the capital destruction, the creative destruction. We need capital destruction as a discipline, as a discipline uh, factor on this whole mess. Gnostic, back to you. Oh, uh, yep, exactly. And people don't want to say, you know, because it's not comfortable to sit down and say, we're going to have, you know, the market's going to turn down and it's going to be vicious. And, you know, there's going to be capital destruction. Nobody wants to do that because people aren't happy. And yet it's that very cycle that sits down and creates the step for to recapitalize all of the stuff you were just talking about, the things people did wrong, the greed, the the animosity, the sense of lack of morals, all the rest of the stuff <clears throat> all gets reestablished in that capital destruction, it's what China is trying to implement right now. They started it with real estate. Well, they put up the reserve capital required for the manufacturers in, in real estate. And all of a sudden, real estate turns, starts turning down in China. And I think we're going to see a whole bunch of things happen in China as a consequence of China's attempt to, I don't, artificial is the wrong way, but in, in, the, temp, in the attempt to induce capital destruction on a controlled government induced basis, uh, I think is going to cause a lot of unintended consequences in China, but their government is at least, <clears throat> and I'm not extolling China by any means in, in all the stuff, although I think they're, it, it's an interesting place to look, but at least they're going through the capital destruction phase to sit down and say, we've got to restabilize what we're doing in order to stabilize the entire economy. Whereas in North America and the West, what we're doing is just exacerbating the cycles and making them bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, the resulting tension on the destruction side is just increasing dramatically. And I think it's just, I think it's going to create a real mess. No, sir. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, what's really funny too. And again, I, I don't condone what the Chinese do, but the really odd thing about some of the Chinese directives, you mentioned the crackdown on excessive real estate speculation. That's a good thing. You look at last year, they had a crackdown or a year before that crackdown on all these online education companies. They were talking about, there were a lot of restrictions on, you know, if you want to get your kid tutored and this, 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 this SAT or whatever standardized test thing there is, they realized, they, they said that, you know, that certain people shouldn't have an advantage and it should be more of a level playing field. They also issued some directives on trying to uh, moderate how much time people spend on video games. I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, like it's an atrocious regime, don't get me wrong, but each of those three things I just mentioned, as well as there were a couple of more, I'm like, I'm totally down for that. That'd be, I only wish we had that sort of thing in our, in, in Canada, the United States. What, what, what's your reaction to that? Oh yeah, there, there, I, you know, I agree entirely. The, the real estate one just had to be done or just the destruction, the, the actual physical destruction of places was just going to become dramatic. We sent people over there to have a look at the at some of the places, and the the quality was terrible. 
But yeah, in, in North America, just nobody's willing to make those tough decisions. And everybody wants it to be short term, easier to do. Congressmen want to get reelected. Senators want to get reelected. Presidents don't want to do anything that's tough to sit down and do it. And it follows the election cycle just way too much. But just the, the general population just does not, they get carried away. They want to be the part of the SPAC. They want to be in buying the shares. They want to, they feel left out and their greed button gets pushed. And every time I see my greed button got pushed a long time ago when I lost a whole bunch of money in the markets, uh, just in, in minutes, I lost more than anybody else, then went to a bar and to have a drink. And I was not in the best of mental states at the time. Um, and everybody in the bar was having a great time. They knew nothing about the markets and nothing about what happened. And somebody came in and said the market market just crashed and people would just go, ah, so what, have another drink. And you know, that's people's right to do. And it's a good thing. And at least it got me out of my depression, but we just, we're not teaching people enough about money. hundred percent. And whether it's, you know, financial ignorance, which hopefully we can, we're doing a small, you got to start somewhere. And, oh, and, and just sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but, and again, I will extol these spaces both in a political sense, because in these spaces, at least we get to speak freely. And hopefully with Elon buying it, uh, we get to do the, the backroom coffee shops and sit down and communicate to people. But also the ability of people within here to get an education. I've, I've recommended, you know, your spaces in particular and other spaces to people who don't know anything about it. And I tweeted out and tell them to come in specifically for the education and sit down and listen to it. And some of them just go, this is way beyond my head and say, well, just stay there. It, it won't be beyond your head after a while. You'll understand the jargon and the rest of the stuff that people are using and you'll get an education because more and more people are realizing that the brokers are not doing them a service. I've got dozens and dozens of people that call me all the time that say, my, my broker is not doing me any service. He's basically collecting a fee and putting me into things that are ridiculous and the returns I'm getting are horrible. How do I, how do I get better returns? And Yet they're, I'm trying to explain to them that you can't have a greed button. The, the things I do, I specifically am taking massive risks on my portfolio and massive risks on some things, but it's spread across a, a wide array. If I lose on four or five of them, I'm not going to be hurt because I'm going to make it up on hopefully at least one of them. But you can't do that when you don't have the, the resources, when you don't have the, the background uh, to sit down and do it. So listen, listen to George, listen to the other people here, listen to Anise if you're doing... Uh, oil and gas, listen to Michael, listen to Dicha, listen to Carol. I mean, a anyway, sorry, I'm getting carried away. No, I, I appreciate that, Nas. That answer your kind words. I honestly believe, I really do. I mean, I just look at how far we've come so far, and it's like amateur hour. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing the best I can, and Carol and the others that work with me, we're just, we're just trying to do the right thing for people, and you know, pay forward and what goes around comes around. And I actually believe that someday as we have big plans, I don't see any reason why, and I, you know, I've tried to get Bloomberg's attention. If anybody knows the folks at Bloomberg, please reach out to them. But I've got someone reaching out to the producer for me, but like, why would you listen to Jim Cramer as opposed to this room? Seriously. He's become a complete front man, shill, charlatan. So I put it on my feed this morning. When was the last time anybody made any money from an idea that came from CNBC, Jim Cramer, or Kathy Wood? It's entertainment. Stock market's not a game. 
as Peter Lynch would say, behind every stock, there's a company. It's a real, it's a thing. It's not a game. It's not chasing some narrative. We've forgotten that. And that's what I'm trying to do here, try to remind people what's going on. And so please tweet out about this room, tell others about this room. I think we're up to like, I don't know, 23,000 subscribers and or followers. And we just went on YouTube a month ago. And so for all of you, go to our YouTube channel. Um, for the last two months or so, all the all the rooms are up there and some of them are timeless. And we had Stan Weinstein um, four or six weeks ago. It was you know, 80 years old, just precious. That'll be there in posterity. Dennis Garman, the poor man's got Parkinson's. It's not about picks and what you're supposed to buy or sell. It's about learning to become an investor, take agency, teaching out a fish, not giving you a fish. People don't want to be told what to do. They want to be given the tools to figure out what to do. That's what I'm trying to do here. And I make plenty of mistakes and I have a big mouth and I'm opinionated. I know all that. But I think people kind of understand that I'm honest, I'm hardworking, I'm giving you the best I got. Hopefully I'm right more than I'm wrong. Get people like Dr. Anasa Haji in here, Michael Roke. I see Thornton's down there, Mark Newman's down there. I mean, these are the people that I've come to know over 40 years. And these are the best in the business. And so I'm trying to give to you all I got. I was told 20 years ago I should become a teacher. I wasn't interested because I thought it was going to be boring. But I'm actually enjoying this because I'm sharing. And the other thing, too, is I'm learning. I learn from everyone in this room. It's not just Anasa Haji or Michael K or Tommy Thornton. Even the people say, oh, I'm just a little person, you know. No. Sometimes the questions from the from the least experienced person, the most interesting ones. And that I, I suspect I'm speaking for, for all the quote-unquote experts in this room. It's the same thing. We're always learning. We're helping each other. You know, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I think people understand that. It's just trying to do the right thing. So thank you, Nasik, for, for that. Thank you very much. All right, let's move on. We're going to go to uh, Evander, and then we're going to go to Anas Haji. Evander, you've been very patient. What's on your mind? Evander, you're good. Yep. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for having this space. Speaking of Kramer, I believe it was on Monday that he uh, called the end of the bear market. So that's a notch another win for the uh, inverse Kramer ETF. Um, and also, I started investing. I'm one of the Robin Hood millennials that started in early 2020. And I went, I went my first year from... 30,000 to 210,000. And then ever since then, I finally got out two weeks ago, but went all the way back down to 50,000. So I had the Kathy Wood experience and it was mostly uh, due to uh, small caps. Jivo, Jumia, you know, rode them all the way up and then sold kind of near the top, but started buying the dip on the way down, just got destroyed. So, Van, let me ask you a question. Yep. Again, you're going to say, I mean, this is a like perfect example of what I'm talking about. Like, I've got more experience than you. But you probably have a better understanding of the zeitgeist of the market in the younger crowd. Can you explain to me, like, one of the two, what are the one or two important things that you learned from your experience? Um, well, just when height, when stocks go up, especially a whole sector of stocks, like small caps, all went crazy simultaneously. And uh, there wasn't anything really that was happening, you know, in these companies that was, uh, you know, giving that that big move any merit other than you know when biden got elected a lot of the 
there was uh, people thought he was going to be favorable towards green green energy and just the uh, I guess tech companies in general. So a lot of those growth stories really took off, but it was all on hype. So whenever whenever there's big moves that happen based on hype, um, you know you should probably if you if you're lucky enough to get in on those bubbles, you know before they uh, before they really start spiking, you should probably get out, <laughs> you know once you're up a considerable amount and when they you know when they come start coming back down, really resist the urge to to buy the dip. But but let me ask you, how do you decide? This is a straightforward question. I mean, I know how John Roque would ask the question. I answer him or Michael Kay or Mark Newman. But how in your how did you figure out when it's time to sell? Did you did you do you have some idea of a target price, or you just watch the chart, or you look at the valuation? Like, how, you know, how did you do it initially? And I can imagine a beginning investor because I was one as well. You know, it's it's intoxicating initially. Oh wow, I can do this. Who needs who needs uh, who needs to listen to Michael Kantowitz? Like, you know, my picks are killing you. Or, you know, David Portnoy is smarter than Warren Buffett. Like, what's wrong <laughs> with this picture? So, like, what were you thinking when you started? And now, how, how did your thinking evolve now to, like, what your trading rules would be? Like, how would you decide when to get in and when to get out? So, how, how would I decide now when to get in when to get out? Well, yeah, well, well how, how, how do... I mean, right there, now, I'm in cash. Like, Okay, no, but why don't know. Why don't, yeah, why, okay, why, why, Evander, why are you in cash now? Why are you in cash? Well, I just think that, um, well, I mean, a lot of these small caps, you know, it looks kind of like they are get close to a bottom because they've made a complete round trip, and you know, they're like where they, even below where they were before they all started taking off. But um, with the way the indexes are still near, you know, somewhat near all-time highs, and, you know, I think – those are going to be coming down and no, regardless of how low the small caps are, I just think all that the negativity from the index is falling is going to just continue, like continue to be a drag on the, on the small caps. Do you think like going back to your mindset you had when you first started, like how has your thinking evolved? It doesn't sound to me like that's, doesn't seem sound to me like the Evander of a couple of years ago, would have had that presence of mind to have the same opinion that the Evander of today has. Like, how how's your thinking evolved? What did you learn? Well, I just got started for the first time in early twenty, but that was after seeing you know twelve years straight of a uh, bull market. You know, so at the time, yeah, it seemed like uh, and, and Tesla was the first stock I bought, and that was like what around like seven hundred dollars or something, and uh, but that was pre-split. You know, uh, right. now, now I'm like super skeptical on anything Musk does, uh, including this whole Twitter thing. Um, but I don't, I mean, listening to you guys in this room, it just makes, you know, I got out, like I said, finally a couple weeks ago and, uh, I'm just in cash now and I'm just listening to you guys reassured that the right move is just to basically like sit back and be patient, you know, and, um, resist the urge to, to buy the dip. I mean, I, I, I'm still kind of looking at these small caps just because, um, I did so well, so well with them to begin with. Um, and they seem in the fact that they came all the way back down now and I kind of like want to get my, uh, you know, my revenge on some of these, some of the moves I lost money in, but I think that's not really a wise. Evander, I'll I'll make this, I don't be sexist, but (laughs) I I would just say you continue to eye those as attempted a bad joke. Here we come. I'm going to get a Twitter storm at me. I know, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care. You like eyeing those small caps. It's like, you know, she was hot once that old girlfriend or, you know, for the women in the room, it's that guy. Like he was, he was hot. Like it's just not, it's just not going to be the same again. It's right. just, it's just yeah. not a good idea. Don't go back to the well, go, 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 go somewhere else. Yeah. I always looked at the long-term charts for the indexes. I, you know, I could see that the, the index is how high they were. It just was historically, uh, 
um, unprecedented, really. Like, you know, 2000, 2008, you have these uh, slumps that take five years plus for the market to come back. So, you know, I could figured at some point this is all, all the fun and games is going to end. Yeah. Evander, let me ask you, did you, did you or do you ever look at valuation? Um, you mean like P-E ratios? And yeah, yeah, exactly. Those funny things. Those funny things like P-E ratios and price to book. Do you ever look at those? Like Tesla, I mean, it's worth more than all the other car makers combined. Um, yeah, so yes, I mean, I mean, I know that Mark Newman knows that, and Michael Cantritz knows that, and John Rogue knows that, but it, that means one thing to us. What does it mean to you? It means it's absurdly overpriced. I mean, they sell like what two percent of uh cars worldwide, and they, they're worth more than all the other cars. Okay, okay, so, so Evander, can you explain to me? So you're a smart guy, you don't own it anymore, you never did own it. Can you explain to me why? a lot of the young investors do own that thing? Like, what do they, like, what do they think? Like, what are they smoking? Well, I think it's just what from year, you know, 12 years straight of a bull market, you know, and it's, you know, a lot of people made a lot of money in that time, especially in that age group or their, their older friends or family. So, um, I think it was just buying into the, that, you know, that that could go on right. forever or that, uh, the right. market's going to come All down, right, so, but it's going to yeah, go so, back uh, up and continue, yeah, you know? So Evander, so it's basically number go up, bro. That's basically what it is. Yeah, that was the that was the uh, right. Yeah, stocks always right. go up over right, okay, the long run. So, uh, stocks Evander, always go up, like even Warren Buffett. So, that, yeah. all right, all right, so just stay there. Just stay there. So Mark Newman, um, if you're there, I'd like because I suspect you might have a question or two that might be interesting for Evander. So Mark Newman, if you're there, you could unmute yourself. I'd love because you and I have talked about this stuff. If you could focus, direct a question or two to Evander, I think it'd be really helpful for the room. Hey George. I'm here. And you can hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Did you hear what Evander was saying? Did you hear what Evander was saying? And I want and I want to just say to Evander and to uh, you know, folks who are newer to the game. Sorry, hello. I think Mark, everyone, I think I I think I, hey, I muted. I, yeah, no, I, I got muted there for Yeah, I, I accidentally muted everybody. So start over again, Mark. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, this is for Evander and, and, and for, for everyone else who's sort of newer to the game and how you play. Like you can have your own thesis, and that is what I encourage for everybody, right? You, you want to have your reasons, not your friend's reasons, not your cousin's reason, not the shoe, the shoe shiner's reasons, your reasons for being in the trade, okay? And for a name like Tesla, for a long time, if your validation for the trade was the price action, and that's fine. Some trades are just, it acts great, that's fine. But the minute your thesis gets debunked, by the market okay the minute if you're in tesla because it keeps going up you should have been out of tesla a long time ago right so when i think about why guys are in certain names and certain things you can have your own thesis the minute your thesis is wrong or there's holes poked in it you got to react so again tesla if you wrote it up to 1200 god bless you where is it now i don't even know 800 or something that's what? That's a, that's a big move down. If you were in it for the price action, you should have been out of it for the price action. Not turn your thesis from the price action's great to, oh, they're going to sell cars. They're going to open up another jigget factory or whatever. You can't change your thesis mid-stride and keep your position the same way you did. And that's what I would stress to, to guys like Evander. And in terms of where you are now, Evander, it really sounds like, if in doubt, get out. And that's fine, again, because as George has said many times, the hardest part in a bear market is staying out. Things come in and they look great. Oh, I was in this stock at 40 and now it's at 30. Well, I'll see you at 20, you know? So uh, you always have to 
keep, you know, keep dry powder. And the other thing I'll say is, Evander, you sound like you had a certain situation there where you made some big winnings. When you're at the blackjack table and you win four or five hands in a row, it's probably time to take some of those chips down and maybe just place half-size bets for a little bit, right? Just because you're messing with the profit gods after a while. And, you know, nobody's that good that consistently. So I just think being disciplined in your thesis is really, really critical. Um, now, George, I just wanted to say one or two other quick things here. First, to Michael Kantrowitz, uh, you know, amazing to be on with you. Love to hear your stuff. And uh, to John Roke, I think it was Natix's Bleischroder days when I first started seeing your work. So, again, pretty legendary guy being here, and I'm pretty honored to be here. Um, George, you touched about uh, Ag- Agnos or someone like that just before I was talking about we, we got into a discussion of morals. And I will leave, I'm going to end with this little last thing, okay? John, John Kenneth Galbraith, he came out with this theory called the bezel. And I encourage everyone to sort of Google J.K. Galbraith. I'm in a car right now doing Uber for my kids. But I can't click it or put it up anywhere right now. But John Kenneth Galbraith, the bezel. He talked, this was written in like, I think the early 30s or so, or right after the crash. And he talked about the little bits of larceny that go on in the financial world. You can't really see the thievery. You can't really see the fraud. And it doesn't hurt anyone right away. But then it starts to build up over time. And this is where, at the, on the back end of this behavior, is when you get this devastating crash. Now... Belkin talked about it a few weeks ago, how this next four weeks is critical. George and I, you've, we've debated the death by sandpaper, and I sort of vacillate in between. But when I see and hear what's going on with, hold for it, the Bitcoin story now and how they're talking about retirement money and 401k type allocations to Bitcoin by guys like Saylor, okay, that's guys who full well know they need more cash from the 401ks and the uh, the retirement accounts. I just got to say, Bitcoin's down about 25% in what, since March? 50% since November? My father's 83. If he was in Bitcoin, I would chase down the person who put him in Bitcoin, and it would be ugly. So I just, when I see that level of the bezel, it, it's the bezel right there, put your, uh, put your retirement money into Bitcoin. Could there be a less prudent idea and a bigger shell idea, look for the guys with the, with the laser eyes who can't stop talking about Bitcoin every single day. Those are the culprits. Like, they're the ones who got El Salvador to revalue. I mean, El Salvador is going to default sometime soon. It's just, that's just so, George, it's interesting. Your, your moral compass is such similar to mine in the sense that I only really read nonfiction stories. I don't really, I'm not much into fiction. And the minute there's bullshit out there, and people are trying to pull the wool and take advantage, that's when I get as emotional as George does. I heard you before, George, and I'm with you. That Again, everyone should Google the bezel, J.K. Galbraith, John Kenneth Galbraith, and just take a look and see how that applies to what we see here. Because, again, back to Belkin real quick, these next four weeks, it, it could be that thing, right? Because the bond market, uh, the, 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 the dead bodies in the wake of the bond market, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty hairy out there. It's either that or it's going to be a death by sandpaper grind here. So back to the last thing, Evander, sit on your cash, find the opportunity and tiptoe into ideas. If they don't work, stop and wait till they start working. Yeah, and I'm going to keep uh, 
keep coming back to spaces like this to, you know, right now I'm really not sure what I'm going to do, but um, hopefully I can keep listening to advice from guys like you. So if I could ask, if, ask a follow-up on the question. Yeah, hey, Mark, 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 could you mute yourself? So we're getting some feedback. Evander has another question, and then I'm going to come back with a question. Evander, the floor is yours. Um, yeah, thanks. Just in regards to inflation, um, Trump, when he was in office, used to constantly like harass uh, Powell and tweet at Powell and the Fed, uh, get, trying to get them to lower interest rates or even go negative at one point. Is that? Um, and then also with the PPP loan program, that's something I don't see covered too often uh, with its contribution to inflation because of the fact that uh, there was basically no oversight. And it's like, you're talking what, like trillion dollars or more in PPP loans. Uh, I think Trump got rid of the inspector general that was in charge of overseeing it, uh, that was independently appointed and put in his own guy. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, and then if he gets back in office, is he going to be harassing Powell again? Do you think that's anything that actually, did Powell lower interest rates more than he otherwise would have because of that pressure from Trump? Could that happen again if Trump gets back in office and then, also, Elizabeth Warren just introduced legislation uh, to allow the FTC to investigate uh, price gouging and its contribution to inflation. Is there any merit to the price gouging con uh, inflation uh, correlation, or is that just like a red herring? Yeah, so let, let me take a shot at that. And then if, if either Roke or Cantro or Gnostic or Mark Newman wants that response, well, I'm going to take a shot at some of those. So I don't want to get into politics. I just want to be very clear about that. Politics are intensely personal uh, matter, and I, I just one of the things I love about this room it's it, we, we kind of come together, we try to figure out points of common interest, and we move forward. I don't want to, I don't, don't want this room ever politicized. So, first thing I would say is, to the extent that there was oversight was relaxed, I'm not going to get into particulars. Then there probably was. Who the hell knows? I would just say that generally speaking, and it's not a Republican thing or a Democrat thing, a left thing or a right thing. Whenever the government gets involved, bad shit happens usually. There's complete lack of oversight. Every, all the pigs are feeding at the trough. It's all over the place. And, um, you know, people often say there's so much waste in government. There is, but nobody ever does anything about it. So you may well be right. Um, I know a lot of money was just like, given away. It was just complete stupidity. But, you know, the same thing was done. Um, in uh, uh, when we had the great financial crisis, you know, they came up with this ridiculously big number. It was 800 billion or something like that, and um, they just they had to go big because they wanted to instill confidence in the public. So they made up this number. They had no, you can read about it, and they had no, and John Roke's enough financial story and Cantro as well. Roke might even be able to weigh in on this because John's extremely well read on this stuff. And they just made up a big number because they wanted to go big. They had no idea what they're going to do with it, but they just wanted to be sending a message. And then, so again, not to make it a Republican thing or a Democratic thing, once uh, the proverbial hit the fan, and once you got in the, the post-game show, and, and, and keep in mind, you know, what's his name? Bernanke kept saying, you know, the, the subprime, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I just want to kind of give you context. So I think a lot of times people just respond to what's in the moment. That's like, a, like going back a little bit. You know, credit problems contained, yada, yada, all politicized, you know, whether they believed it or whatever, who the hell knows. But then once the proverbial hit the fan and the crash occurred, they managed to stabilize the system. The decision was then made by the Obama administration. So, again, I, I, I'm an equal opportunity slanderer here. The Obama administration made the decision not to prosecute any of the heads of the banks, the brokerage firms. I mean, Dick Fold should be in jail. Stan O'Neill should be in jail. The head of Bear Stearns should be in jail. 
Anthony Mozilla, the countrywide guy, should be in jail. I mean, I, I'm not. The, the time is too short for me to mention all the names. But nobody was ever held to account. And the simple reason was they made the calculation that the financial system already was suspect in the eyes of the public and whatnot. They didn't want to engender any further lack of confidence. And they thought bringing lawsuits would be a bad thing. So these guys got away with murder. So the point is, I don't, what I, the reason I'm going in this long-winded spiel, Evander, is because I want to make it clear it's not just a political thing. Because what happened is people say, oh, well, Trump did this. Oh, Biden did that. No, no. It's just government just does, period. All right. And it's horrible. Um, you know, price gouging. Yes, there is price gouging going on. But I got news for you. Uh, Monero, who's not in here, he's a really good guy. I wish he was right here. Wish he was in Jackson. If he was in here, he would tell you. I mean, it's unbelievable. He works for Starwood down in Miami, and the, despite the fact that they doubled or tripled uh, room rates, like it's not flowing through the bottom line because the costs are all going up. And, and so, in his case, in so many companies. They've jacked up prices, but their costs have gone crazy, so they're not really making any more money. Now, there are some cases where it's not the case. They clearly are profiting, so there is price gouging going on. But Elizabeth Warren is someone who I really have a bone to pick with, so I'm going to get a little political. The real problem is it's not the Federal Trade Commission. The real problem is there needs to be a proper enforcement of, um, of, 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 of the antitrust laws. Um, and, 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 again, the room I was in the other day, Michael Guyad's room, they were talking about concentration and how, uh, again, a function of rates being held too low, the excessive hyper-financialization of the economy, companies going out and borrowing money and taking over other companies, and that's just more concentration. So over the last, you know, 40 years, you've seen a, a steady increase. And I'm hoping that, um, uh, uh, I think Cantor just left. No, Cantor's a listener now. If he will come back in, because there's some good data on this, how concentration has gone up. So there's a whole bunch of things going on here. And I would just say, whether it's the PPP thing or the concentration saying the antitrust thing uh, or, you know, banks not being prosecuted, there's regulatory failure. Um, people, government's just not doing their job uh, because there's been regulatory capture in so many instances. And, and you know, when you have someone like Sam Bankman-Fried, the head of FTX, and I think they were the the biggest contribu second biggest contributor to the Biden campaign. Again, it doesn't matter which party it is; they all do it. You know, why do you think the crypto rules laws? Why do you think the hammers not come down on crypto? Why do you think the tether thing's not been busted? It's a complete fucking scam. I mean, I'm willing to to turn positive on 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 Bitcoin and crypto if and when the stablecoin scam is 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 finally is is finally dealt with. But until then, forget it. It's another scam. Um, so. I don't know. I probably gave you more than you wanted. I don't know. Mark, did you want to respond to any of that? Uh, no, George, I think you did a good job. I mean, look, I think that, uh, you know, money makes people do funny things. And we're seeing that because there's so much money around. I think that's that's pretty much simple way to I look at it. Sorry, just straight up. No, I think you're right. There's, just, there's too much money. So people get greedy. Okay, let's let's thanks for that, Mark. Let's move on. YS, you've been patient. And after YS, we're going to do Andrea. YS, good to see you again. What's going on? Hi, I was just going to echo and comment on what uh, Evander had said in the past, but uh, I don't know if you want to stay off that topic since we already covered it. No, so no, it's no, up no, to you. I can no, step no, down. No, no, YS, I do want to stay with it. Please, it's very important, especially for all the people in the room. So please go ahead. So similar to him, I'm pretty much a small fry who only started quote-unquote investing maybe three four years ago ironically first in bitcoin made a decent amount of money proceeded to lose most of it piqued my interest but i wanted to speak more about the psychology of it and 
there's a there's a side to investing and maybe you disagree with that or maybe you support it but there's a side where it's a it's a little bit of a competitive sport and it's a little bit of a zero-sum game so it's almost like interesting people inter- getting people interested in it and competing inevitably regardless of anyone's intentions kind of leads the lamb to the slaughter a little bit right so the more you expand the, the pool of participants the more the 2080 dynamics enforce themselves and just from a younger person's perspective a lot of our generation is not really in it for the greed but almost out of desperation because if you look at how many people don't have a reliable job don't have a career or a prospect for a career yet we see those quote-unquote success stories on tv and how everyone's making money hand over fist unions have gone away 401ks are unreliable people honestly cannot rely on ever being able to retire or match the lifestyle of you know their baby boomer parents a lot of people are kind of golded and, and prodded into going into the market especially with apps like robin hood and i'm all for personal agency and you know if you don't belong there you shouldn't no one's making you do it i, I understand that but there's an element of that and there's an element of this excess it's almost like when you know you're doing something you shouldn't be doing um but it appears that it's part of the game, right? There's no regulators. No one's really enforcing the rules. And that appears to be the game and appears to have been the game for the last 40 minute, forty years. Uh, it's almost an element of, you know how some serial killers get explicitly sloppy because deep down they want to be caught? Well, I think that's the case with a lot of retail. You know, they just want to go out there. A lot of them are not just patient investors trying to compound their gains. They're yellowing, right? And who is a person who do something like that? Obviously, you, you think that's your last chance. It's a Hail Mary. So if you're going to do a Hail Mary, yeah, you're gonna, probably going to invest in Tesla. It's probably going to be stupid. Same as Bitcoin. It's probably going to be stupid, but it's a fucking Hail Mary. You're not going to invest in Chevron or Costco or anything like that and hope that 40 years down the, down the line, you, you may be able to retire. Uh, so there's an unspoken element of that. And yeah, people never learn that. that that's true. But look what's happening now in in Russia and, and the United States, possibly World War Three, No one ever learns, right? It's, it's, so it's not just investing. I mean, we get our hand burnt, and as soon as it heals, we go and burn the other one. It, it's a part of human psychology. It's just that the over-financialization that you referred to, now it's enveloping more and more and more aspects of life, and you either have to be a hermit and be the happy guy at the bar, someone earlier, Gnostic earlier referenced, and say, this doesn't concern me, Right? I'm unencumbered because I can't do anything about it and I'd rather not know about it. Or you have to jump in the fray and be the fresh blood unless you're lucky enough to stumble into a group like this one before you lose all your savings and then learn how to basically be the predator and not the prey. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of zero sum being in the market. You know, you got to sell to someone else. You got to buy from someone else. And at the end of the day, when you retire, you hope to have more than what you started with. Um, I have more thoughts, but I, I don't want to rent on. Um, yeah, I don't have I don't have a question. I just no, wanted YS, to kind of no, provide no, a perspective. No, why? Why? This is a really good, a really good um, point you brought up, and, and and this room's a little bit different from other rooms we've done, but I really like what we're now talking about because I think this is extremely relevant for the room. I know there are a lot of younger people in the room that want to learn. And so I want to thank you, Evander, for bringing this up and for you, YS, piling on. So let me have a couple thoughts. So I want to take issue with a couple of things you said. You said it's, comp- it's from a competition. 
Well, I'm going to turn to some of the gray hairs. I'm going to say something. There's a few things I want to pick apart. Two things. One, it's a competition. And then you talked about, you know, people doing a Hail Mary, they're going to buy Tesla. So let me take the second thing first. I urge everyone to run, not walk to the room we did on Wednesday with uh, Dr. Peter Atwater and William and Mary. He's a behavioral, uh, he studies behavioral uh, finance. And he talked exactly about this, that when people feel they're desperate, when they're outside the system and they've got nothing to lose, they'll throw the Hail Mary. And also when interest rates are at zero, you can start to believe your time preference extends. So when you're detached, you, you, you want to get away from reality. And when rates are very low, you, get, you, you go out more into the future. So it's sort of like you know, financial asset prices uh, floating around with zero gravity. And that's what creates this, this ability to, uh, for prices to really drift away from any fundamental value. And then you add in that the gamification with you know, trading on an app. And, and free trading, I mean, back in the day, you know, transaction costs were extremely high. It doesn't cost you anything to trade. All you got is push a button. It speeds up uh, t- transactions, turnovers, and vo- trading volume, and it's not healthy. The only one making money off of this is Citadel. So that's the first point. And the part about competition, that's really strange because I want Bob Justin. I'm actually going to go to Bobby J and then Mark and then Gnostic. I want each of them to answer this question. When I grew up, and I started my career failure in 1981. No, it wasn't like that at all. It's not like you're trying to outdo your friends. I mean, this is the way, I mean, I'm not blaming you. You're speaking for your generation. I understand that. But the idea that this is like some drinking game? No, this is not a game. This is investing. This is saving your money. This is investing your money for the future. Not for what's going to go up next week so you can have a few years down the road. This is not a game. You, probably, you guys have heard me been in this room for a while talking about the gamification of the stock market. This is not a game. This is not a game. And when people watch Jim Cramer or, you know, any of the Bitcoin uh, shills or any of these people, these promoters, this is not a game. And so I don't blame you. I thank you for speaking. But I'm horrified because this is emblematic of what's going on in the public at large. I mean, it is not a game. I trust you. I trust you. And here's the problem. It's because this has gone on for so long that people think it's a game and they think it's a competition. The number only go up, bro. If we had a freaking bear market, this is the sort of Minsky, you know, the, 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 the Minsky moment that we're approaching. The, the problem is that the drinks have been served, been flowing pretty heavily spiked drinks for too many years. And that's, and we're all human. We're all human. Been there, done that, bro. I'm not being critical of you. I was young once upon a time too. But this is not a game. So, Mark Newman, I want you to go first, and then Bobby J, and then Gnostic. Mark Newman? Yeah, hi, George. Hi, guys. Um, yeah, so on the competition thing, does the competition care what happens to your wallet? No. I care what happens to my wallet. The competition I have is between me and me. So if my friend made got into Bitcoin at 17 cents, and it's now he's still long, good for him. He's done well. He's killed it. As a, I don't think that he won that competition. I don't care. He's got a lot of shekels from that trade. Good for him. What did my portfolio do for today with me? Did, did, did Philip Morris pay its dividend? I don't know, whatever it might be. But the competition is between me and the market, I guess. But really between me and me. And if I worry about everyone else, it, it's taking me off my game. 
I can tell you. Now, there's a difference between that and like providing advice and thoughts and saying, hey, this looks like it broke down. This looks like it's going up. I'm happy to share and give guys ideas and get get reflection. But I'm not competing with them saying, oh, what price did you get in? And I really want to know that because my price is my price. That's really what that comes down to. And I want to talk about that other item about YOLO on Tesla or whatever. So as you are, as you get older, you generally take less risks, right? So you should, one should, I, I don't, that's my philosophy. Others could think their own way. But so when you're younger in that sort of early 20, 30 old category, you probably hopefully have a longer uh, income stream ahead of you potentially for having a job. So you can take more risks and you can go for that YOLO bet and that's fine. But, but I would urge part of that portfolio to be, you know, duration adjusted in the sense that your Tesla bet YOLO is to win tomorrow. Okay. But your bet in randomly pick a stock, Philip Morris, nice dividend, whatever. You have a long time horizon for that investment. So that part of my money, yeah, I can be in the YOLO. If I'm older, my YOLO bet is smaller. If I'm younger, my YOLO bet can be bigger again dependent on am I going to earn income over my lifetime? So again, back to that Bitcoin telling retirees to put their money in there. That's money you want to go to zero if you're putting it in Bitcoin as a retiree. That's what I'll say. But as a younger kid who has maybe a hundred bucks in the bank, you want to put 10 or 15 bucks on some YOLO bet? Yeah, I would too. But I wouldn't have my old man do that, right? So there's a difference where to, where to have that YOLO bet and what, it, what for it to be in, right? At this stage, I wouldn't be taking a lot of YOLO bets. I think the YOLO decade is behind us. So it just, it just, it just depends on where you are in your, in your time frame. But you can take those YOLO bets. But I would not be, even at a young age, looking to get rich tomorrow in Tesla. I'd want some of my money more stable, projected over time. So I, I, I juxtapose having YOLO bets on with I want to have my money tomorrow. And I think everyone needs to think about that wherever they are in the 20 to 30 year old, 60 year old, whatever it is, you know, um, and the competition thing. The only person who cares about the competition is my, me and my wallet at the end of the week, the month, the year, t 10 years from now. So that's who I'm competing against. Yeah. Do you mind if I just respond quickly? Uh, points well taken. And thank you so much, George and Mark. Uh, and I wasn't condoning that uh, or justifying it. I was just trying to kind of put some color and maybe, you know, empathize a little bit with people who do it and continue to do it. Um, so competition, not so much against your friend or your group of friends or anything like that. What I meant by that is that, in general, it seems that for the last 20 years, at least from my perspective, we haven't really achieved that much productivity growth, right? So between 0% interest rates, uh, you know, free money, easier movement of that money, it just seems like money is just changing hands and sloshing around. So competition vis-a-vis the market in general. Someone makes money, someone loses money, right? It's not a healthy growing economy organically with a healthy real interest rate that's contributing to growing the pie. It just seems like the pie is just being divided differently every so often and ever much quicker in redistributing that. And to the second point, also because it appears, and maybe it wasn't like that in the past, I'm not sure, but it appears that the decisions of the Fed have outsized effects on what the market and the stock price does. I'm not sure when was the last time in your estimation that the actual company and the stock behaved reasonably. Maybe never, right? Or maybe they went back into alignment in quicker succession earlier and not now. 
young people seem to have internalized the idea that the market is just a Keynesian beauty contest on steroids. And you bet, kind of like in poker, not so much on the company itself, but what you think, much more behaviorally, right? Maybe without even explicitly thinking it this way, but you bet on what other people will bet, and they do the same. So it is, is this recursive dynamic that explodes prices. So that's why people are yellowing in those names, because honestly, I think they do it because they want to get one big hit and get out of it. Obviously, it never happens this way. You get one big hit, you think you're the greatest, and you, you go back for seconds, and before you know, you're down, and you're chasing your losses, and we all know the, those dynamics, right? But, and George, this is nothing against you. I love learning in these rooms, but honestly, I'd rather not have to spend or feel like I have to spend three hours learning about those you know, arcane concepts just to stay above water. Now, I happen to be a curious person, and I enjoy it, but honestly, I'd rather do anything else. It's just right, that a lot right, of people... Why, why, is, why, is, why, is, why is that triggered me? In, in the good spirit. I'm not attacking you. And I want... I want Mark, you can... Bobby J, if you have an answer... Mark, actually, I want you to answer this after I answer it. The idea that you don't have to spend the time to figure it out, that right there, my friend, that is the problem. I don't care what any endeavor you undertake... It's a 10,000-hour thing. You know, the Beatles learning how to play, Michael Jordan shooting free throws, becoming a doctor, whatever, okay? you got to spend the fucking time. That right there is the problem in a nutshell. I'm afraid you misunderstood me, George. I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't want to say that I want to be successful at something without spending the time, right? I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it is that if I had faith that the government and the economy would behave rationally. And if I work and save my money, eventually I'll be okay. I would stay away from investing. That that was my that was my idea. Well, the fact okay, that I don't uh, feel okay, this okay, way, okay. I am spending the time yeah, yeah, okay, so because I feel compelled to do it. That, yeah, that's okay, fine. that's okay, my okay, point. Okay, fine. okay, so let me respond to that. So for what, good, I'm glad you are spending the time. I will tell you, there are millions and millions of investors, young and old, who are not spending the time. It's a fucking game. Number go up, bro. Okay. As Senator Moynihan famously once said, I'm going to calm down now. You're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. I know you, Wyatt. You're a smart guy. We've been in here a lot. You do your work. But sadly, the vast majority of investors nowadays don't do the fucking work. They're chasing whatever bullshit Jim Cramer's serving up or Kathy Wood's serving up. There are certain endeavors you would never dare try. Bobby J would never dare try. Michael Newman would de never dare try. Like if someone said to me, "Hey, go, you got to, you, you got to go fix your car. There's a problem with the engine." Like, okay, if I watched a million YouTube videos and spent a few months studying all the manuals, maybe I would try to do it. But initially, I'd say, "No, no, I ain't trying that. That's behind my pay grade." Unfortunately, unfortunately, the, such a too many large number of investors out there in the public square right now are trying to fix their car. They watch one YouTube video and think, oh, we're good. We're good, bro. And what they do is they go for long, lowest common denominator bullshit. They're visual. They look at a chart. Oh, yeah. Get your crayons and ruler out. Now I'm a technician. Support, resistance, resistance, support. Fibonacci, breakout. We're good to go. It's all good, bro. Mark Newman, you want to pile on this one a little bit? Mark Newman? All right. No, I'm here. I'm here. Sorry, I was just uh, doing something. You know, um, 
I, I think that one of the things uh, I, I was I thought about as I was listening was the one of my least favorite expressions these days is the TLDR expression. Too long, didn't read. Everyone wants sort of the Cliff Notes five minute version of how to how to ace the next test, whatever it is, right? And I think that that's how you get a lot of false narratives, right? I read something for 10 or 15 minutes and I know exactly what's going on when the guys who've been around a long time know you probably have to read 10 or 15 minutes times about six or eight, eight different opinions and views and sources to start to get half the picture. So I just think that, um, you know, everyone needs to make sure that the homework, the, the investigating they've done to create their thesis is the same is applied with the same rigor to whatever situation they're in. You decide to buy X, Y, or Z, your thesis. The minute your thesis is in doubt or, 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 or you have to adjust the percentage allocated to that trade, right? Because the, 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 the minute you get into that idea of, oh, it was the only reason it's up is because of Russia or whatever, and then it starts going down and Russia's not over, you have to adjust your thesis, right? And I think that's really important. And I think that does come uh, with with thorough investigation and not much TLDR. So I think everyone sort of coming to this room on a Saturday afternoon is a sign that people are willing, willing and want to learn more. And I think that's the way you can ace these situations and not uh, be, be, be drawn in by, 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 char- by charlatans, really. Hey, 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 Newman, educate me. I'm an old white guy. I'm trying to learn. TLDR, what does that mean? Too long, didn't read. So you send a long piece of research to someone and they say, it was too long, I didn't read it. What's the story? They're going to miss the nuances. If I sit here and give you five reasons why A, B, or C is going to happen and I detail each reason and that allows you to sort of perceive whether I'm looking at the right things or the wrong things, it allows you to come to a conclusion. If I just say, here are the five reasons and I don't give you any information, you don't understand the rationale behind the decision. So you don't know as much about the situation as if you read the entire body. hundred percent. All right. I want Bobby J. Um, are you there, Bobby J? Yes, I am. All right. I don't want to do credit right now because we're in a really great thread on, on this experience question. So if you could, we'll do credit in a few minutes. Could you just, since you've been around for a while, do you have any perspective on this TLDR thing and people, you know, cutting corners and the gamification and the competition aspect that was raised and not being critical of anybody, but just from where you come from, what are, what are your views on all those topics? Well, to what YS was saying, number one, we know that the intention of the fed and government is to push people out on the risk curve and they're succeeding and they have succeeded and they had to do it because every time the patient uh, loses a pulse, they need to inject more. We all know that. So we're, we're making this way more complicated uh, than we should. Number two, George, one of the purposes of your mission here is you remember Reverend Sung Moon and, you know, when he sucked people in or Jonestown or any of those places that people had to be deprogrammed when they were rescued. Well, I think you're deprogramming people here. And, you know, we can go into all the myths 
and all the misinformation and all the CNBC nonsense, all the Fed talk and all of that. And this room is giving me a headache today because I don't know what some of the people are talking about, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, Trump wanted rates at negative zero. And the, I mean, what has that got to do with anything? It would be a service to the to the country if they put a moratorium on Fed speak and just watch the mortgage rate. So, you know, George, you got a lot of work ahead of you. And um, there's a lot of myths that have to be changed. And maybe we've taught the next generation the wrong thing. Maybe we're leaving them with a bag of shit. So um, this is going to go on. And um, you got some work to do, bud. Bobby, uh, we do. And just so everyone knows, Bobby and Carol and RJ and Jack and uh, Andrew, we're all in this together. And you're going to see a lot more coming from us. And Bobby J is going to be an integral part of that whole thing. He is an integral part of that whole thing. In fact, we were talking this morning. He's trying to get our website up. So, Bobby, just stay up there. I don't want to do credit right now because we're on this other fantastic thread right now. Gnostic, you have a, you want to weigh in on this, Gnostic? Uh, yeah, I put something in the nest. Uh, Charles McKay's 1841 book, Extraordinarily Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Um, just for anybody that wants to sit down and do it, Michael, thanks for the clap. I saw that. Uh, in case anybody doesn't, in case anybody in here doesn't understand that internet, no internet, retail trading, no retail trading, nothing has changed since 1841. It repeats again and again and again. And anybody that says that, you know, you don't have to do your work, you don't have to study, you don't have to do anything else. You know, this book just has dozens of presentations of unbelievably overhyped, too much money in the system, um, going back hundreds of years, like into the 1400s, uh, where the too much money in the system just distorted all of the investments to phenomenal pricing, destroyed uh, whole countries, the, the, the gold discovery in South America, destroying the Spanish uh, economy, uh, tulipomania, the South Sea bubble scheme, all of that McKay covered in this book. And is if anybody thinks that there's anything new Read this book and apply that to today, and you've, you've learned a tremendous amount. Um, the book was an eye-opener for me when I was first uh, in university, and uh, it, it's just unbelievable. There, there are other newer books around now um, that, that do the thing. I'll find the other one and post it up, which is a newer reversion, revision of this one, not by McKay, of, of course, but... The, the thing is that we're not educating people on how to how to handle money, not educating people on the past and the, the market moving the way that it does for hundreds of years, regardless of what it is. Tulips, um, South Sea Bubble, land in, in Florida, uh, Louisiana, per whatever it is, it's been around for a long, long time. People get carried away. The person at the front end of it is brilliant. He's has can ignore all the, the standard analysis and all the standard warnings. He can go ahead, make a fortune, look like a genius, gets carried away. All the people following him don't learn anything new. They think you win every single solitary time. There's no losses in the system. Nobody learns from losing. Nobody sits down and does the work. Everybody becomes a genius. Everything heats up more and more and more and more, starts moving faster and faster and faster. It's not the internet. It's not computers. It's not any of the rest of the stuff. 
This is repeated for 500 years exactly the same way. And it works exactly the same way. And it always ends up exactly the same way. A huge crash. Everybody gets hurt. Everybody goes, oh, my God, what happened? And what you're, you're saying here, George, is, <clears throat> and, and what I've tried to, to say earlier, sooner or later, capital destruction occurs. All of that excess money, all of that excess profit gets squeezed out of it somewhere. And the only people that survive are the ones that learn. And when we sit down and go, what do we teach people? One of the things is learn to survive when the market decides it's going to die and figure out the cues for when it's going to die. And the excesses in the system are one of the primary cues when stuff is going to turn around and die. And that's one of the reasons I'm in this room is to listen to all of you guys give me the slightest little whiff or clue of trying to figure out when we've hit that, that before we hit that peak. Like, I don't want to sell on the way down. I want to sell before it hits that peak, not too early, but just at the right time. And that's the art of history, learning, studying, and doing what we're here in the room. No, I said, couldn't have said it better. I'm going to go to Michael K. Uh, but I would just say, I think, and I made the call a couple of hours ago, I think we're we're on the roller coaster. It's you know we're already in a bear market. If you get away from the soundbite indices, we're in a bear market, right? But if you want to know when are we going to come up on a point, and and I'll ask this, I, I think we're coming up on a point where before we go to Michael K, I'm going to go back to Mark Newman, then we go to Michael K, because Mark Newman is a trading animal. I think we're in the zone. I think we're possibly in the kill zone. Um, you know, the dream is not going to die that quickly, but if you want to know. When are we coming up on the headline grabbing down days? It's I think it's just starting. Volatility is expanding. Credit spreads are starting to widen. Um, you know, we we we've only we only saw two weeks of significant outflows. But as Helene Meischel always says, price follows uh, sentiment follows price. I think there's a real chance of the uh, trapdoor opening and a complete. Complete. I mean, we're going to come in one of these days. The market's going to be down two thousand. I don't know, Mark Newman. Let me let me hold on. Just just before we do that, let me make one more <clears throat> one more issue here. Uh, I run a news service, and we sit down and follow this stuff, and we follow the indicators and and other things. But one of the things that really annoyed me was when the <clears throat> the SEC came out with Rule FD. You can't talk to the analysts. You can't talk to the other people. The volatility in the market went through the roof. I mean, now there's no. There's no easing into the market. There's nobody telling people what's coming. All of a sudden, it just suddenly hits and volatility has gone ballistic. On top of that, when they changed the banking rules and banking regulations and took away the market desks and, and market traders, the liquidity dropped through the floor. So now you've got increased volatility, decreased market participation. And this gets back to the question of, of concentration. And how i mean this is just like a, a recipe for an ongoing disaster and by regulation 100 percent gnostic newman uh your trading hat please you getting those heebie-jeebie feelings that we could be coming up on a trap trapdoor minsky moment newman so i've been debating this right since belkin's since belkin's insights over the last well two times he was here right um at least for me that i heard you know and you and i george have debated the death by sandpaper versus the oh shit moment right and you know if i look back at 2000 we had a peak in march of uh 1550 or 55 something like that and then in september six months later it was 1530 in the s p so that was the sort of beginning of death death by sandpaper beginning right because it was down and it was up in that six months here we've had a real crazy start and look 
it's funny, right? Belkin said, I think it was, I don't know, a few days ago, whatever, a week ago, he talked about someone's going under. It feels like something's up. And then the next day or two, I think Jason Gefford of Sentiment Trader, he came out with a tweet that said the bond market and the stock market got so tattooed today, it feels like someone's blowing up. And I just, I just, I, my, my Belkin, my Belkin mind started popping, right? Because he, he had just talked about this. And it's it's either that the next four weeks something's coming or uh, there could be the death by sandpaper is this alternate version. I will tell everyone here and like, you know, truth, I, I don't go to bed, not I, 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 I don't go to bed without some sort of double short protection on my book. It's not huge. It's not my whole book. But like I know that there weren't a bear market because on the up days when we're up 3% like we were on that day during the week, I lagged by about 100 bips. Nah, whatever. On the days we're down 5 or 6% like the day before, I'm flat and thinking, man, I wanted to be up more. But the point is, I, I'm not going to go to bed without some sort of double long gearing to the downside just in case. That's sort of how I'm hedging because I want to be there when, like you said, we, hey, if we don't wake up down 10 one day, then fine, whatever or more then fine, whatever. I lose a little bit. It's not that I'm, my other things hopefully holding me up, but it's, it's either one or the other, I think at this point, and that's not, not very convicted, but um, I, hear you. Th- I, do, I, do, I do think the next few weeks are going to be yep. mission critical. Yeah, no, I agree. We're, we're sort of like, you know, remember uh, China syndrome. Funny. We should use that. The, the, the Jane Fonda movie back from the early nineties with the, the San Andreas fault, you know, things start shaking. I think it's kind of what the market is doing. Let, let's move on. I want Who's to go Jack to Mike. Lemon? Who's Jack Lemon? Is that Powell? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let, I got to go, George. Have a great right, day. Right, this right. place is amazing. Take care, Michael. Be good. Bye. All right. All right. Michael K. and then uh, Anas Haji. Michael K. Hey, I just had a quick comment. We were talking books. Um, and I don't know, maybe if that'd be a cool thing to get, George. I don't know if you're thinking of any authors to get, if we can get, you can get to jump on any of these spaces. Um, that would be super cool as well. Uh, so I just figured I'd throw out one of my favorite books, uh, which is The Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor. It's one of the f- earliest books I read uh, getting into Wall Street. Uh, it goes through a lot of the examples that Mark was talking about earlier about bubbles. Uh, it's an entertaining read. He's still he's still doing it. Uh, we actually had him speak at a macro conference maybe seven or eight years ago. Uh, was super bullish heading into or bearish Why heading into the housing crisis. Why are the next four weeks so critical? Hello. Apologize for that. I had to throw somebody off stage. They were just mouthing off. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that out. Devil take the hindmost. Edward Chancellor. That's uh, the book I was looking for. Ah. Yeah, and, and Michael, I know it's Edward Chancellor. Um, okay. He, I met him. I was at a couple of Jim Chanos's conferences. He's a friend of Jim's. Really, really smart guy. Second the motion. Uh, the other book I throw out there is the Kindle, the Kindleberger book, which is sort of like the the, the reference uh, guide on book on, yeah. uh, on, on 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 bus booms and bus. It's not as easy to read. That as, one's death. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not as easy. Extraordinary. I would urge. I would everyone urge everyone to run, not walk, to go read the Charles McKay book, "Extraordinary Illusions of the Man with the Crowds." It's a delightful book. It's an easy read. It's only a couple hundred pages. If you like that, then you can go to the Kindleberger book. But uh, Michael, your suggest your the book you recommend is fantastic as well. Um, all right, so we're gonna do so. Doctor, um, so Anasahaji's here. 
he's going to speak. He's been waiting. He was out. He's back in. The, the, the media is all over him. And then we've got a bunch of other speakers up at door. I'm going to get to all of you. But uh, Anasa Haji, good to see you again. What's on your mind, my friend? Uh, thank you very much. I'm sorry I had to leave for about 15 minutes for a TV interview. Uh, but uh, uh, when I listened to my uh, to our colleagues earlier speaking about uh, inflation, uh, Kathy Wood, Blackstone, etc., uh, I just have the following comments. Uh, yes, we all agree we have very high level uh, uh, inflation. Uh, fuel prices are up, food prices are up, and almost the price of everything went up. But people forget uh, two points. The first point is climate change policies are inflationary by nature. So even if you forget about Ukraine, forget about uh, the uh, Russia and all that stuff. That inflation is going to stay with us as long as those green policies are going to be more aggressive than ever. So uh, the climate change policies are inflationary by nature. The second point is people ignore the fact that all the CPI measurements and PPI and others really focus on the quantity and value but does not focus on the quality of the product. Uh, uh, now, for example, in my house, I'm, I'm facing a problem because it's uh, a 20-year-old house, but all of a sudden, everything is breaking down. And every time I talk to a contractor, I say, well, you know, the lifespan of this is only 15 years, and this is 12 years, and, well, you should have done this because this would have lasted 30 years. Uh, so the quality of the product basically deteriorated uh, uh, in, in, I'm talking about products we use on daily basis, uh, etc. deteriorated. And therefore, if you really want to count for quality, inflation is way higher than what is uh, uh, reported. And uh, back to what uh, Nestec was talking about, uh, uh, there is a book uh, published in Arabic in Egypt over 700 years ago. And it's been translated to English. The author last name is al-makrizi and al-makrizi basically invented the quality theory the quantity theory of money so the quantity theory of money did not appear in europe in the 17th century it was stolen basically literally stolen letter by letter from a book that was published 300 years earlier in egypt and he literally talks about what nestec was talking about uh, uh, that it is about money supply it's uh, these policies the Access money, the uh, inflation, uh, etc. So the quantity theory of money was introduced first in Egypt over 700 years ago. Uh, I would like to go back because I know they mentioned Kathy, Kathy uh, Wood and Blackstone, etc. Notice that all the companies you guys are talking about are the ones that adopted the green policies and they shied away from what they call fossil fuel. There is a big thing here to to pay attention to. And uh, I'm going to retweet a tweet that I uh, wrote this morning uh, for those who want to see my account and see the tweet, but I'm going to read it quickly. Cathy uh, uh, Wood started, uh, started this company to focus, and this quote is taken directly from the mission of uh, uh, the company, focus solely on disruptive innovation. What did she miss? The share revolution was one of the most disruptive in our lifetime, uh, it will take electric vehicles 80 years to replace the oil and gas added by the share revolution in eight years. 
So which one is more disruptive? Why should they not invest in the disruptive technology? Uh, now, my explanation to this for those who are wondering what that means, uh, the share revolution is so disruptive that it disrupted uh, the economics and disrupted the politics. And President Trump would not have reimposed sanctions on Iran if it wasn't for the share revolution. He would not have imposed sanctions on uh, Venezuela without the share revolution. He, he would not have said what he said about Saudi Arabia and after that uh, Biden and all the issues we have the U.S. had with Saudi Arabia right now without the share revolution. So it was very disruptive in terms of economics, in terms of finance, and in terms of, uh, uh, of politics. The final comment I would like to make, I've seen in recent days there were so many tweets talking about how low the international recount is, and therefore this is very bullish and inflationary. Please, 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 anything that comes from on international recount does not count because the recount by Baker Hughes is only a fraction of what exists internationally. And therefore, we got to be very careful making conclusions. To, just to give you an idea, the recount in Saudi Arabia is multiples of what Baker Hughes is reporting. Uh, so those who are making conclusions about the future of the oil market or about the inflation, they got to be careful using Baker Hughes numbers. Back to you, George. Uh, just before you do that, Dr. Anis, would you be kind enough to put a link up? I can't send you a DM, but if you could be kind enough to put a link up to that uh, article you were talking about, I would much appreciate it. Oh, which one? Uh, the Arabic um, talking about the uh, money. Uh, definitely, I will, I will uh, come up with uh, some links, not only one. And uh, uh, and if I see something, uh, I know for sure that the book was translated to several languages. I will send that to. I, I would be much appreciated. Yeah, Dr. Alger, one one other question because I I think I got a little bit confused. Could you just repeat the comment about the Baker Hughes recount and why that is a little bit misleading? Could you just say that again, please? Yes, Baker Hughes publishes recount numbers on weekly basis and monthly basis. Uh, uh, some the the first uh, data set is for North America, and that's almost accurate. But when it goes international, it goes monthly, but that's not accurate. What they report is only a fraction of what is around the world. For example, we have thousands of Chinese rigs around the world, and they are not being counted by Baker Hughes. Uh, they don't know what's going on in Saudi Arabia, so only... The American companies, American registered companies, basically, they get their information. They don't get information about the rest. Uh, so the numbers that they report are only a fraction of reality. And some people are taking Baker Hughes numbers and saying, look, the oil market is going to be, uh, oil prices are going to be higher because we don't have enough rigs around the world. We are not making enough investment. Well, the, yes, the market is tight and will remain tight for a long period, but not as tight as they are talking about because, again, a, a country like Saudi Arabia has multiples in terms of rigs, multiples of what Baker Hughes is reporting, and therefore their production in the future is going to be higher than what those people are talking about. Thank you very much for that clarification. That's extremely useful information. Um, okay, so let's now go to – well, we have quite a room here today – um four and a half hours and still going so here we go all right i want to do um jeffrey and then 
uh, Andreas. Jeffrey, good to see you again. What's up? So, so George, you've been nailing this cautionary tale in the markets, and which, which I proceeded to pull out my my family's um, portfolio, which was, you know, pretty large. Um, and and I appreciate you and your your guests. So we got out at forty six hundred on the the SPX. So thank you for that. And then uh, another thing that I'd like to mention is if you guys uh, haven't watched or or heard Michael Green and Dr. Anas's um, discussion about oil. I think it was the other day on Michael Green's um, spaces. It was beautiful. I, you know, I, 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 I love the back and forth and, and I thought Dr. Anas was brilliant. So I, I you know, I, I just want to kind of say thank you for everybody doing this. And then my one question is uh, channeling my inner Donald Rumsfeld. What is a great known unknown? There? What, what are we not seeing? Great unknown, unknown, unknown. Okay, I'll tell yeah. you one. Uh, Jeffrey, I hear feedback. I'm sorry. There's something in your background which is not right. I don't know what's going on. Um, so the great known unknown. Yes, sir. Yeah. What, what are we not seeing? Yeah, that the Russian. Okay, I'll tell you the great unknown. unknown. I'm not going to tell you where this comes from, but I'm not making this up. And it comes from a very reliable speaker, someone who has been in this room. And it was one of the most widely acclaimed rooms that we've had. I do not want to give up the source. The known unknown is. Okay, I'm going to scare people a little bit. The known unknown is what's really going on in uh, with Russia. That the Russians and the United States are both having supply chain issues with respect to their missile capabilities. That um, Putin is getting increasingly desperate. And given that they have supply chain issues with making more missiles, there's a thought around the place that the next Larvazy pull may be more to do with stepped-up cyber attacks and possibly nuclear devices. Another known unknown. Uh, half the Ukrainian wheat crop is gone already. Another known unknown. This conflict is going to go on for years. Do I have your attention, Jeffrey? Yes, sir. What about in the credit markets? Do, do, we, do we see any, any blow-ups there? Mute yourself, please. So Bobby J, now's your chance to weigh in on credit, Bobby J, if you're still there. Yeah, it, it's going to be a while for corporate credit. I was just looking at um, all the companies that issued 80 and 100-year uh, bonds and 40-year bonds and uh, high yields ex extended the maturities. So, you know, be patient. Credit, um, corporate credit is going to take a little longer, but consumer credit is going to be hit first. And uh, home affordability is the front and center. So uh, I put... Um, home affordability and then eventually consumer credit and then European credit and then corporate credit in, in that order. And uh, the other thing I'd like to say is that home affordability, um, it's it just another hundred basis points in higher mortgage rates. It's a simple formula. It's going to happen uh, if we get that hundred basis points. Home affordability will be the worst that it's been since 1986, okay? 
And we talked about the uh, inflation being really higher than it stated. Well, guess what that means? That means that, you know, the jig is up, right? Posting great numbers uh, is going to stop working because it's going to stretch into consumer credit. And we also saw an increase in consumer credit because people are having to finance price increases. All right. So it's really simple, right? Mortgages, consumer credit, uh, European credit, then corporate credit. Thanks for that. Um, Okay. I want to go now to Andrea, Andreas, and then we're going to be followed. Andreas and then Wael. Andreas, welcome to the room. What's up? Hey, George. Um, Thanks for having these spaces. I just want to say I appreciate everything you're doing. I've learned so much in the six months. I used to be like, I mean, I make, you know, good money and just put it in index funds and let it go. Forget about it. Look at it once a year or whatever. But, I mean, it's tumultuous times. And then, you know, as the Fed gave all this money, I FOMO'd a little bit. And I always promise myself, you're not going to do anything crazy. 20% of your net worth and play with that. Okay, I'm fine. I mean, I'm probably, I'm 50 now. So, you know, I, I was like, okay, I could like live to the end of years and be fine. But so then what I started doing, listening to you, I became more cautious and whatever. I probably have like 10 different brokerage accounts from the most conservative to the most risky and I'm putting way more money in the most conservative ones lately um, just by listening to you. I kind of want to pull it all out because um, as I educate myself, I used to not look at PEs and the stats and EBITDAs. Like there's so many negative EBITDA companies that everyone's hyping. So ridiculous. Um, I wouldn't touch that. I kind of I'm learning to short stuff better. Um, but, you know, that's more of a risky game. That's my probably smallest one because I don't want to play with anything, but, you know, and I do the I bonds because right now it's great for inflation and the rates, five years, no taxes, one year I can pull it out if everything drops for unknown reasons. But basically you have helped me guide myself to that reason and doing some research. It's like when I go to a restaurant, I look and buy something. I just don't buy it to buy it, but I think a lot of the younger people just do it because it's, it's almost like a, you go to the gas station and buy a lotto ticket and feel like, hey, maybe I'll make it, but I, I, it's, it, it never works out, really. But um, I just want to, I, I, I don't even think QT has arrived yet, so that's why I want to pull all my money out and sit. You know, there's some good companies that are strong companies with good balance sheets that probably will still go down but i'm just like in energy and maybe some shipping but that's it i I just wanted your opinion on like is that a good way to navigate it or just sit back yeah so 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 i like the way you think uh andreas and you know i'm glad you found some of the ramblings in these rooms over the last few months to be of help i never want to be in the position of being responsible for anyone's decisions i can't do that Again, we're trying to teach people how to fish. We're not giving them fish. Everyone's responsible for their own decisions. 
the fact that you made those decisions and you've done well in energy and cut back on some of the other stuff and you think some of that was inspired by what you learned in this room, that's all on you. You know, I, I, I can put that out there and you'll agree to do, you say it makes sense and a hundred other people will say, no, that doesn't make sense. Or they're too in love with Tesla or their whatever fl- favorite SPAC is. I, I can't. So you're responsible. You get the credit for the win. You're going to get the credit for the loss. It's not on me. I'm just trying to teach you, like show you how to think about things. And if you found some of that helpful, great. As to your question is, I don't know if you were in the room a couple of hours ago, but as you know, because you've been listening to me for a while, I keep referring to stocks as offering return-free risk. One should be defensive. One should be in cash. The only thing I've had is energy. Everything else, forget about it. I think, though, that we're coming up on a point now where if we get into a generalized market decline, it'll all go down, including energy. So I guess what I, what I, the way I'm positioned, I still have some energy stocks, not as much as before. I've cut back on some because I don't like the market environment. But echoing what Mark Newman was saying earlier, Whatever longs I have, they're hedged by some shorts, in particular stuff of the Kathy Wood ilk. Um, I think that that garbage is still going to get cut in half again for me. I really believe that. So defense, defense, that's the, that's the name of the order of the day. And a big down, all correlations go to one. As someone said the other day, I was reminded of the great saying when they raid, when they, when they uh, you know, <laughs> When they when when they raid the house, I got to be careful. There's a PG audience here, but when they raid the house, they take the piano player as well. So, um, you know, having said that, if you stayed long energy and were short Kathy Woods, I mean that's a trade I recommended last summer. And it's up three or four hundred percent since then. I think that's still a trade for all seasons. So, whether the market goes up or down, like for instance, if you said to me, "Hey, you know what, George? I'm going to own the shipping stocks. I know well, but let's be honest; those things are basically high beta. They correlate very highly with energy. It's kind of the same thing." except they're kind of not so liquid, so they got even a higher beta. So they're kind of the same trade. Um, but I think that stuff is going to outperform the long-duration high PE garbage, no matter what happens. So um, thank you for the for the point and the question. I'd like to move on, if you don't mind. We're going to go to Wael, and then we're going to go to Kevin. Wael, welcome. Good to see you. What's up, my friend? Um, yo, hi, George. Thank you uh, for the space, like always. Amazing information and amazing discussion. Um, I wanted to make some comments on the whole um, the whole idea why young people uh, invest in Bitcoin and Tesla. Um, that, there's been some great points made already, but there's also like a big point about recency bias. And like no matter who I talk to in my age, they have the problem that they look at the last 10 years because of this crazy bull run we have, we've had, we've had um, that um, they just say like, yeah, no matter what I buy, it's just going to keep going up. It's going to keep recovering, going up. And yeah, like there's no risk. It's really in buying. And that might be true if you believe in like in the US economy and you invest like in the S&P 500, you can get bagged really bad. And then you might like after 10 years, 20 years, you're probably going to be in profit again. But if you buy something like Tesla or Bitcoin, <laughs> who knows? Like maybe in 20 years, Bitcoin, like no one knows like, anything about Bitcoin anymore. It's not relevant. It's basically zero. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's like a big reason for young people why they think, they, they don't think this is a game. They think this is actual long-term investing because they don't put in the hours, like you said. And yeah, I also wanted to thank you for the, um, for the discussion we had like in January, I think, when everyone was talking about inflation and 
me and a bunch of other guys were scared that if we don't, if we are not in stocks, we're going to get like, get our money eat up by inflation. But in the end, if we would have been in stocks, like until now, we would have been hit by inflation and by our portfolio as well. So, uh, yeah, thank you for like, yeah, well, great discussion we had. I appreciate the kind words. Do me a favor. Could you follow me? Because I'm following you. And I'd like to talk to you offline. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks for that. Uh, Kevin, we're going to go to Kevin, and then we'll go to Sterling. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hey, George. Uh, great room, as always. Um, thanks for, for having me on again. You can hear me okay? We hear you loud and clear. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I think I want to offer a cautionary tale today. and I, I It's not something that I share lightly. Um, I'm a guy who has 25 years experience, 15 years managing institutional money. Um, I outperformed the S&P for the last decade up until last fall. And the reason I'm going to tell this story is because uh, I haven't I haven't had the chance to hear what Peter Atwater said yet because I was too busy. Um, but uh, I but hearing the things that I was hearing in the room today, the young people out there, um, I understand their desperation in this market, you know, for reasons I won't get into today. Uh, I found myself in a somewhat desperate position and decided to take on the Widowmaker. And I did it in size, and I gave back an entire decade of outperformance. And I guess the reason that I'm telling this tale is because I think, um, you know, you're trying to educate people. Uh, I want them to understand how difficult that this job actually is. Um, I, as I say, I've made a lot of money for uh, one particular institution. I've done quite well on my own. And yet, in a, in a heartbeat, you can crush it all. Um, luckily, since then, I've gone back to fundamentals and discipline and uh, done quite well in the last six months. But um, um, again, I think that, that uh, as you say, you have to do the work, but even the work sometimes isn't enough. You know, I'm 24-7 preoccupied with this now. Um, and uh, even still, one can make an, an incredible amount, uh, an incredible mistake. Um, so I, I guess uh, without getting too much into the specifics and because you've got a lot of people that want to speak, I, I think I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, and, uh, Kevin, let me interrupt, let me interrupt you. Um, I know it must be, it's very uh, brave of you to let your hair down. But yeah, nobody ever tells I, you. Yeah, yeah, but, trait, so, right? so, so I'm not, I'm not <laughs> pressing you to say things you want to talk about. But you said the Widowmaker, and you didn't say much more. But, so I must confess, I, maybe others get it, but uh, in that, uh, so in, so in October, I got caught. In, I got caught in a gamma squeeze. In so, so wait, so hold on. You went short Tesla. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I should have been more specific about. Yeah. That. Okay. And 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 did you do it? Did you do it in a size where it was significant for you? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so and, I can and tell- again, and I and I want to make the point too. Again, as a guy who's who's done this with discipline for twenty five years, right? Uh, in that one moment that I decided that, uh, and, and again, this is fundamentals, right? You, you know, we've talked about this, and obviously ad nauseum, uh, many people have on here. Um, you you'd look at the fundamentals and you'd say. You know, and of course, we could see that the top was coming. We didn't know when it was coming, but we knew we were damn close. 
you know, it, it was it was a well thought out trade, terribly timed, <laughs> and taking on very much the wrong one in this market, right? Um, so yeah, it, uh, it, it again, it, it yeah, it basically erased ten years of outperformance, George. Ten years. In fact, I, I tell you, I'll go so far as to tell you this: I literally. My peak outperformance, I actually caught the down trade. I caught the, I was, I was long puts, uh, wrote it all the way down in 2020. And I literally turned the bottom and started adding at the bottom. And I, two things ripped, ripped my face off. One was I fought that bounce. I fought that bounce on the way up. Uh, I was still buying puts. Uh, Just the sheer speed of that bounce was was unbelievable um simply two trades erased, erased an entire decade of outperformance well, fighting kevin, the bounce yeah kevin kevin i mean let me let me help you a little bit here so with one minor uh diversion i have not been involved in tesla since um the sorry, second still there? yeah sorry with, with one minor divergence uh i, I have not been involved George, in tesla. Can you hear me or no yeah can can everybody bobby j can you hear me Michael, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah we can hear you, George. Okay, so Kevin, sorry, can you hear me now? The problem must be. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah. We one slight diversion. I've not been involved in Tesla on the short side since the second since the second quarter of 2019. In the second quarter of 2019, I was shorting Tesla because I was playing for bankruptcy. The uh, the bonds were trading into double digits. There was a real question where the company would survive. That judgment was subsequently borne out by. Um, Musk a year or two later telling the story how they really were going, you know, um, hand to mouth on cash. And, you know, as usual, he took some liberties with the truth, taking a page out of Jean Claude Juncker's book, you know, when the going gets tough, you have to lie. Um, so, in any event, I wish I remember I made a presentation at a conference and it was a CMT conference actually in 2019, April 2019. Told everyone I should go short. Stock went 20% down 20%. It, um, yeah, I remember it. I think it bombed at around 160, 160. But that was before the five for one split. So that's 32. Uh, it's now like 800. So it's gone up 25x since then. Now, what that, because t- I, 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 I do pay attention to charts, right? But yeah. I'm a fundamental investor. And, you know, we can go through all. And, you know, I, I, my first job at Fidelity under Peter Lynch was the, as an auto analyst. I was an auto analyst. When Peter went to Detroit, I was with him, visited Lee Coke and Chrysler, Ford, General Motors. I was in the room. I carried his bag. So autos were my first industry. I know it extremely well. And I looked at the numbers, probably just like you did, and I said, this is bullshit. All right? Now, yeah. I've, I've made almost every mistake in the book you possibly can. But when I've never – I've shorted stocks that have gone up in my face. But I've never, ever, ever in my life shorted a stock where it then went on to go up 25-fold. Um, and the extraordinary thing is, if you go back and you look over the last few years, you know, the, cha- the, the changes in expectations for sales and earnings, and look at how that compares to the change in the stock price. I've told this story before many a time in these rooms. There's this funny little thing, correlation between, between earnings and share prices. And Peter Lynch always taught me, used to say, you tell me what a company's going to earn, I'll tell you what the stock price is going to do. And if you run money freshly before, I don't know how long you've been doing it, but you look at those long-term cyclic graph chart books. I don't think they have them anymore. You could look back over 30 or 40 years and you'd see, you know, 
Coca-Cola's stock price went up 30x. Well, guess what? Their earnings went up 30x. You know, Microsoft's been a great stock, and maybe there's been some multiple expansion, but their earnings have gone up a lot, right? But the idea, the idea that Tesla will go up 25x on basically no change in expectations in their sales and earnings, to me, is testimony to just how screwed up this market is. And we had some of the earlier speakers talking about following narrative, especially amongst the younger people. You know, it's, it's going up. You're saving the world. Elon Musk is cool, yada, yada, yada. This is, this is ground zero for what's wrong with the stock market. And, you know, this is the biggest bubble. Tesla is the biggest bubble I've ever seen in my life. Um, yeah. this, will, this will end badly. What's changing now, though, what's different now is any time before. I, mean, I have no position in Tesla. It's very clear. Because they're, they're, they're easier things, easier prey to pick on. As Stan Druckermiller once told me, it was better to pick on a cripple. I mean, just imagine that old man walking down the sidewalk. You knock his cane out from under him. All right, take him out. Like, why are you picking on the stock, the biggest one? And by the way, as someone said earlier in the room, or someone said to me earlier today, God, heaven forbid, when, not if, but when Tesla and Apple blow up, the whole edifice is going to come down. And, and, you know, Kathy Wood's in a world of hurt, even without Tesla. But, you know, I've said in this room once or twice, you know, I'd be shocked, absolutely shocked, if Tesla wasn't below 500 by the end of this year. So the time is yeah. coming. The reason I think it's now is it's not just liquidity and all that other stuff. On a fundamental basis, the competition is coming. For the first time, you've got you know tons of models coming out from these little companies called VW and Daimler and BMW and General Motors, all these guys. Tesla has an obsolete product line. They've underinvested. Um, they, they do not have economies of scale compared to the competitors. They have nothing proprietary. All these chickens are going to come home to roost. And to put the cherry on top of the Sunday, I hope one day, just one day, Elon Musk gets, gets what he deserves in terms of retribution from the authorities vis-a-vis -vis his, his violations of securities laws, in my opinion. I understand he owns Twitter now and wants to own Twitter, so I probably shouldn't say much more than that. I'll probably have my editor take out this part of it. Um, so, so no, the other day I was on a rant. We did the room. It was the Thursday night room, and I, and I went off. And, yeah, it's one thing to say you don't like Tesla, but I realized at one point I, I used the word charlatan, and I told my editor, I said, no, get that word out. I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to be destroyed from Tesla, but from my Twitter. Thank you for that. Let's move on. I want to move quickly before we go on. Michael K., you have a comment, please? Michael K.? Well, I have a question that's, uh, you mentioned something in autos, and, and I'm happy to take this uh, and kick it to another time in another room. Um, but I'd love to open the question up to the audience. And we talk about things that are different in this cycle, and auto inventories are at you know, rock-bottom lows. Yet auto stocks like GM and Ford are trading like they typically do in a risk-off environment going down. Uh, and there's been a lot of debate with uh, a lot of uh, hedge funds in Connecticut of of that specific area of the market, not 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 including Tesla, but just really the uh, like the G GM and Fords of the world. And you, since you mentioned you uh, covered that space many moons ago, just curious to see you, if you had any thoughts, or if the room did, or happy to also take that to another day, another room. I'll just give my throwaway comment, which is I agree with you on the inventory thing. Uh, implicit in that is the idea that the last few years, for a bunch of reasons supply chain whatever um we've auto sales have been below trend so there's a def cumulative deficit of i don't know three four million units whatever it is uh of, 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 of pent-up demand so when supply eases i think uh, um uh you know there'll be catch-up on demand 
against that, you have to, uh, again, opposite opposing, but offsetting possibly things. The idea that, um, you know, we get a recession like we're talking before, that's not going to be good. So I guess that all adds up to is probably, I'm hoping, I mean, if your roadmap is right, Michael, and mine is right, I think we're kind of on the same page, that maybe just sort of, you know, response to historical relationships with the economic cycle and factors and all this other nonsense, these stocks get whacked and get sold off as, as we go into a recession. And, but that'll just mean coming at the other side, I think it'll have even more juice to the upside because of the uh, pent-up demand. Uh, would you concur with that, or what, what's, your, what's your view? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think you know, the, it's the question between multiple compression and earnings. You know, if we're heading towards recession, whether or not we go into one, if we're heading towards one, yeah, I totally agree with you. Demand's not going to increase. Uh, but that's the argument, you know, that some of these other hedge fund guys are talking about, well, inventory's so low, and as these things get resolved, you can't think about autos like you would normally because, obviously, this is such an abnormal environment. Uh, so I guess it's a question about how much earnings are going to recover as that plays out versus how much multiples will compress. I totally agree with you. My answer is I wouldn't touch those stocks because they're yeah. so hot. It is so cyclical, and you will get paid once we see the next eco-recovery, and then they go to the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hundred percent, Michael. The idea of looking through the valley. I, I love when guys say, "Well, go back to past cycles." You know, we have a cyclical stock. They say, "Well, you know, it's a better company, and the balance sheet's improved, so they're not going to lose money in this cycle, and therefore you should buy it now." I'm like, I don't want to walk through the, the the shadow of the valley, you know, the valley of the shadow of death. You know what? Let's get through the other side, and then I'll deal with it. You know, the idea that you know, here, hold this, Michael. Just hold this stock. I promise you. We're going to prove the thesis that it's not going to go down as the economy implodes. Like, what's the expected return on that, on that position? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't think it makes sense to you either. So, anyway. Thank you, Temple. Yeah, all right, thanks. All right, so let's move on. We want to go to Sterling, Ahmed, and then Reason View. My good friend Sterling, long time. How are you, my friend? Hey, George, how's it going? Hey, Bobby J. How are you guys doing? Um, George, thanks for this room. Um, it's spot on. Um, one thing I just wanted to to mention is, like, listen, I'm not that smart of a guy. And there's a lot of guys on this app, as well as the other one that we, we used to frequent, that, that because they work in finance, they act like they actually know what they're talking about. And they're a bunch of clowns. Like, there's too many clowns out here that are, and I'll give you an example. There's a guy in a mutual in a mutual app that we're on where we share information who's out here running around talking about AMD, AMD. Like that's my favorite discussion is, is the semicons, right? So I challenge him and I just said, well, what about ASML? Because without ASML, you don't have, you don't, you don't have any of these high density chips and he gives me all the reasons why, and, and it's basically look at this, look at this partnership, look at that part. But, but when it gets down to it, he doesn't actually understand the full technology because all he's ever done is just looked at oh, look, PEs, looked at, looked at a lot of the financials, which, hey, I get. But <clears throat> to sit there to make the claim, to then go on and, and to say that he advises people, it's like just because you have – you know, some initials after your, your name that starts with a C and ends with an A doesn't actually mean you know what the fuck you're talking about. That's that's kind of where I'm at. But 
you know, again, I'm not that smart of an individual. I just work in industrial in industrial manufacturing. Um, so, but George, I take a lot of what you have said over the, the last year and looked at energy. That's kind of been my uh, one big mover. You know, um, I've taken some other ones where I've lost and guess what? It's my own fault, but I'm not out here blaming anybody. And the, uh, the Kathy, the, the Kathy Wood short, the, the art short, like, and that's my best performer for the year. So I just wanted to make those comments. Thanks, George. Appreciate that, Sterling. Um, Sterling, for those who don't know him, uh, really smart cookie. Um, just want to warn everybody, um, like myself, we both are uh, Philadelphia sports fans, so I guess we're both Boo Birds. <laughs> so I think we're Sixer fans. Sterling, what's happening with the Sixers? Are like they get? I'm not even paying attention. They get eliminated yet? They're going to get eliminated? What's going on with them? Embiid came back. They won last night, two one. So it's a different series with them than without them. Yeah, but they're they're not going to go very far, are they? No, I don't. I don't think they'll go. No, they got past this. By the way, by the way. Who do they get for Ben Simmons and is that whoever they got? Is that guy playing anyone? I mean, they gave up Simmons. Simmons like a cancer on every team he plays for. But who do they get for Ben Simmons? They got like a sixty-two-year-old named James Harden. So oh. not the not the guy from Houston. <laughs> well, what's the deal with Harden? He's just he's just slow. He's you know what? I, I he's like Alex Rodriguez. He's great in the regular season, but then when it comes playoffs, that guy can't perform. Didn't they also say, I'm not following that carefully, but I was reading because I'm watching the Celtics who are on a roll. But like Harden, like, di- didn't the fact they changed the rule about the flopping and all that stuff and the foul? He did that stutter step thing. We kept drawing these offensive fouls. And they, didn't they change the rules to get rid of that move? So, like, that really shut his game down. Is that, is that, is that on par? Is that, on, is that on, on point? Yep. You're, you're, you're right. So he, he lost part of his, he, he lost part of his edge. Yeah. So he's done. He's done. Um, all right, so coming back to so, so Sterling, by the way, and Sterling, I, I'm not going to give away secrets. You, you, I want you to talk to. That's really, really interesting what you're talking about. It echoed about the fact, you know, the it's not. And look, they're pos- It's not even a question of age thing. It's an experience thing. You have what I call posers or fakers. These young, you know, young guys, even older people. You know, someone's a, someone's a tennis pro at a club. They have some friends. Next thing you know, they get registered. They become advisor. Now they're financial advisor. Like, like, what is that? I mean, they they know nothing. Like Kramer would say, they know nothing. They know nothing. Okay, they know nothing. They're not doing the work. Just just being handed a sheet of paper from you know whatever firm they're affiliated with, and they mouth it. And, and by the way, when you, and, and I'll kind of market it a little bit. You know, as I said earlier in this room, for those of you who didn't hear it, we're coming out with a research product, uh, Bobby J. Maybe, I don't know, Bobby, you want to talk about it a little bit. Um, you can plug it a touch, but we're coming out with a research product in a month or so, probably by, by July 1. Um, it's going to be sort of an all-star team of research at a really, really affordable price for everybody. And we want to help educate. Um, and also, a lot of the third-party independent research guys around the world are hurt, so this will give them a, a bigger platform from which to speak. And we're also going to come out with an ETF uh, in September, but Bobby J, I, I don't know if you want to talk about the research product at all, or, or what. Yeah. So, um, you know, my background is both buy side and sell side. I I made the stuff and I ate the stuff, and there's a lot that comes across. There's a lot that you see uh, on media, and our goal here is to educate and to curate. 
And, um, you know, I said to George, if you were in your seat and you're getting everything across your desk and you have, um, you know, 30 year old uh, that you would like to mentor, you know, what would you handpick and deliver to them so that they could understand uh, what they're doing, what their portfolio is doing? and what to do next. And that's how we want to operate. We want to kind of kind of simplify it, filter it and give it to you in a way that's actionable and also uh, to, you know, to make sure you don't get hurt. Uh, because it's really hard to filter the stuff that's out there. And we want to provide a platform that uh, gives you the best and the simplest. Is that is that Fair, George? No, that's that, that that's spot on. That's spot on. I mean, there are the, the quality of street research has never been worse. There, with a few exceptions, and I'm not saying to be patronizing of Michael K, but he is a true all star, and he's been working at a firm where he's got free reign to pretty much do what he wants. But guys that work in bulge bracket firms, not so much. So I can just tell you, like. I rarely read street, street research anymore. It's garbage. And, you know, the and Bobby J, you, I mean, you were at Merrill for a long time. I mean, what would you say? Like, would you second the motion? Like what's happened to the quality of street research over the last two or three decades in your opinion? And why, and why has that, and why has that changed? Well, you, you, you know, I walked into uh, a UBS REIT meeting um, about three years ago and they had um, seven REIT, analysts okay now what portion of the the market does REITs make up right they had more REIT analysts than they had uh money center bank analysts or regional bank analysts combined so that they may have had you know they so they had seven or eight REIT analysts and they had you know five analysts covering global banks uh, and domestic banks. And the reason was in investment banking, bringing REITs to market uh, and, uh, you know, getting the IPO and all the above. And by the way, that's why JP Morgan was so in love with WeWork because, you know, they were hoping for the IPO deal. So, you know, that's one aspect of it. But also, you know, and an and industrial analysts only looks at their sector and tries to compare rich cheap against a very, very small universe of names. And, uh, you know, that's why quant has improved. That's why uh, Mike uh, Cantro is, uh, is very valuable because he applies quantitative uh, principles. If I had my druthers, I'd go quantumental, um, but I wouldn't just do fundamental either. So, uh, you know, analysts fall in love with their sectors and uh, they're kind of uh, out of work when their sectors go into um, hibernation, like right now we have with financials. Thanks for that, Bobby. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be coming out with a research offering soon. I think it's going to be the greatest research offering in the history of research. We're going to try and make it available to everybody. Um, there'll be different pricing depending on how much you want, but we don't want this to be a rehash of all the crap that people get. Um, it's going to be actionable and it's going to come with, you'll, you'll recognize a lot of the names that will be in this product. 
All right, let's move on. We're kind of going. We're on five hours now. There's a few more speakers here, and I think we're going to wrap this up. If you got any questions, please raise your hand. Um, I am going to plug the kitchen again. You know, we're, we, I mean, the talent that's that's that you've been that you're getting to listen to today. Michael Kansas has been really, really generous with his time. Uh, Dr. Anas Haji, Bobby J, John Roke, Mark Newman. I mean, you just go down the list. It's just insane. This is all for free. So if, if you've gotten any value from this, 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 this room, these rooms, please, please, please consider giving to World Central Kitchen. They're doing God's work. They're helping the people in Ukraine. They're providing 300,000 hot meals a day. There's three and a half million refugees in the, in the Ukraine, literally being bombed on. Some exciting news. We're only $10,000 away from our $50,000 match. In other words, I see we've gotten a whole bunch of donations in here today. And again, the amount, the amount does not matter. Uh, what matters is that you contribute, and we all have community here, and people give to the, to the level of their, of their, uh, of their ability. Um, you know, it does, the amount is really unimportant. I'm so touched by all the gifts, including uh, the, the smallest of gifts. I'm just looking here now. I see just a little while ago, someone gave $65. Um, I'm sure it was a lot of money to them. Um, and they wrote, thank you, George, and all the guests you have on. There's millions of dollars worth of experience and, and knowledge in your rooms that you are donating. It doesn't compare to the value I've gotten. Thanks to World Central Kitchen for the incredible work you are doing. Um, so, you know, it says, God bless George Noble. I hope he helps protect people from, from fraud. It helps the people. Um, another one, uh, George, your space is all in the last couple hours, George. Your spaces have been such a great space to, place to learn, but more importantly, a reminder that we are all here to help others. You lead by example, and I am so thankful we have people like you out there advocating for a better world. Thank you. Hey, George, uh, I just want to mention that uh, there's a person in this room who's probably the brightest, but also the most humble, um, and that's Carol. Um, and uh, she's behind um, this giving and this idea and George, um, I think she should be co-hosting once in a while up here. Well, we should do that. And, uh, <laughs> we had Carol up earlier. Uh, I accidentally, when I put her back in the audience, I hit the wrong button and I booted her out of the room. I'm so, so sorry, Carol, but Carol is back. She is the smartest person in the room. She's also the nicest, nicest person in the room. And she's responsible for heads up our philanthropic efforts. So, Carol, um, I, I owe you an apology. I'm publicly apologizing to you for accidentally bumping you out of the room. I'm glad you got back in. And, Carol, if you might just want to say a few more words about the kitchen, that'd be great. Thank you, Carol. Sure, thanks. Well, I've been in Twitter jail before. I thought I'd gone back to jail, but it seems I was only sitting in the corner for a little while. So thanks for letting me back in. Um, and also, uh, one other piece of advice to all the young people in the room, always find people who are smarter than you. I mean, that's what I'm doing in this room. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to people who are way smarter than I am and learning constantly and, uh, you know, being part of a community that's extremely special. And the other thing I just wanted to end on today was what Peter Atwater talked about the other day. And if you haven't listened to that space, please do, um, he and I both talked about what giving to charity and what volunteering can do for your psyche and for others in, in times of uncertainty. Um, for your psyche, it gives you a sense of control. 
to know that you can make a difference in someone else's life. And it also, from what Peter said, is that it just is, you know, in times where we're, we're all gathering together, trying to figure something out and going through some very stressful times, this is a way to feel better just for all of us to feel better. And so I am, uh, every time I read these testimonials and George reads them out to the crowd, I'm, I'm virtually in tears. I just can't believe the kindness of strangers that we have come across in this community. So thank you. Thank you, Carol. Uh, and again, for everyone, uh, we are, Carol, what are we, $10,000 away from triggering the, the $50,000 match? Is that correct? Uh, 10000 on the screen right now. I think we have a couple thousand dollars of gifts that got sent in by check. So I think we might only be 8000 away. So if we're at, so that means we're, we're, we're 121, let's say, forget about the money that hasn't come in. So if we get 10 more to 131, we then get 50 on top of it, which puts us at 181, which is getting within striking distance of our $200,000 gold. Do I have the numbers right? Yep, you have the numbers correct. All right. So, you know, again, for the, I thank everyone in this room who's given. Um, for those who haven't given, please give. It doesn't matter how small the amount is. We're building a community. We want to have as many people involved as possible. And Carol, how many hundred we 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 had what a few hundred people donate so far? Do you have any idea how many? We had? Yeah, we're over. Well, last last count was over five hundred. I think we're closer to six hundred now, which is wow. another extraordinary data point. So let's keep on going. Hey, Carol, has anything remotely been done like this on Twitter before? Not to my knowledge. Uh, we're this is a grand experiment, and I'm just in awe of how well it's working so far. And uh, you know, as I've said before, I'm not a fundraiser. You're not a fundraiser. You're a natural. I'm learning, uh, but it's just the support that we've gotten is extraordinary, and we're on to something. So let let's keep going. Yeah, Carol, I think you and I have talked about this before, and that is in a world where. There's so much divisiveness, so much partisanship, where social media, I think, I, I can't remember if you were the one who put the article in front of me, somebody did, pointing out how social media, like on the one hand, in some respects, it, it connects people in a very profound effect way. It, it actually is very divisive. It splits people apart. And so I think using this room, using Twitter as a means of bringing people together in a positive way and trying to find our common humanity and rally around that rather than people taking shots at each other. I mean, it's really kind of, as Charlie Munger would say, invert, invert. So we're trying to invert the natural hostility, which seems to be coming out of social media and try to use it as a force for good and bring people together. And so, Carol, I can't thank you enough for all your efforts. And, and, and Bobby J, I mean, everyone's doing this for, for gratis. Um, you know, the, 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 the talent we have in here from our side, from the speakers, it's just unbelievable. And, um, we ask everyone, you know, in the audience to do their to do their to do their part, and together we can make the world a better place. Unlike, I, mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't read newspapers anymore, Carol. I don't know if I told you that. I just I get all my information off of Twitter, and I go on a couple of websites, but I just can't turn on the TV. I can't bother to look at a newspaper because it just it just turns my stomach and and, and all the hostility out there. And I, I like I know I go nuts once in a while, maybe I turn some people off, but I really, I mean. This is my extended family now, so I, I can't, I, you know, I can't thank all of you enough. This is just absolutely terrific. What's going on in here? So, um, thank, thank all of you, and please, 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 give to the kitchen. You know, this is a first world problem we're dealing with here. Trying to 
preserve and increase our net worth. I mean, there are other people out there who don't have food. So uh, please, please do the best you can. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Bobby. All right, we have two more speakers left, and then I think we're going to call it a day. I thought this was going to be a two-hour room. It's a five-hour room. I mean, what does that tell you? Just what does that tell you? We still have, after five hours, over 500 people in this room. So we must be doing something right. We're not giving away money, that's for sure. So we're going to go to Ahmed, and then we're going to go to Reason View. And unless anybody else raises their hand, that's going to be it. Ahmed, welcome to the stage. Thank you, guys, for the space. I have two questions, one for Dr. Anas and the second one for you, George. So the I want to ask about how oil is priced. Uh, like, for example, like when China buys oil, how do they buy it? At which price? Is it by the end of the month or the beginning of the month price of oil? And the second question, what should the Fed do better to soft land the the equity markets and the bond markets and thank you guys dr Anas, are, you, are you there um i am here i would like to ask ahmed to contact me uh, privately because i think the answer will take a lot of time and we are already out of time okay all right thank, thank you Good. ahmed um they could do things to uh, s- smooth the markets prevent the markets from going down but that would actually be contrary, I think, to what they need to do. They want to, they need to curb inflation. They want to slow down inflation. In order to do that, they got to slow the economy. In order to do that, they figure they've got to tighten uh, financial conditions, which, you know, if you tighten up financial conditions, the economy should slow. The main mechanism by which they would tighten financial conditions is engendering a stock market decline. So it's actually become Fed policy to make the stock market go down. Uh, most people lose sight of that fact. So we've gone from having a Fed put to a Fed call. So if anything was on Wednesday when the market popped after the uh, Fed news, people were celebrating the fact that the Fed was not going to go 75 basis points in the future, only 50. They took that as bullish, which I thought was crazy. And then the market jumps 3%. That's actually exactly the opposite of what they want to have happen. So the Fed does not have your back. As a matter of fact, the Fed is coming for you. So... The idea that, you know, the market, the Fed doesn't want the market to go. In the, in the past, it's always buy the dip, buy the dip, because the Fed's got your back. Now it's best backwards. So, no, that's just another reason why I'm bearish in the market. There's no safety net this time. And I think those that are used to investing in the market conditions of the last dozen years or so are going to find themselves that they're, they're in a much different position. So thank you for the question. Uh, Reason, you're going to be the last. You're going to be the last uh, speaker, unless anyone else has a question. Reason, good to see you. What's up? Thanks, George. Thanks uh, for all you're doing, and everyone else that uh, comes in and adds their voice. Um, feels like I've been uh, to continue your religious analogy. It feels like I've been 40 years in the desert, um, searching for people that kind of think like me, and I think this group does. Um, I've been investing for 35 years. Uh, my first day was October 19th, 1987. And for those of you who are old enough, you know what day that was. And my background is distressed investing, uh, workouts, restructurings, essentially waiting for others to make a mistake and then go in and try to take advantage of it. You know, obviously I work for institutions and funds, et cetera. Um, But my background is looking for the mistakes and then trying to turn them around. And the behaviors that I've seen in the three bubbles that I've experienced are all the same. In 1999, you had people quitting their jobs to day trade. 
because everyone in a bull market makes money. And then you see in 2005 and six, you had people quitting their jobs to go out and leverage by real estate. Real estate only goes up. They have these certain behaviors. They use the same types of words, same types of language. And of course, you know, that was a very profitable time for me as I went in and bought all the real estate when it was getting dumped. And then I see in 2019, 20, 21, the NFT crypto crowd, same behavior, same language. And I, you know, I'm reading about people quitting their jobs because, you know, they found the magic and the magic is going to continue forever. And guess what? It's not. And so, you know, with that in mind, for all the young people who are listening, and there will be a question at the end here, George, um, you know, I'm almost fully cash now. And because of Dr. Anas and others, I've legged into some, you know, very good oil plays. But, you know, I'm getting my cash ready because I think there's one more kick at the can for me. I think that I'll be able to go in and scoop up some assets that are being forced sale whether it's margin, whether it's real estate. And so I'm ready to do it one more time. But here's the question. Do we believe that the Fed is going to continue with QT and interest rates? Do we think that they're going to reverse? Because if they're, if they're going full bore, what they're saying they're going to do, it's going to be ugly, probably generational. And so that's my question to you, George, and to anyone else. Let me let me just chime in one thing. We just put up, I put up a poll the other day asking about interest expense for Treasury. It's now knocking on $600 billion a year. 68% said they see it climbing over $900 billion a year to a trillion. So the Fed has had a choice here to uh, help finance Treasury and keep the front end down and let the long end go up and you know it's basically do they want to do they want uh to put the burden on consumers or do they want to put the burden on interest expense and and it's a it's a no-win situation for both so i think the answer to your question is um the less the fed does the more the back end goes up and as uh, mike Kay said the other day, um, you know, when you have a bare steepener, it's not a good sign. And so I think we're going to see the long end go up more because the Fed is worried about interest expense. And that that's going to cost them more than they will ever save. Bobby, let me just chime in here. And I realize I'm out of my depth because I'm a dumb equity guy, not a fixed income guy. But just a little nuance. This is a, a statement, but more a question to you. So you and I have gone through the calculus of this thirty trillion in debt. So Ceteris Paribus, one percent increase in rates is three hundred billion in interest expense. The whole discretionary part of the budget is only like a trillion five or some number like that. So it's a huge number. However, however, as was pointed out, it might have been you or somebody else. I can't remember. I'm getting so tired right now. The amount of paper that gets rolled has to be refinanced every year. You take all that crap. It's like a trillion five or some number like that. So, yep. I think I got it right. So, 1% roll per year. It's not 300 billion one off. It's only 15 um, 
billion. Um, so the pain of the higher rates, it, it'll get felt in the out years. It's not going to be day one. So it's not like all of a sudden the interest bill goes up by three hundred billion. So am I right on that? That is correct. Okay, so that means that when people just say, "Oh, you know, rates up one percent, interest expense up three hundred billion." You know, they're going to have to, like, raise taxes or cut spending. No, it doesn't happen that quickly it, 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 in the out years. So, you know, I think you and I have been on the same page. I, I still keep taking the over on rates. I keep coming back to this concept. I mentioned it hours ago in this room. I mentioned it in other spaces, and I want to bounce it off of you. I mean, yes, something will break, but I keep thinking the level at which it break is much higher than is commonly perceived, simple reason being that the debt expansion – has really occurred at the government level that um, it's it, the it's it's a it's the public sector deficit that's gone up. The private sector, the private se- public sector deficit is a public se- it's pri- excuse me the public sector deficit is a private sector surplus. That consumers, yes, are going to get screwed. You've made a very cogent argument for that. As housing prices roll over, uh, incomes get squeezed by um, rising inflation. However, up until now, if I look at the numbers correctly. The uh, debt service ratio for the consumers is still extremely good shape. This will deteriorate, is deteriorating. But right here, right now, I guess it partly explains why credit's been relatively well behaved up until now. In addition, corporations, same deal. But so, but, but again, it, it's not where is the puck, Wayne Gretzky, call your office. It's where is the puck going. And so, so would you say that, yeah, that's all true right now. But as we look forward over the next six to 12 months, the situation is going to rapidly deteriorate, if I understood you correctly? Yeah, and it's also like our friend, mutual uh, friend Bill used to say, man dr- drowns in a pool with an average depth of three feet. And when they show the consumer balance sheet, and it, it has a lot to do with, um, you know, the upper 5%, the upper 10%, and upper 20%, but the other end uh, of the income spectrum is drowning. So when we say the consumer is in good shape, you know, that's an impossible statement to make um, but we need to get your friend ivy in here Yo, she's, she's coming i already got the call out she's coming no listen one. if anybody has an opportunity to listen to this person right because she's going to answer the magic question what happens with mortgage rates at six percent at seven percent and eight percent you may not want to hear the eight percent answer yeah so bobby J, you were throwing some numbers at me earlier um in, in the dm you think we're getting what six percent mortgage, six percent plus mortgage rates pretty soon? Yeah, I mean, I think when the Fed starts reducing their balance sheet, it's not only the absolute level of rates, but it's the spread between the thirty-year mortgage and uh, the ten-year. And so far, that's widened out by about seventy basis points, and it could widen out another fifty to seventy basis points from here. So that alone, with without an increase in 10-year rates would bring the mortgage rate from 540 to 6%. Is that because of the idea that the more they just uh, talk the talk but don't walk the walk, the long end of the market's going to say, oh, Jerome, you really don't love me, and therefore that's why 30-year tends to... Well, it also bear in mind what the Fed did. They tried to compress the mortgage spread, and we need to get a mortgage guy in here. I know you guys... I, you know, I feel marginalized because you guys, um, you know, don't treat fixed-income people very well. But... Uh, <laughs> And I, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, anyway, uh, I need counseling now, but. Um, <laughs> so Bobby, but, sh- sh- Bobby, sh- show me where it hurts. Did I touch you somewhere? 
No, I mean, listen to me. You know, you, you ever be a bond guy and then go to an equity party? It sucks. Yeah. Hey, ever been an equity guy and go to a bar meeting? It's like it gets, it's like a hard. Give me a cup of coffee. I can't stay awake. Well, you know, we're gonna have Marty Fritz and drag you into the uh, fixed income analyst association. Well, if you could, if you could teach Marty, you could bring in a few jokes with him next time. Maybe he can keep the audience awake. <laughs> Actually, he does a very funny newsletter. Uh, but, you know. <laughs> all right. But I, I, all right. I have one thing I want to play before we end. So I, I wanted to play this earlier, but I was fumbling. I, I got caught up, and so I was fumbling around my uh, audio stuff here. So we were talking before about number go up, bro, and competition, and people getting sucked into you know narratives and liquidity-driven assets, and all the crap's going to be absolutely destroyed right now. If an uh, if an investment, if an idea is a really good idea, it doesn't need to be sold. It doesn't need to be promoted. It just it just speaks for itself. All right. Um, I'm not going to replay Brian Belsky. We'll save that for another. Actually, nah, we'll save it for another day. Um, actually, Bobby J, owed to you. I am going to replay Bob Brian Belsky because you didn't. You weren't in the room the other night. I don't think. Did, were you in the room when I played him the other night, Bobby? Let me tell you something. I've been turning that guy off TV for you know probably. Okay. okay. About All right. I got, hold on. I, I, hold on. Hold, hold, okay. But you weren't in the room the other night when I played him, were you? I don't think so. Actually, I was. I was. Okay. All right. All right. Forget about that. All right. I want to play Michael Saylor. Uh, and remind you, good investments are bought, not sold. Like I, some of you, I'm sure, have heard this. Some of you haven't. Like, who would buy a used car from this man? Just listen for a second here. This is 45 seconds. Just listen. Well, Bitcoin is the best crypto asset. What's the second best? There is no second best. There's no second best crypto asset. There's a crypto asset. It's called Bitcoin, right? Right. There's no second best. Okay. But take all your money, buy Bitcoin, then take all your time, figure out how to borrow more money to buy more Bitcoin, then take all your time and figure out what you can sell to buy Bitcoin. And if you absolutely love the thing that you're that you don't want to sell it, go mortgage your house and buy Bitcoin with it. And if you've got a business that you love because your family works for the business that's in your family for 37 years and you can't bear to sell it, mortgage it, finance it and convert the proceeds into the hardest money on earth, which is Bitcoin. Bobby J, do you want to say anything about that? Bitcoin's at a year to date low. Well, you know, it's funny um, because Marty um, wrote about Michael Saylor in his forward to his 2011 edition of financial statement analysis and used him as a poster boy for bad accounting. So, 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 um, so, yeah, so those of you, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you you got to get him and uh, Novogratz in here. Yeah. No, I I know. I I I probably forgot more about Michael Saylor than Marty knows because I've done a lot of work on Michael Saylor. Uh, I think I may have tweeted this out a few weeks ago. It was a great series from the Washington Post. It goes back to like two thousand early two thousands in the wake of the MicroStrategy crash and the whole fraud on the accounting and how Saylor was part of that. I mean, this guy has a track record. MicroStrategy, you know, went down 99%. He pled, there was, it was one of these settlements to neither deny or admit guilt, but there was an $11 million settlement against MicroStrategy and, 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 its, and its leader investment and its leadership. I think he personally wound up paying seven or eight million bucks for that. The guy is a crook. He's, so does he, he have any regulatory capture going on? Don't know, but I mean, point is the guy's a charlatan 
I wish Three Aces was here. We always talk about, you know, Guyana and Reverend Jim Jones in Jonestown because Three Aces down in Guyana now with this freaking gold mine. But um, this guy's a known quantity. And I'm a big believer that people don't change. A total shyster, complete bullshit artist. He's freaking mortgaged. Mortgage MicroStrategy borrowed billions to just buy more Bitcoin. And I don't have the numbers to hand, but um, I haven't done it for a month or two. But the gist of it is, the left-hand side of the balance sheet is um, is a, uh, um, a no-growth software company and a pile of Bitcoins. And the right-hand side of the balance sheet is uh, some equity and a pile of debt. And every time I do the calculation, I suspect it's come down a little bit. But used to be, like when Bitcoin was at 50000 you were basically, if you shorted MicroStrategy, it was like shorting Bitcoin at 80000 Normally, you'd expect these things, some of the parts, things to sell at a discount to some of the parts. But the crazies were so out in force on MicroStrategy, it was actually selling at like a 50% premium to the sum of the parts. In other words, you just took the value of the software company, you add up the Bitcoins, divided by the amount of debt. I mean, if the stock was at 500, was the, the thing, the implied value was, you know, 700 or something crazy like that. So, um, or the other way around. At any rate, yeah, stock was like 700. Some of the parts is only 500. I think it's still at a premium. I haven't done the numbers in the last couple of months, but that thing, that thing, I believe MicroStrategy is going to go bankrupt. You can timestamp that. You know, people always like these wise ass comments on Twitter. Someone says something, oh, remind me of this in one year. Yeah, remind me of this in one year. And the beautiful thing about MicroStrategy right now, I have to get the update, but I think we're getting close to the point where he's actually around break even on his Bitcoin because what was happening before was, you know, the first time he bought Bitcoin, it was in the twenties and it kept averaging up, averaging up, averaging up. So I think his average cost base is in the low thirties right now from memory. And Bitcoin is, as Michael K was just saying, God was saying, Michael was saying, uh, Bitcoin, I think is 35 and change or something like that right now. As I let, last time I looked at it. So we're getting pretty close to his break even. And I, I think the, the bonds are really interesting because he borrowed all this and whoever the I think it was reason was talking before, whoever it was about um, about uh, distressed. I think you, know, you watch the watch watch the MicroStrategy bonds. Um, so you know, put it this way, put it this way. I don't know where GBTC. I haven't looked at GBTC lately. It's always selling at a big discount. To um, let me pull it up on the Bloomberg. The uh, Grace, Graysdale Trust is always selling at a big discount to its. Um, uh, NAV and all reasons for it. Um, okay, right now, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is at a 25% discount to its NAV. Um, 24, yeah, 24.8. Stocks 2502. It's at that's an, almost a 25% discount to the NAV. And by the way, I know you, you guys can be talking about stocks now. I normally don't talk much about stocks because I don't want to get investment advice. Uh, but trust me, I do a lot of bottom-up work. I, my training is out of a bottom-up analyst. I'm, I'm a macro bullshitter. I'm pretty good at it. Um, and then, and so you can buy GBTC at a 25% discount. You can also buy the uh, the BITU thing, which is the um, which is and this is BITU, which is which is the uh, ETF on the futures. Let me pull this back up here. Uh, I hit the wrong ticker symbol. In any event, um, you know, if I could, show, I mean, think about it. If you can, if you can buy Grace. Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Now, there might be issues with Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. There's all types of stuff about questions about do they have the freaking coins and this and that and everything else. But the idea that that's, unless you believe that, and that's at a 25% discount, 
And then MicroStrategy is selling at a huge premium, at least it was, to the sum of the parts. Like to me, I mean, I recommended that trade to people last year. That seemed like a like a like a layup, and I think the trades worked. I just don't. Ooh, MicroStrategy's really gotten whacked. So maybe maybe it's finally adjusted. MicroStrategy. This is really kind of interesting. MicroStrategy has gone from hold on. Yeah, I'm looking, at Michael, 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 Michael. Hold on, I'm looking. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just looking at the, at the chart recently. I think people are finally getting the joke. Um, the stock has fallen out of bed. So, to Michael's point, just to just to reset, the stock hit a high of, of like 880 in November. Um, started the year around 580. If I look at this correctly, it went down to like 290, rallied back up to 500 and changed. It's at 290 again. So we're on the verge of breaking through the January lows. Um, I suspect, and Michael K., I'm going to ask you to weigh in for two more minutes on Bitcoin as a risk asset, certainly not a store of value. Store of values don't go up and down 100% in a couple of months. But, um, you know, this thing's correlated to risk assets. It always was about number go up, bro, wasn't it? It never was about stock to flow model or there's only so many coins or this, that, or whatever. And again, I invite people, for all the Bitcoin apologists out there, I invite them to consider the following thought experiment. Would this ever have been possible in a world where we had rates approaching somewhat more normal? It's because when the, when, the, when, the, when the cost of money is zero, yeah, fine. It's like the same argument on gold. Yeah, when, when you know, when the, when the opportunity cost of holding gold is nothing, more people will own it. Those rates go up, and then we can get. I don't want to get to the whole real rate debate. That just leave that aside. None of this would have been possible, in my opinion, if we had anything more close to a more normal monetary environment. So, liquidity is being drained from the bathtub. This is a hyper liquidity sensitive asset. Um, Micro strategy is is you know, and you still have the tether scam, which has not been resolved. The the massive counterfeiting of uh, stable coins, which is bigger than Bernie Madoff. So that has not been resolved. I think there's regulatory capture going on there. The regulators are too slow to do anything, don't want to do anything because they don't want to be seen to be upsetting the apple cart. But in any event, like for me, crypto is a no-fly zone. Uh, you know, gun to head, I'd be short. I think I think Bitcoin's going to 11,000. The reason I picked that price is because that's where it started to rally from. That was a breakout point from uh, October of 2000 when the massive tether counterfeiting started. So in any event, you know, if someone came to you and said, oh, okay, hey, do you want to own uh, an instrument which is basically just a closed-end fund, which 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 is using leverage to buy Bitcoin, so it's a levered Bitcoin play, and it's trading at a premium to Bitcoin. It may not be at a premium right now. I haven't done the numbers recently. Like no one would do that. But if you listen to that lunatic Michael Saylor come on, and how that's not a violation of securities laws is beyond me. All right. Again, we talked earlier in this room about doing what's legal versus doing what's right. That is just total insanity. Uh, Michael, you want to make a comment on, on, on crypto, and then we're going to go to Gnostic, and then we're going to close it. It seems as a recurring uh, theme, the, the crappier the asset you're trying to sell, the more glorifying the sales pitch tends to be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well said. Um, well, uh, oh, yeah, you're just high. Bitcoin's down 23% year-to-date. Just to put that in context, the, the Qs are down 22.5% year-to-date. Um, certainly hearing a lot more negative negativity about the queues than, than Bitcoin just in general. So I'm curious to see when that starts to pick up steam. Uh, I'm right. super bearish on Bitcoin as well. Uh, I put out 15,000, which is, I guess, put my finger in the air though. It, you know, I've heard people t- talk about it, how it correlates with the queues. I think it, you know, it's correlated actually even tighter to just high beta stocks, which is something I've tweeted out a few times. 
And so all the comments I said earlier about high beta going down and just at the beginning of the downturn and that kind of stuff, uh, Bitcoin would fit the bill as well. So I, I wouldn't touch Bitcoin with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, I wouldn't wish on my own enemies. And, you know, again, all the charlatans, I mean, you know, I made the mistake, my first uh, interaction, it's a year now. I discovered Clubhouse a year ago. And, you know, I naively went in and wanted to talk to these nice Bitcoin people. And, man, oh, man, did I get my head blown off. <laughs> these people are nuts. To show you how uncivil they were, um, I mean, aside from just attacking me, I felt like I was in a Bruce Lee movie. It was like one against 100. But, I, you know, I can fend for myself. I, as you guys can tell, I'm, I don't mind a fight. But talk about, like, ra- ra- ranking on people. So I'm in Clubhouse. By the way, this chart, Michael, you know, I think we're, I think we're, you're at 13, I'm at 11. So we're 11 bid, 13 offered. I mean, last sales 35.4. It's down 1% right now. The chart looks just horrendous. To put it in Belkin speak, the 200-day moving average is at 21,000. So, you know, we're in a zip code of the teens, somewhere around there. But in any event, I'm in this clubhouse room. And the next thing I know, there's like, I don't know, 300 people in this clubhouse room. They're talking. So I come up on stage. And it's like, oh, they got a piece of red meat now to beat up me. So I got a target on my back. I didn't realize. I thought these people were normal. And what do they do? Next thing I know, everyone in the room, there's like 300 of them, they all have my face on their avatar. I'm like, what? What did they do? They went on my LinkedIn page, and they cut and paste. And they and so there's like, I'm looking at 300 George Nobles at once. It was like, you got to be kidding me, all right? But I'm having the last laugh, and, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this too. Um, so I went to the BlockWorks conference. Oh, I have to tell you guys. There is a um, podcast coming out, actually, with me in it. I don't like podcasts because I like the interaction with the audience. But the thing is, you guys don't get to see me in a, in a podcast. But I urge everyone to go look on our YouTube page. You can see the keynote presentation from the 49th Annual CMT Conference, which was done nine days ago in Washington. John Roke and I, an hour and a half, charts, the whole thing. So you can see Roke and me. So I figured, you know what? Um, I want to raise my profile a little bit. So I did a podcast with Jack Farley of BlockWorks. Great guy, great interview. He tells me it's the greatest interview he ever did. He was in this room before. I don't know if he's still here. But at any rate, um, I go to this BlockWorks conference last last summer. And, oh, I got to back up. So in, in the clubhouse room where they were so nasty to me, I was like, all right, put your money where your mouth is. You want to make a bet? I said, yeah, okay. So they want to bet me. And they were so delirious. Michael K., listen to this. Listen to this. You're going to be yelling at me now. So how come you, I didn't tell you about this before? Well, I didn't know you then. So I'm like, all right, want to make a bet on Bitcoin? Bitcoin is like, I don't know, 35000 So it wasn't, the bet wasn't is Bitcoin going up or down. Check this out, Michael. And put this into your black shoals and smoke on it. Listen to this. Bitcoin's at 35000 They bet me even up. It wasn't up or down. Bet a steak dinner, loser pays, that it was going to go to 100000 in other words, Bitcoin could go to 99999 I would still win the bet. I'm like, are you serious? They said, yeah. And by the way, the guy did it in a room full of 300 paid people. Whether he welches out on the deal, I don't know. All right, fine. So that was like in June. So then we get to um, August, and I'm at the BlockWorks conference, the Great Reset, Bretton Woods. You know, it was the same room where they had the Bretton Woods conference and yada, yada, the dollar standard. So you got all these guys getting up talking about, you know, dollars going to zero, you know, Hayek, all this stuff, Austrian economics. So I'm standing around and Greg Foss is public. It's on the record. Look at my Twitter feed. So Greg Foss is a good guy. He's a, he's a fixed income guy. Bobby J, do you know Greg Foss by chance? I, I don't know if you've ever run into him. But at any rate, he works for RBC. He's like an older guy like me. 
but he's a Bitcoin crazy too. So I'm telling the story about how I, I made this bet when Bitcoin's at 35,000 that, that, that it was going to go to 100. And I bet it wouldn't go to 100. And this is just for 2021, not 2022. He says, oh, I'll, I'll make that bet too. Bitcoin was like, I don't know, 44,000 when that happened. I said, fine, you're on. So I have two bets. One at thirty. One was made at 35, one was made at 44, that Bitcoin would, would not hit 100 before the end of 2021. So I won both of those. So because I'm a nice guy, and in the interest of allowing someone to get back to break even or dig a bigger hole for themselves, I'm in a clubhouse. I'd never go in clubhouse anymore. It's horrible. I go in the clubhouse Bitcoin room again. This is like, I don't know, a month or two ago. And the guy who lost the bet, he's one of the main ringleaders for the, for the it's, it's, uh, it's HODL actually. I think Hal Zabo is his name. So I was like, yo, I'm going to give you a chance to, um, to make your money back. Because like, you know, I'm a, a nice guy. He's, yeah, yeah, sure. I go, well, what would the bet be? I asked him. He goes, let's make the same bet. I'm like, are you serious? This is what Bitcoin, the guy's freaking doubling down. Bitcoin's at 50, and he's betting me, then it's going to go to 100 again or 45, whatever. I'm like, are you crazy? Like, I was willing to give him, I was willing to be nice to give, try to let him make, get break, back to break even. He bet me again it's going to go to 100. So I'm looking at my third steak dinner. Um, I'll let you know how that plays out. So anyway, Nasty. Quarter, Quarterhouse for three, George? Yeah, border house for three. Hey, Mike, I can't eat it all. Do you want to come? Oh, you can come with me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> hey, Mike, you know Mike, what? You know what? We got to get a syndicate. No, Michael, Michael, you know what we got to do? We got to get a syndicate going here. You and Bobby J and all the other crypto bears. I could probably reach out to that room. I could probably get size. Do you want in on that action? That'd be, uh, that'd be exciting to, to listen to. Mike, Mike, Just for Mike the what's, the, what's the best steakhouse near Ridgewood? Uh, you know, my favorite steakhouse is, is in Hoboken. The old uh, Frankie and Johnny's are now. It's oh, called I Dino know that Harris. very well. I, yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. All all right. So now, so now we'll everyone, in this, everyone in this room. Okay. I wasn't going to do this, but it's getting late. And, and, I, and, I, and Carol and Bobby know where this is coming. All right. So I got a question. So I hold it. Gnostic, you, you, you can ask your question. Then I got a question for the room. Gnostic, what's up? Oh, I'm having too much, too much fun with that one. I want to go for the steak place too. All right, so you want it on the steak also? All right, fine. Oh yeah, I got Michael. You know what? If you want it on the, I'm serious. Everyone DM me if you want in, and then I'll reach back out to the clubhouse Bitcoin Maxis and see what they can do for us. I don't know if I'll be able to get hundred thousand on this one because Helene Meisler, please call your office. Sentiment follows price, but maybe I can get seventy five thousand out of. We'll see what happens. So, Michael, are you good at seventy five? I'm good at 50. <laughs> good at 50. Hey, Gnostic, what will you take? But, but, but I want to give it that. <laughs> I'll, I'll position it. 75. 75 70, is as 75, low as I could go. 75 is good for me. 75. All right. I'll tell him I got to check size. I have to check with, I have to check with my buyer to see if he'll go lower. All right, fine. So, I'll, sorry. So, here's the question I have for you guys. This is serious now. Um, So, one of the things we're going to be playing. So, the, so Michael Belkin, the other king, along with Michael Cantrowitz, Michael Belkin is coming to the East Coast in a rare East Coast, Coast excursion early June. I forget the day. It's one day in early June. And we were thinking of putting on an event with having Michael Belkin speaking and possibly a few other folks if they're so inclined. Some of the speakers that you've come to love and know in this room. So I'm just curious if anyone in this room is interested in um, – attending or has any thoughts if they want to raise their hand right now we don't know whether we should make it a small one i think we're kind of leaning to as carol was saying 
probably a bigger one to make it more inclusive, but maybe put together, I don't know, three, four speakers, five speakers, maybe do it for, you know, each guy talks a half hour, 45 minutes, whatever, like do it in an afternoon in a venue. Probably no, no dinners because dinner food usually sucks and people are stuck at a table, but maybe if people showed up early afternoon and we had, we had speakers running through the afternoon and that way everyone could get to meet each other in these Twitter spaces, build more community. And also you could get to hear from the man, Mr. Belkin himself in person. Um, some of the other speakers that have appeared in this room, some of whom are actually on this stage, maybe we'll even speak. I don't know, but it's just an idea. Uh, if you have an idea, either raise your hand or DM me, whether you'd want a smaller event or a bigger event, one speaker, four speakers, one hour, five hours, dinner, lunch, nothing, but any ideas we're looking for, looking for a way to go with it. I think kind of where we're thinking about it right now is we want to make it a bigger event. Um, you know, I don't know, two, 300 people maybe do it early afternoon through to cocktails and then call it a day. That's kind of my idea, but I don't know. Gnostic, I don't know if you wanted to weigh in on that or anything else. Gnostic, you got you got any thoughts? If if I can digress back to that audio you played about the guy? Yeah, Michael Saylor, yep. Um, when was that recorded? I think it was last year. I'll, let me, I'll pull it up. Just keep... Oh, don't don't worry about it. Just just a just a general. Just yeah. wondering if it was was recently or or way back then. Um, I had one of the reasons I kind of like your room, George, cuz cuz I got real really thick skin uh, trading because some of the people I was trading with, um, I don't know if anybody ever saw um, NCIS on TV where the guy comes by and whacks the guy in the back of the head uh, when he says something stupid. Um, basically, that was my boss. <clears throat> um, if if I did something stupid or got overexcited about something or all the rest of this stuff, he'd basically just you know whack my ego, um, tell me to go jump in a lake and do whatever. And the guy that did that, I mean, one of the things that we learned is the guy that did that presentation, I mean, when I hear that, th there's a few things I look for. Some guy pumping his stock like that, I want out of it as fast as I can run. Or when I hear cab drivers starting to give me stock advice, I want to run. Um, and I heard that, and I'm sort of, Bitcoin I see as, a, as an emerging currency that's maturing as it goes through and may or may not turn into something that's going to be long-lasting. I live in Canada, and relative to what the what the Canadian government did a while ago in seizing bank accounts, um, I'm much more interested in Bitcoin now for its non-seizure potential uh, than I was previously. So I'm taking it a little bit more seriously than I did before. I think it's going to mature. I think think that it's going to mature into something a little bit better. But when I hear a guy pumping it like that, all I want to do is sell everything I've got and run as quick as I can. So, so no, I agree. I, I agree. They totally uh, agnostic. And here's the interesting thing. So I just put it in Twitter feed. If anyone wants to see it, I'm looking exactly right now on the Bloomberg. It was exactly. It was last year. It was on June 21st. Just in case you don't want to know, Bitcoin was 35,000. Then it's 35,000 now. So you haven't missed anything. So it's not like you know he made that speech and it's down 50. percent No, no. It's at the same price it was when he when he when he when he went off. In the meantime, it went from 35, peaked up at around 68. And now it's back at 35. And you look at the chart, you look at the fundamentals, you look at the correlation of risk assets, you know, all right, I'll, I'll concede to cancel. It's only going to 13. It's not going to 11. All right, fine. So you feel better? Um, anyway, if anyone, if anyone has any thoughts about the event, you want to raise their hand? I mean, and Carol, do you want to say anything? Or if not, people can, people can DM me. Um, but I think it'd be a great event. Have Michael there. Maybe some other Michaels will show up. Maybe we can get Thornton to show up. 
but have three or four uh, speakers and, you know, the audience, the, the this great community for those in the New York area can get to know each other. And then beyond that, we might even do a regional events from time to time. Maybe we'll do one in Florida, you know, Toronto, whatever, California. But I think it's just another way of building community. And I would ask you, if, again, if, you know, again, please give to the World Central Kitchen if you can. But also, please tweet out about this room. Please tweet out about our YouTube channel. We're also available on Apple and Spotify and the way we're going to get our message out is we get our, make our voice louder. We need bigger distribution. So for the longest while, we were only on Twitter. A month ago, we went on YouTube. As you know, all our episodes are up there. We missed the first few, but the last 25 are up there. Uh, and then just last week, we went up on Apple and Spotify. So we're extending our reach. Um, the, the more we, the louder we can get with our voice, the better chance we have of main, you know, storing some sanity to markets and you know promoting financial literacy. So... This has gone on. Oh, my God. You know, in one other planet. I mean, this is insane. OK, the room's not as big as it was before. We still have 470 people here. And I'm guessing there were probably a few thousand, you know, two, three thousand all in during the course of the day. And just so you folks know, these rooms and we haven't even gotten to the Apple and Spotify stuff, but the rooms are routinely with all the replays. Fully 90 percent of the people only hear this on a replay. So, you know, my guess is that this room will be heard by 15,000 people, if not more. So we are making a difference. I want to thank all of you for all your questions. This has been great. We'll do it again. Um, I don't think the market's going to collapse tonight, so I don't think we're doing a Twitter space tonight. But, oh, I haven't put it out yet, but we have a great room coming up on um, on Monday um, in particular. Um, Absolute Strategy Research run by um, David Bowers and Ian, Ian uh, Harnett out of London. Um, Ian, formerly of UB, UBS, European strategist. David Bowers was the global equity strategist for Merrill Lynch before Richard Bernstein and after Chuck Cloud was sandwiched in between. Great, great thinkers. Also, they bring the view from Europe, which is awesome. Um, these are two of the best minds that um, in the business. This is a compliment, but, you know, they have sort of Michael K type of minds. And I think Michael K needs to hear these guys in case he doesn't already know them because they're really, really smart guys. So uh, I haven't tweeted it out yet, but I'm shooting for 530 on Monday we're doing it from a steakhouse somewhere in New York City uh, to be determined. So mark your calendars down. All right. This has been awesome. Um, I'm going to have a beer now. Five hours and 45 minutes. Here we are. You guys are the best. Um, um, we're about to get um, over the fifth final world. Uh, Summer Kitchen. No, you're... Please get generously. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Thanks. Bobby. Thank you, Gnostic. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, everybody. This has been terrific. We'll see you on Monday. And take care. George. Yeah, Bobby. Yeah. Yep. What do you mean have a beer? What's a beer? Well, I gotta get warmed up. I'll start with one. There we <laughs> okay, go. Okay, all right, all right. Just ask. Not, by the way, I'm I'm a Stella, I'm a Stella person. What type of beer you like? I don't drink beer. Some, some excuse me. I, I, I leave <laughs> um I leave that to you and Carol. Well, I'm gonna go with the with the with the, with the Chablis later. I, that that's my, my white burgundy Chablis is my go to white wine. Martinis. Martinis. You'll have to teach me, Carol. I, you got to teach me about it. Martinis. We have to meet. We, you know something, Bobby J and I know each other kind of a million years, but neither Bobby J nor I have met Carol. We all want to meet Carol, so we're gonna meet soon. All right, enough. Um, so again, with that, thanks everyone. This has been fantastic. I'll see you guys five thirty on Monday. Take care and good night. Bye, everybody. Bye.